Lecture 20 Gold, Greed, and Geopolitics in Africa The discovery of gold in the Witwatersrand near present-day Johannesburg in 1886 transformed the Transvaal and the Orange Free State in southern Africa from pastoral backwaters to centers of dynamic economic activity. British miners and engineers poured in to exploit the rich gold seams, while railroad builders hastened to establish lines of access to South African ports. The suspicious Afrikaner rulers, however, taxed the miners heavily, denied them political representation, and began building a railway of their own to reach the sea at Delagoa Bay in Portuguese Mozambique. Cecil Rhodes, Prime Minister of the Cape Colony, planned a rebellion among the British residents of Johannesburg for New Year's Day 1896. Its failure was an international diplomatic embarrassment to Britain. The situation on the Rand remained unchanged. However, a deterioration of relations finally led to open war between 1899 and 1902. Two white minority populations fought in a majority black country. And at first, the nimble Boer cavalrymen did unexpectedly well, further denting British prestige. When a full-scale British army arrived, it soon won the conventional phase of the war, but had to spend another two years tracking down militant Boer guerrillas. Meanwhile, Britain's scorched earth policy, and its policy of crowding Boer farm families into disease-ridden concentration camps, gave an ominous premonition of 20th century warfare. Well, diamond and gold discoveries in southern Africa made it the wealthiest and the most sharply disputed area of the continent. Cecil Rhodes achieved fabulous wealth and power from his Kimberley diamond mines, which he'd been exploiting throughout the 1870s, building up something approaching a monopoly of the diamond business throughout the world. Rhodes himself is an, a fascinating person, a bundle of contradictions, a characteristic in some ways of the larger-than-life figures of Victorian Britain. He was the son of a country clergyman, but he became boundlessly wealthy from diamonds. He named two countries after himself, northern and southern Rhodesia. And he began scheming for British domination of the whole of Africa. But he was also a man devoted to scholarship and to international brotherhood. He felt very aware of having not gone to college, and once he was already a millionaire, He'd go back to Britain for part of every year so that he could study at Oriel College, Oxford. And it took him uh, eight or nine years before he finally did get his college degree. It certainly wasn't necessary for his career, but it was something he cared about. By 1875, Kimberley, the centre of the, of the diamond rush, was the second biggest city in Africa. Dozens of secondary industries grew up there, including the railroad, dynamite, wire, firewood and wagons. It was highly capitalised and uh, Rhodes was in close contact with the Rothschild family, the, the banking family, who financed much of the work. Black labourers were brought in, African, local Africans were brought in for the unskilled work of digging. But they were severely restricted in their mobility and were forced to live in barracks-style camps. In the camps at Kimberley you can see the early origins of the apartheid system as it developed over the next century. Rhodes himself planned a railway to run from the Cape of Good Hope all the way through to Cairo, and his idea was that this railroad would run entirely through British-held territory, and that spur lines leading off it, also run by the British, would turn Africa 
into an integral and united British colony comparable to India. And over the course of the next uh, 30 or 40 years, this railway was almost finished. Although a narrow strip of land, German Tanganyika, stood in the way, the place which today is Tanzania. Rhodes's British South Africa Company had its own army, again comparable to the way in which the East India Company had operated uh, as a private army in earlier times. And of course, Rhodes founded the Rhodes Scholarships. They're his bequest, and... Uh, as he originally conceived it, the idea of the Rhodes Scholarship was to bring together representatives of the great Anglo-Saxon peoples. He was what we would call a scientific racist. He believed that the Anglo-Saxons were chosen either by evolution or by God, or perhaps by both, to dominate the world. And his idea was that it, it would be a kind of secret society bringing together Anglo-Saxon leaders at Oxford. Well, over the passage of time, the Anglo-Saxon part of the uh, bequest has been uh, uh, dropped away, and now women are entitled, as well as members of any race, to compete for the scholarships. But this was his bequest of £6 million at the time of his death in 1901. Gold was discovered in 1886 in the Transvaal, 18 years after the Great Diamond discoveries. This is in the Witwatersrand Mountains, the site of Johannesburg. And it turned the Transvaal into one of the world's richest places. The South African gold rush was like the California gold rush of 1849, full of adventurers and far more men than women. Johannesburg in the early days, like the California towns of the 1850s, was, full of, was godless, full of prostitutes, swindlers, gamblers and so on. But the gold was different. There was a lot of it, but it was relatively poor quality ore. The uh, South African gold, about one ounce of gold was to be found in about one tonne of ore. This is very different from the high-value commodities like rubber and ivory coming out of the Congo at the same time. And it meant that very early on, the individual miner with a shovel and pan stood no chance at all. The mining had to be capitalised on a big scale. High-tech, big-volume mining with lots and lots of labourers. By 1899, 97,000 Africans were working in, on the Rand mines. And again, they were confined to compounds, which became characteristic of the South African labour system for the next half century. Men who'd made fortunes in Kimberley, including Rhodes himself, now moved on to Johannesburg and put to, uh, to, to work there the methods that they developed in the diamond business. In fact, the whole of the South African diamond and gold businesses would never have been exploited had it not been for the Outlanders. That's the, the Afrikaner or the Boer word for foreigners. They brought capital and technical expertise to the Rand, and principally they were British. Now, Paul Kruger was the president of the Transvaal. He taxed the Outlanders very heavily, but he denied them all political rights. Kruger himself was a veteran of the Great Trek, the early movement of the Boers away from the Cape Colony in the earlier part of the 19th century. He was a Calvinist, allegedly even believed in that the earth was flat, but was always politically very shrewd. One of the things he undertook was to build a railway which would reach the sea not down in Cape Town or in Durban, which were British strongholds, but at Delagoa Bay in Portuguese East Africa, the place we call Mozambique. This was a way of making sure that he could, or trying to ensure that he could sidestep British commercial control. After all, if the gold could only reach the sea through British territory, Britain would, ha would hold a whip hand over the Boers. The British were infuriated by the denial of rights to their miners and by the heavy taxation imposed on them. And the Jameson Raid of 1895-6 was an attempt to stimulate an outlander coup. It failed. 
A group of South Africa Company soldiers, backed by Rhodes, who by now is the Prime Minister of the Cape Colony, uh, 470 men in all, well-armed, and led by Dr Leander Starr Jameson, who was one of Rhodes's friends. But it failed due to the lack of cooperation by the Uitlanders, who at the crucial point didn't rise up. Of course, it's always a great risk to, to rebel, because it could so easily cost you your life. The result was that as Jameson's raiders approached Johannesburg, they were tracked by Boer horsemen and harassed, and as they entered the Johannesburg area on New Year's Day 1896, uh, were very quickly uh, defeated at the short battle of Doornkop. The British government specifically disapproved and tried to distance itself from the raid. And the survivors were forced to surrender to Boer cavalrymen. Now, after the British defeat on Majuba Hill back in 1881, this was a further severe dent to British pride. Twice Boer soldiers had gotten the best of them. Many Britons believed that the colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain, had connived at the raid, despite his denials. A parliamentary investigation was set up to see whether Chamberlain had been involved, but it was tainted because he himself was a member of it. And the committee concluded, not surprisingly, that it was unable to find proof. The committee censured Rhodes, but not Chamberlain. Jameson himself, the leader of the raid, was handed over to the British and tried and imprisoned for treason. But many Britons thought that the government had secretly backed him and that he was now undertaking a shameless cover-up. Rhodes himself was forced to resign as Prime Minister of the Cape Colony. And Britain had to pay reparations to the Transvaal. Kruger used the money, of the reparations money, to buy up-to-date artillery from Krupp, one of the great German munitions manufacturers. The British government then continued to negotiate with Kruger for outlanders' rights. Popular opinion in Britain strongly backed the overthrow of Kruger, especially after hearing that the German Kaiser had sent him a letter of congratulation for his ability to embarrass the British Empire. Well, in 1898, a Boer policeman killed a British miner in Johannesburg, an incident which led to a petition signed by 21,000 British Outlanders demanding that they should have equal rights. And this is one of the flashpoints of the Boer War. War was finally declared by the British Army, by the British against the Boers in 1899, and the war lasted from then until 1902. Its effect was to demonstrate British vulnerability. An escalating series of ultimatums took place, and then the fighting began. Britain claimed that it had never surrendered suzerainty over the Boer republics, that even though in the 1850s it had um, conceded the principle that they should be self-governing, still nevertheless Britain did retain ultimate political authority over them. And that this, despite subsequent uh, uh, toing and froing of policy, had never been surrendered. They recalled to the Boers' attention, for example, the fact that the British had helped the Boers during the Zulu Wars in the late 1870s. So the British said that they had suzerainty and were entitled to enforce British subjects' right to vote. This, of course, is a very strong echo of the old slogan, no taxation without representation, which had been heard elsewhere in British imperial history. Kroger said that the Boer republics were sovereign and independent. And as usual in history, both sides could make a very good case. It isn't so much the struggle of right against wrong as the struggle of right against right, or at least that's how the, the participants saw it. The outbreak of the war was greeted enthusiastically in Britain. There was immense public excitement about it. Jingoism. By now, by 1899, the, the empire was 
very much on the minds of ordinary citizens who could take great pride in the fact that they belonged to Britain, which had this world-bestriding empire. And they had almost a century of winning uninterrupted victories, most of them relatively easy victories. Great struggles like the Battle of Waterloo against Napoleon, which certainly hadn't been easy, but then lots and lots of colonial wars in which the uh, technological lopsidedness and the high degree of discipline and order of the British forces had ensured their victory. So it was with a horrifying sense of surprise and dismay that the British endured a series of jarring reversals in the early months of the Boer War. Three South African cities were besieged, Mafeking, Kimberley, the Diamond Centre, and Ladysmith. And in one week, in December 1899, remembered in British history as Black Week, three British generals were defeated, including the Commander-in-Chief, General Redvers Buller, at the Battle of Colenso, and 3,000 British soldiers were killed. At that stage, early on in the war, before British reinforcements could get to, uh, to Cape Town from England, the Boers were numerically superior. The British suffered particularly heavy casualties during a failed attempt to relieve the Siege of Ladysmith, uh, the most famous incident of which was the Battle of Spion Cop. Spion Cop was a, a hill which the British had uh, mounted it in the night, believing that it commanded the high ground overlooking the town. But actually, it was itself overlooked by higher mountains in the surrounding area, with the result that the Boers were then able to pour artillery and rifle fire into the area, killing nearly all the British defenders at Spion Cop. The very best book to come out of the Boer War is called Commando written by Dennis Wrights, who was the son of one of the Boer politicians, and who at the age of just 17 became a Boer cavalryman and fought throughout the war with incredible tenacity and determination, and then wrote this magnificent book about the experience afterwards. Here's a little passage from it, and remember this is a 17-year-old boy witnessing the effects of the Battle of Spion Cop. We hurried across to the English breastworks to find them abandoned. On our side of the fighting line, there had been many casualties, but a worse sight met our eyes behind the English defences. In the shallow trenches where they had fought, the soldiers lay dead in swathes, and in places they were piled three deep. The Boer guns in particular had wrought terrible havoc, and some of the bodies were shockingly mutilated. There must have been 600 dead men on this strip of earth, and there cannot have been many battlefields where there was such an accumulation of horrors within so small a compass. General Buller was relieved of command, and Lord Roberts, a hero from the Indian Wars, took over. His own son, Lord Roberts's own son, had been killed in Black Week. Now, one of the people watching the early events of the Boer War was Winston Churchill. He was 26 years old. Uh, Churchill had been born back in 1874. His father was Lord Randolph Churchill, closely allied to the Dukes of Marlborough by blood. And his mother was a famous American beauty, Jenny Jerome. They'd met in 1874 and had a whirlwind romance. Churchill was their oldest child. He'd already become famous for writing The River War and for participating in the Battle of Omdurman. And now he'd gone to South Africa, not as a soldier, but as a journalist. He was working for the London Morning Post. And uh, Churchill himself was impressed at what was going on, the fact that the British were, to all intents and purposes, losing. He wrote, It is astonishing how we have underrated these people. The combination of mounted infantry and heavy guns is extremely effective. Our intelligence department must look to its laurels. A long and bloody war is before us, and the end is by no means as certain as most people imagine. 
He had an adventure of his own while he was there. He was on an armoured train which was going up country from Durban towards Ladysmith uh, when it was attacked by uh, a Boer, Boer column. Some of the uh, wagons on the train, on the armoured train were damaged and Churchill, with great coolness, supervised the clearing of the damaged tra- uh, wagons from the tracks so that the train itself could uh, retreat successfully. He managed to get the engineer to back up out of danger and loaded as many soldiers as he could onto it to, to uh, retreat. But then he, with some of the other soldiers, was left behind and the Boer cavalry closed in around them and captured him. Churchill claimed that he was a journalist and should not be taken prisoner. He wasn't a combatant. But the Boers pointed out, quite rightly, that he had been involved in the fighting and in the rescue work. That is, he'd been doing the same work as the soldiers, and he'd also been brandishing a revolver. So he admitted that he had been longing to get into the action. He was taken to Pretoria, the capital of the uh, Transvaal, and the race course there had been converted into a temporary prisoner of war camp. A week later, he escaped and decided that the way to get back would be to follow the line of the Delagoa Railway, the Delagoa Bay Railway. Uh, in other words, it was an unexpected direction in which to escape, which made it more likely that he'd be able to get away with it, hitchhiking night rides on trains and laying low during the day. Churchill was already a famous man. His name was well known. He was the, uh, he was the grandson of a lord and was, was uh, politically very, very well connected. It wasn't long before Churchill was nearly starving. He knocked on a door in the hope of getting, finding a friendly face and getting some aid, and by extravagant good luck, was able to find the only man for miles around who was sympathetic to the British cause, a mining engineer. The engineer hid him in a mine shaft until the clamour about his escape died down. And then, hidden in a train, he was able to smuggle his way into Mozambique, get onto a ship and sail back to Durban, where he reappeared in public life with a wonderful story to tell and great acclamation in the press. This was part of Winston Churchill's lifelong knack for adventure and publicity. Queen Victoria sent every soldier on active service in South Africa a brass box of chocolates. Her remark after early defeats? We are not interested in the possibilities of defeat. They do not exist. Now, one of the people to raise British morale during these grim early days of the Boer War was Robert Baden-Powell. He was the commander at Mafeking, and uh, it was surrounded by the Boers and was under heavy bombardment. But he was famous for the stiff upper lip, and periodically he'd send out laconic telegrams which would say things like this. We've suffered a day of heavy bombardment, one dog slightly injured. This was a way of saying we're not going to be deterred by any amount of enemy pressure. The great problem inside Mafeking, as so often for besieged cities, was a growing shortage of food. And here's what Baden-Powell wrote about it later on. We learned to economise very rigidly in the matter of food, and also to devise food substitutes. When a horse was killed, his mane and tail were cut off and sent to the hospital for stuffing mattresses and pillows. His shoes went to the foundry for making shells. His skin, after having the hair scalded off, was boiled with his head and feet for many hours, chopped up small, and with the addition of a little saltpetre, was served out as brawn. His flesh was taken from the bones and minced in a great mincing machine, and from his inside were made skins, into which the meat was crammed. So each man received a sausage as his ration. The bones were then boiled into a rich soup, which was dealt out at the different soup kitchens and they were afterwards pounded up into powder with which to adulterate the flour. So, there was not much of that horse that was wasted. Our flour was made from the horse's oats, pounded and winnowed. 
But with all our appliances, we never succeeded in getting completely rid of the husks. We managed thus, however, to issue to every man daily a big biscuit of oatmeal. The husks of the oats were put to soak in large tubs of water for a number of hours, at the end of which the scum formed by the husks was scraped off and given as food to the hospital chickens, while the residue formed a paste closely akin to that used by bill stickers. This was called sourns, a sour kind of mess, but very healthy and filling. In other words, everything that could possibly be consumed was turned into food. Now, one of the most controversial of Baden-Powell's decisions was that he ordered most of the black population to leave the city, even though it meant that they would have to endure the hazard of crossing enemy lines under fire. And he said he wouldn't feed any of them who stayed. Later historians have condemned Baden-Powell for this act of what does appear to be absolutely flagrant racism. But at the time, the British public paid far less attention to issues like that. They were impressed by the way in which, for example, he gathered up the white boys living in in Mafeking, the children, and used them to carry messages and to carry supplies. A few years later, after the war had finished, which he survived, he became the founder of the Boy Scouts movement. And he said that that, that watching the children inside Mafeking gave him the idea that this kind of useful, in a way, paramilitary activity could be undertaken, that boys could learn the necessary skills for survival later on in harsh environments. And that was one of the insights which led to the the founding of the Scouts movement. Well, a new British commander, Lord Roberts, recovered the military initiative in 1900. He began to borrow from the Boers' fighting methods, using in particular high-speed cavalry, which were very effective on the great open plains of South Africa. And finally, he was able to outflank the besiegers and relieve Kimberley and Ladysmith and Mafeking. The relief of Mafeking in May 1900 led to wild rejoicing in Britain. This was the 17th of May 1900, after a 217-day siege. And scenes of hysterical relief and rejoicing uh, took place throughout Britain. Winston Churchill himself uh, wrote about it much later on, writing after the end of the First World War, writing in the 1920s. No one had ever believed Mafeking could hold out half as long. A dozen times as the siege dragged on, the watching nation had emerged from apprehension and despondency into renewed hope and had been again cast down. Millions who could not follow closely or accurately the main events of the war looked day after day in the papers for the fortunes of Mafeking. And when finally the news of its relief was flashed throughout the world, the streets of London became impassable and the floods of sterling cockney patriotism were released in such a deluge of unbridled, delirious, childish joy as was never witnessed again until Armistice Night 1918. Nay, perhaps the famous Mafeking Night holds the record. So there was an incredible uh, explosion of euphoric relief in Britain to finally discover that they were once more getting uh, the advantage. The regular army, under the leadership of Lord Roberts, and now strongly reinforced from home as more and more British troops arrived, marched against Pretoria, the capital of the Transvaal. All sorts of interested people went from Britain to see what was going on. Churchill was one. Another one was uh, a doctor, Arthur Conan Doyle, who, of course, we best remember as the creator of Sherlock Holmes. He came from Scotland, trained as a doctor, and wasn't particularly successful. So while he was waiting for patients in his London surgery, he began writing the stories about the wonderful detective. Conan Doyle was famous in 1900 too, and he went down to see what was going on and travelled with the army as it marched into Pretoria. And here's his description of the British triumphal entry into Pretoria itself. 
For over two hours, the khaki waves with their crests of steel went sweeping by. High above their heads from the summit of the Radzal, that's the Parliament House in, in the city, the broad Union Jack streamed for the first time. Through months of darkness, we had struggled on towards the light. Now at last, the strange drama seemed to be drawing to its close. The god of battles had given the long-withheld verdict. But of all the hearts which throbbed high at that supreme moment, there were few who felt one touch of bitterness towards the brave men who had been overborne. They had fought and died for their ideal. We had fought and died for ours. The hope for the future of South Africa is that they or their descendants may learn that that banner which has come to wave above Pretoria means no racial intolerance, no greed for gold, no paltering with injustice or corruption, but that it means one law for all and one freedom for all, as it does in every other continent in the whole broad earth. When that is learned, it may happen that even they will come to date a happier life and a wider liberty from the, that 5th of June, which saw the symbol of their nation pass forever from among the ensigns of the world. Well, it's actually very hard to imagine, isn't it, that the, the defeated enemy would rejoice at the idea of its own defeat, as Conan Doyle here hopes. I think he's been carried away with rhapsodic expectations, which aren't very likely to be fulfilled, especially when he claims that the Union Jack symbolises the abolition of racial intolerance, which at that time it very certainly did not. The conventional warfare phase ended, and you can tell from what uh, Conan Doyle wrote here that he thought the war was now virtually over, though in fact it was to go on for two more years. And it, con it continued because a Boer guerrilla campaign persisted. Uh, the the um, bitter enders, so-called, were Boers determined not to surrender. Britain responded to the, uh, the guerrilla raids of the Boer cavalrymen with a scorched earth policy throughout the Boer countryside. Lord Roberts had gone home by now, handing over to General Herbert Kitchener, the victor of Omdurman. The long-delayed victory, of uh, ultimate victory of the British, was based on the use of concentration camps and scorched earth, literally um, uprooting the whole population, burning down farms to make it impossible for the Boers to get supplies, and then crisscrossing the land with barbed wire, uh, making it very, very difficult for the Boer cavalry to cross with their horses from one area to the next. And the barbed wire was accompanied by the building of um, blockhouses at regular intervals, some of which you can still see in South Africa today. They've often been turned into uh, um, historical museums at river crossings or, or in, out in the countryside. The, the cows simply live in them. It's comparable in a way. The, the British difficulties in South Africa are comparable in a way to the Americans' difficulties in Vietnam. That is, the struggle for the hearts and minds of a people who appear to be deeply unsympathetic to the mission in question. Civilians were placed in concentration camps, and the camps, like the armies themselves, were swept by infectious diseases. Far more British soldiers died of disease in South Africa than died of enemy action. And the concentrations of the civilians in the camps also led to a, a, a widespread death rate, a high death rate among them. 20,000 Boer civilians in the camps died. There was scattered criticism inside Britain for what was happening particularly from a Liberal MP just at the beginning of his career then, David Lloyd George, who later was to go on to become the great Liberal Prime Minister. And he said that Britain was fighting with an outrageous brutality. He was derided by Conservative members of Parliament as a pro-Boer. Another important voice protesting against the policy of the concentration camps was that of Emily Hobhouse, a religious and humanitarian crusader, who went to see what was actually going on and was horrified to discover the way in which uh, 
women and children in large numbers were dying because of the uh, insanitary character of the camps. She wrote, I call this camp system a wholesale cruelty. To keep these camps going is murder to the children. They droop in the terrible heat and with the insufficient unsuitable food. Thousands, physically unfit, are placed in conditions of life which they have not strength to endure. In front of them is blank ruin. If only the British people would try to exercise a little imagination. Picture the whole miserable scene. Entire villages rooted up and dumped in a strange, bare place. Well, gradually conditions in the camps did improve, but nevertheless it's a, an ominous portent of 20th century warfare that the, the whole concept of concentration camps should itself have begun here in the British Empire. The Treaty of Vereeniging finally brought the war to an end in 1902. By then, Britain had 300,000 troops in South Africa, overwhelming numerical superiority, and they'd been embarrassed for two years by tiny columns of Boer cavalry refusing to give up. In the book I mentioned before, Dennis Wright's book Commando, he describes the desperation of these Boer raiding groups as it became more and more difficult for them to keep going. The treaty gave to the Boers three million pounds for rebuilding. Britain itself won the, the, uh, the overall sovereignty of the whole of South Africa. And both groups, both white groups, agreed to a continuation of white racial supremacy. In fact, many of the Boer leaders were eventually reconciled to the Union of South Africa, including General Smuts, one of the most daring leaders, and Dennis Wrights himself, who became a British regimental commander in the First World War, and later on the South African High Commissioner in England during the Second World War. But this conflict, the Boer War, put a permanent dent into Britain's reputation for imperial invincibility. It showed it to be out of touch with facing well-armed enemies, at first, it hadn't really faced a modernised enemy since the Crimean War of the 1850s. And the war showed that England was Britain was vulnerable because it lacked a network of European allies. There's also the painful irony that the, the success of cavalry or of mounted infantrymen in the Boer War led to the promotion of other cavalrymen to high positions in the British Army, even though that was going to prove utterly unsuitable for the kind of fighting which took place when these men came into supreme command, which was in 1914, the opening days of the First World War. Lecture 21. The Empire in Literature. The Empire influenced British literature just as it influenced British life. As sea captains went exploring and merchants travelled abroad in the hope of making great fortunes, their tales of triumph and disaster and their wealth found their way back to England. The great themes of English literature are marriage, money and social class. Nearly every great British novel revolves around the question of who's going to marry whom, how much money they have whether it's right to marry for money alone, and what role love should play in the transaction. Social class, which involves much more than mere questions of money, also plays a role. And there are dozens of wonderful novels in which a man of high social standing has no money, and in which men rolling in money have very low social standing. Historically, it was possible to buy your way to higher social status, but it often took more than one generation by tradesmen getting their sons educated at Eton and Oxford, for example. 
The colony's role in the history of English literature is to upset the order of things by introducing new forms of wealth, by raising moral questions about the rights and wrongs of colonisation, and even by asking how the members of different races should interact. I'll try to introduce the themes of various novels and plays today, but I'll avoid giving away the plot in every case except one. Or at least I'll mention plot themes while being careful to leave plenty to amaze you. And everything I mention today is something you certainly should read. Well, let's begin with Shakespeare, who uh, lived just in the very, very earliest days of the British Empire. And a good person to start with is Caliban in The Tempest, written in the very early 1600s, just at the time when the Virginia colony was being established and the, British, and the first British settlements in the West Indies. Caliban's a wild man who's been enslaved by Prospero, an exiled king. But, as he says, he and his mother, the witch Sycorax, used to own the island before Prospero, with his magic powers, came along. Caliban says, uh, meditating, This island's mine, by Sycorax, my mother, which thou takest from me. When thou camest first, thou strokest me and made much of me, wouldst give me water with berries in't, and teach me how to name the bigger light, and how the less that burn by day and night. And then I loved thee, and showed thee all the qualities of the isle, the fresh springs, brine pits, barren place and fertile. Cursed be that I did so. In other words, to begin with, Caliban taught Prospero all about the island. It's very easy to see an analogy here with the Native Americans helping the early colonists. Prospero was kind to Caliban, he says, but then imprisoned him when he attempted to rape Miranda, Prospero's daughter. A lot of literary critics have understood the play as being an allegory of imperialism just when it was beginning, and the play does raise the question of whether Prospero was justified in enslaving Caliban. Now, in the early 1600s, there was a great popularity in England of plays uh, about captivity, in which English people were, were taken prisoner by the Indians in America or by the Moorish pirates in North Africa. And uh, more and more frequently in the early 1600s, uh, shipwreck and mutiny and heroic captivity narratives become standard fare in English writing. Jumping forwards now to 1719, we can uh, look for a moment at Robinson Crusoe, which some critics regard as the very first real novel in English. Daniel Defoe himself was born in 1660, survived the Great Plague of 1665, and the Great Fire of London of 1666 during his childhood. He was involved in various things in, in early adult life, a businessman who often went into debt, and because of that went to debtor's prison, which was the standard uh, threat in those days. Later on, he was jailed for outspoken religious pamphleteering as well. But throughout his life, Daniel Defoe was a very, very prolific writer. Robinson Crusoe is the tale of an Englishman cast away on a desert island in the 1650s. And of course, being cast away on a desert island has been the, the theme of dozens of stories since, and even in our own day, of hundreds of cartoons. Supposedly, the island is somewhere off the coast of Venezuela, and Robinson Crusoe in the story spends 28 years there. Robinson Crusoe became a runaway bestseller and has been continuously in print for nearly 300 years. There are 700 editions of it throughout the world, and it's printed in virtually every one of the, of the written languages. Well, the, the story starts with a young man going off to sea against his parents' wishes, being shipwrecked and then captured by Moorish pirates. He escapes from captivity in a boat, 
is picked up by a Portuguese sea captain and taken to Brazil. He acquires a plantation, then goes off on a slaving voyage, and is shipwrecked, shipwrecked again on an island. And all this is just the prologue, and it's packed with adventure right from the moment the book starts. Crusoe is able to rescue enough gear from the ship to become self-sufficient. And much of the book is the tale of him taking care of himself and doing what in ordinary society is done by many people, specialising. He creates a kind of miniature Britain with agriculture, simple industry, and then taking care of all the different uh, compartments of, of everyday life. He calls himself the king of the island. A very dramatic scene occurs when he sees a footprint in the sand and suddenly realises he's not alone. Is it the devil? Why hasn't he seen any ships? Well, he comes to realise that cannibals sometimes visit the island. He adopts an escaped prisoner who would have been eaten one Friday. One of the things that he's doing is keeping a primitive calendar to make sure that he never loses track of what day or what month or what year he's living in. And so he calls the man he's rescued from the cannibals Friday, teaches him English and converts him to Christianity. So now in addition to everything else, he's got a, a miniature native population of his own. All the great themes of 17th century empire building show up in Robinson Crusoe. Hazardous voyages, pirates, moors, slave voyages, remote islands, exotic natives and cannibals. And, at the top of everything, a plucky English hero. The book was based on the adventures of Alexander Selkirk, who lived that way for four years on an island off Chile. Or possibly also on the adventures of Henry Pittman, a ship's surgeon whom Defoe knew slightly in London. James Joyce, the famous Irish novelist, admired Robinson Crusoe and said of the main character, quote, He is the true prototype of the British colonist. The whole Anglo-Saxon spirit is in Crusoe. The manly independence, the unconscious cruelty, the persistence, the slow yet efficient intelligence, the calculating taciturnity. Daniel Defoe also wrote Moll Flanders, which was published in 1722. And this is the story, the life story, of a woman who has to live by her wits. She's born in prison, and soon after her birth, her mother sent off to Virginia to become an indentured servant. This was in the period where indenture was in decline and was being replaced by slavery. Later on in the book, when she's uh, an adult, Moll also goes to Virginia with her second husband. But when she's there, she discovers that her mother-in-law is also her mother, and that she's inadvertently married a half-brother. Life in early Virginia was, uh, was so uh, deadly, it's very, very common to find men who married a succession of women, each of whom died, and also sometimes women who married a succession of men who, who often died too, so that the, the relationships and the brothers and sisters was very, very complicated. Well, the coincidence in Moll Flanders is another common theme in English literature, the, the way in which astonishing coincidences show up to discover who's related to whom, and that's something, again, we can see as this lecture uh, advances. Just after the publication and the early success of Robinson Crusoe, Jonathan Swift, the Irish satirist, published Gulliver's Travels. This is in 1726. Like Robinson Crusoe, the story takes the form of the adventures of a sailor. He's first of all the surgeon and later the captain of a ship. Now everything from Swift is full of biting satire, and, that, and the book is really a satire on the religious and political disagreements of his own time. But the story is also full of the dangers of a maritime trading nation, such as England was becoming. It also features shipwrecks and pirates and mutinous sailors who maroon him on islands at crucial moments. On one of his journeys, he goes to Lilliput, 
why he's 12 times as big as everybody else. On another voyage, he goes to Brumdingnag, where everyone else is 12 times as big as he is. Then he goes to the country of the Hwinnams, where the horses are beautiful and intelligent, and the humans, the yahoos, are stupid and ugly. Now, um, Gulliver's Travel is not directly about the British Empire, but it's also full of the themes of daring and of travel to different cultures, which in its day was still a relatively new thing. It was a phenomenon which many people were interested in as more and more British people became involved in this uh, way of life. On the face of it, there's no novelist more quintessentially English than Jane Austen. And it doesn't appear at first glance to be anything at all about the British Empire in her works. Aren't her books all about who should marry whom and how much money the various suitors have? Well, the answer to that is yes, but then that raises the question, where does the money come from? For example, in Persuasion, Anne Elliot at first doesn't marry Frederick Wentworth when he proposes to her because he doesn't have very much money and her relatives say to her, you could surely do better than a penniless sailor. But then he's very successful as a, as a sea captain in the Napoleonic Wars. He wins prize money. When an English ship captured a French one, the crew of the English ship actually got much of the proceeds for, for the value of the objects on the ship and the ship itself. And so prize money could make you wealthy quickly. And that's one of the things which happened often in the Napoleonic Wars. So then when he proposes to her again, she's gratefully able to accept him. And the family sees him as a far more eligible suitor than he had been the first time around. Jane Austen's own brothers were officers in the Royal Navy uh, of Nelson's time, and so this was a world with which she was familiar. Although no scenes of naval fighting appear, it's there in the background. In the same way, Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, published in 1814, doesn't seem to be about co colonialisation at all, colonisation, but it is. Sir Thomas Bertram goes off at one point to the West Indies to look after his business interests there which his negligent son has permitted to deteriorate. And so we realise that Mansfield Park and the wealth in which the characters live is itself built on money based on the slave trade. Modern critics emphasise that the wealth uh, is dependent on slavery, even though it's not um, a theme that the characters themselves talk about. But once you, you realise that, it does, wreck it does change the mood of the book. One of the great political themes of the 16 and 1700s is the arrival of the nabobs and the planters buying their way into the landed classes of England. And incidentally, the name Mansfield Park is also interesting because the judge who ruled against slavery in Britain in a famous 1772 case that I mentioned earlier in this course was Lord Mansfield. But jumping forward again now, let's go to Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte's wonderful novel of 1847. This is surely the greatest governess story ever written. It's set entirely in England, but again with glimpses of the colonies affecting all the characters, with their sense of remoteness, their exotic exoticism, and the challenges they present to the English characters. Jane Eyre herself is an educated orphan who has to take a job as a governess because she's poor. She falls in love with the handsome master, Mr. Rochester, while working as governess to his ward, Adele. Mr. Rochester falls in love with her, falls in love with the governess and proposes to her. And, this, and, and the scenes of their blossoming romance are scenes of swooning romanticism. But on their wedding day, something rather dreadful happens. They're in the church, they're actually at the altar, and the vicar reads out the bans. This is where the vicar says, 
If any of you knows any just cause or impediment why these persons should not be joined together in holy matrimony, do you now declare it? Uh, the, the, the sort of last moment to make sure that they're entitled to get married. And suddenly at the back of the church, a man speaks up and says he's got an impediment. What is it? The fact that Mr. Rochester's already married. Then Jane discovers that her beautiful, handsome Mr. Rochester has a mad wife who's locked in the attic. Her name is Bertha Mason. She's a Jamaican half-caste woman. Well, then the whole story comes out. Mr. Rochester was tricked into marrying Bertha Mason when he was young, living in the West Indies, by his father, who couldn't stand the thought of dividing his estate among his sons, but also didn't want his younger son to be poor. And uh, this is what he says about her. Bertha Mason is mad, and she came of a mad family, idiots and maniacs through three generations. Her mother, the Creole, was both a madwoman and a drunkard, as I found out when I had wed the daughter for they were silent on family secrets before, and she'd once been a voluptuous Caribbean beauty uh, who, with whom uh, Mr. Rochester allowed himself to get carried away. So now they all troop up to the attic, leaving the church, and uh, Jane faces Bertha Mason, the madwoman, and says, It was a discoloured face. It was a savage face. I wish I could forget the roll of the red eyes and the fearful blackened inflammation of the lineaments. Jane runs away. Well, uh, she, she rushes onto, she, she travels as far as she can and then her money runs out and she rushes onto the moors and she's completely out in an exposed and dangerous place. But when she falls exhausted on the moorlands, she happens to be near a cottage and who should live there but a group of her distant cousins whom she didn't previously know. She happens to be related to the people who live in the nearest house. One of them, Sinjin Rivers, is getting ready for life as a missionary and he persuades her to learn Hindi with him. He's the hard, fanatical missionary type, absolutely unbending in his Christian zeal and in his determination to convert the natives. She counsels him to give up the idea and to marry a local woman who's clearly in love with him at home. But he's horrified by the idea that he should prefer comfort and marriage and a good life in Britain to the heroic virtues of being a, a missionary in India. He says, relinquish? What? My vocation? My great work? My foundation laid on earth for a mansion in heaven. My hopes of being numbered in the band who have merged all ambitions in the glorious one of bettering their race, of carrying knowledge into the realms of ignorance, of substituting peace for war, freedom for bondage, religion for superstition, the hope of heaven for the fear of hell. Must I relinquish that? It is dearer than the blood in my veins. It is what I have to look forward to and to live for. In other words, he absolutely won't give up the idea. He wants her to marry him out of a sense of mission duty. But she can't forget Mr. Rochester. Well, in case you haven't read it, I won't tell you what happens next, except to say that the book also pivots around another co coincidence. She has an uncle whom she's never met who suddenly dies, also in the colonies, and leaves her very, very rich. In 1966, a woman named Jean Rees wrote a, a book called The Wide Sargasso Sea, which looks at the whole of the Jane Eyre story from Bertha's point of view, that is, the mad woman in the attic, sympathising with a woman who doesn't quite fit in either black or white society in the West Indies, and who's then wrenched out of her home for a marriage not of her own making. And it's a fascinating exercise in showing how the change of vantage point can completely change your sympathies about the rights and wrongs of the story. Another superb book from the 1840s is Thackeray's Vanity Fair, 
uh, published in 1848. And it's also another governess tale. But one, in one of its episodes, there's again a half-caste rich young woman from the West Indies, Miss Rhoda Swartz. The book is set in 1812, just after the abolition of the slave trade, when fortunes made in the West Indies are bringing money into London. And by our standards, the whole episode in the book is painfully racist. But it's very useful for giving us a glimpse about what was happening in terms of racial relations in early 19th century England. Thackeray himself was, was writing about the period of his own early life. George, Os George Osborne in the book, whose father wants him to marry Miss Swartz, despises her for racial reasons. And he thinks she's vulgarly ostentatious and gives a mocking account of her. He says, My sisters say she has diamonds as big as pigeon's eggs. How they must set off her complexion. Her jet black hair is as curly as Sambo's. I dare say she wore a nose ring when she went to court. And with a plume of feathers in her top knot, she'd look like the perfect Belle Sauvage. His father chimes in. Her father was a German Jew, a slave owner, they say, connected with the Cannibal Islands in some way or other. He died last year, and Miss Pinkerton has finished her education. Well, the father, Mr. O old Mr. Osborne, is a grasping London merchant. He's uh, meant to be a very unsympathetic character. He finds her money irresistible and tells his son to marry her. But the son fancies himself a gentleman. And besides, he's already in love with someone else and despises Rhoda because of her race. Marry that mulatto woman. I don't like the colour, sir. Ask the black man that sweeps opposite Fleet Market, sir. I'm not going to marry the hot and tot Venus. The main plot of Vanity Fair is the life of the lovable rogue and adventurous Becky Sharp, who also uh, starts out in life as a governess. Straight from school, from Miss Pinkerton's, where she met Rosa Swartz, she goes with her friend Amelia Sedley, and hears that she's going to meet uh, Amelia's brother Joss, Joss Sedley, who's just come back from India. And uh, the portrait of Joss Sedley is a parody portrait of one of the nabobs, a smaller version of somebody like Robert Clive or Warren Hastings. And uh, this is what um, Thackeray says about him. He was in the East India Company's civil service, and his name appeared at the period of which we write in the Bengal division of the East India Register as Collector of Boggley Waller, an honourable and lucrative post, as everyone knows. Boggley Waller is situated in a fine, lonely, marshy, jungly district, famous for snipe shooting, and where, not unfrequently, you may flush a tiger. Ramgunge, where there is a magistrate, is only 40 miles off, and there's a cavalry station about 30 miles farther. He lived quite alone at this charming place, scarcely seeing a Christian face, except twice a year, when the detachment arrived to carry off the revenues which he had collected to Calcutta. In other words, it's not nice at all. It's a dreadful place, but it's a place where he can enrich himself. One of the episodes of this meeting is that he tricks Becky into eating curry, then a brand new dish in England that she's never heard of. And it's so hot, it's physically painful for her to eat it. And so then he says, oh, try a chilli with it, Miss Sharp. A chilli, said Becky, gasping. Oh, yes, she thought a chilli was something cool, as its name imported, and was served with some. How fresh and green they look, she said, and put one into her mouth. It was hotter than the curry. Flesh and blood could bear it no longer. Water, for heaven's sake, water, she cried. Well, everyone laughs at playing this practical joke on uh, poor old Becky Sharp. And then Joss's father, old Mr. Sadley, says to their black servant, Sambo, give Miss Sharp some water. It's a wonderful book in every way. And uh, as you can see from these episodes, it gives you a glimpse of um, 
of ideas about race and ideas about the colonies in the early and mid-19th century. The most famous of the Victorian novelists is Charles Dickens, and uh, there's a colonial theme in his book Great Expectations from 1861. A wonderfully evocative scene early in the book uh, uh, picks up the life of Philip Pirrip. He's a poor young boy who lives with his older sister and her kind husband, Joe Gargery, who's a blacksmith. But while he's playing in the, in the uh, marshes one day, he's ambushed in the graveyard by a convict who's just escaped from the hulks. These are the horrible old prison ships who begs him to bring food. He does take food to this convict, whose name is Magwitch. But then the convict is later re-arrested and sentenced to deportation to Australia. Later on, Philip Pirrip meets Miss Havisham, a woman, uh, an eccentric woman who was jilted at the altar and lives in her bridal dress amid the decay and cobwebs of the ruined wedding feast. Decades later, she's still wearing her bridal dress. It's a fantastically exotic uh, scene. Meanwhile, she's dedicated herself to teaching her young female ward, Estella, to avenge her by breaking men's hearts. That's Estella's job, to break men's hearts. There are very, very powerful scenes in Great Expectations about the way in which social class creates feelings of social inferiority. And there could certainly be an entire course of British history lectures on the question of feelings of social inferiority. Pip longs to become a gentleman so that he can woo Estella. And he learns that a mysterious benefactor wants to pay for his education. Now, he convinces himself that Miss Havisham has singled him out to be the actual uh, wooer of Estella. And he goes off to London uh, to learn how to be a gentleman. But years later, Magwitch, the convict, reappears, having made his fortune in Australia as a sheep farmer. He's the benefactor. And he tells Pip how thinking about his kindness in the churchyard all those years before had consoled him during his hard, hard years... In the, in the colonies. He says, And then, dear boy, it was a recompense to me, looky here, to know in secret that I was making a gentleman. The blood horses of them colonists might fling up the dust over me as I was walking. What do I say? I says to myself, I'm making a better gentleman than ever you'll be. When one of them says to another, He was a convict a few years ago and is an ignorant common fellow now, for all that he's lucky, what do I say? I says to myself, if I ain't a gentleman, nor yet ain't got no learning, I'm the owner of such. All of you own stock and land, which of you owns a brought-up London gentleman? Well, Pip's horrified by this revelation. He, doesn't, he didn't want to be brought up by Magwitch's money. He wanted to be brought up by Miss Havisham's. On the other hand, he recognises his duty to help and tries to... Uh, arranged for Magwitch's departure because uh, he's risking his own life in coming back to England even to see Pip. Well, I won't tell you what happens except to say that there's a, a thrilling ending to the story. The early British Empire literature about Africa emphasised its exoticism. And as I said earlier, very little was known about Africa right in, well into the middle of the 19th century. It was the most difficult of all the continents for Europeans to explore. And the idea of the dark continent was persistent. One of the responses was to write boys' adventure stories about Africa. For example, King Solomon's Mines, published by Ryder Haggard in 1885. He'd been working in Africa, and he had a bet with his brother. that he, uh, His brother told him, I bet you couldn't write a novel half as good as, as uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. And he said, yes, I can. And in five weeks, he did. He wrote it in a great passion of enthusiasm. Well, it's a tale of a group of English gentlemen who find the company of women too confining. They love to hunt and shoot and explore, and they go off to Africa to do just that. 
The central figure is Alan Quatermain, an elephant hunter who was once mauled by a lion. They go in search of a fabled land of wealth with a mysterious Portuguese man's treasure map given on his deathbed. And after amazing hardships, they discover it. The loyal African servant who shares their point of view is called Umbopa. Now, the theme of the noble savage is very emphatic in this book. Many of the tribesmen are more upright and decent than the white traders. And there's an interracial romance between one of the Englishmen, named Captain Good, and an African woman named Fulata, who then dies a heroic death to save his life. The great, proud, but barbaric African chiefs, there's no real attempt by Ryder Haggard to understand them anthropologically. Instead, he emphasizes how exotic and magnificent they are. And he was someone who'd spent time with the Zulus in the last days of their independent greatness. And he, says he, and he said he planned to depict them as they were in their superstitious madness and blood-stained grandeur. There's an old hag witch called Gagool who rules through fear and superstition and regularly orders massacres. Well, the climax of the story comes when they discover an incredible treasure and they realise it'll make them the most wealthy men in the world, but only if they can get some of the treasure back home because meanwhile they've been tricked and they appear to be entombed forever inside King Solomon's mines. And again, I won't tell you exactly how that works out because although it's sort of hilariously second-rate literature, it's very good fun to read. A much more serious African novel is Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness from 1899. This, it exploits African exoticism in a much grimmer way. Conrad himself was a Polish seafarer uh, and, who became a captain in the English Merchant Navy. He went to the Congo and ran a steamer for several months in 1890. This is during the notorious phase of the King of Belgium's exploitation of the Congo. He nearly died of fever there and came away with a permanently darkened view of human nature. And the story, mirroring his own experience, is about an English captain sent into the Congo by a Belgian company, traders in ivory, to find their agent Kurtz a long way upriver. At first, Kurtz had believed in bringing civilization to the heathen and the blessings of capitalism, but then somehow he'd veered out of control. The reality is one of deaths from fevers, brutal exploitation of the natives, bickering ambition and greed among the whites, and a sense that the veneer of civilization is very, very thin. And uh, in one of the magnificent set-piece passages of the, of the book, the captain writes this. Going up that river was like travelling back to the earliest beginnings of the world, when vegetation rioted on the earth and the big trees were kings. The earth seemed unearthly. We are accustomed to look upon the shackled form of a conquered monster, but there you could look at a thing monstrous and free. It was unearthly, and the men were, no, not inhuman. That was the worst of it, this suspicion of their not being inhuman. It would come slowly to one. They howled and leapt and spun and made horrid faces. But what thrilled you was just the thought of their humanity, like yours, the thought of your remote kinship with this wild and passionate uproar. Well, Marlowe discovers that Kurtz has ended uh, writing a, his document on civilization by scrawling, exterminate all the brutes. And when he finally gets to Kurtz, it's Kurtz who's become a savage, killing men and impaling their heads on stakes around his hut. He's turned himself in a, into a deity to be worshipped. This book was the basis for the film Apocalypse Now, set later on in the Vietnam War. But the book's better. There's also a very clever framing device. The whole story is told by Marlowe in, in, the London, in the Thames Estuary in London. And there's a suggestion in it that there's this darkness in all our hearts. Well, the most celebrated of all the British Empire writers is probably Rudyard Kipling. 
He was born and raised in India and was a storyteller about many aspects of Anglo-Indian life. He was the first English language author to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, which he won in 1907 when he was aged only 42. His enthusiasm for the empire coincided with the height of national empire fever in the 1890s. Earlier, the mood had been missing, and later, doubts about the rightness of the imperial role set in. But even at the height of the empire in 1897, the year of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, he could write a poem like this, recessional, which is a reminder to humility, even to the great imperial English. God of our fathers, known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle line, beneath whose awful hand we hold dominion over palm and pine, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. The tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart, still stands thine ancient sacrifice, an humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Far called, our navies melt away, on dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is won with Nineveh and Tyre. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. In other words, foreseeing even then in the 1890s at the absolute height of the empire. This is a, a human contrivance and it's destined to pass away and the durability of our Christian faith is much more important. Well, the 20th century gave rise to a literature far less morally certain about the empire and also to an abundant literature from the colonized peoples themselves. And that will be the theme of one of the later lectures in this course. Lecture 22, Economics and Theories of Empire. Throughout the 19th century, advocates of the empire claimed that they were bringing progress to backward peoples, including the blessings of honest government, Christianity, education, railways, medicine and commerce. Above all, however, they were making money. In the middle years of the century, Britain, the world's industrial leader, strongly favoured international free trade. And by 1850, it had abandoned the old navigation acts, and nearly all other forms of protectionism. Colonies no longer enjoyed a favoured trading status. Once Germany and America began to catch up industrially, however, especially after 1870, the advantages of free trade diminished. A later generation of writers and politicians, of whom John Seeley and Joseph Chamberlain are the most famous, argued for strengthening the bonds of the empire, making it a single political unit and perhaps even surrounding it with tariff fences. Meanwhile, critics of imperialism, such as the Englishman John Hobson and the Russian revolutionary Vladimir Lenin, looked on imperialism as the decadent phase of a rapacious capitalist system. As the world's empires grew between 1880 and 1910, so did speculation about the ethics and economics of imperialism. And for the first time, important sections of the nation began to doubt that Britain's role in the world was beyond reproach. In the first half of the 19th century, Britain abandoned protectionism and promoted free trade. 
It's important always to keep in mind that the whole impetus behind the empire had been money-making from the outset and that it was the trading companies which had set the terms of the empire right from the beginning. Here's the historian James Morris. Loot of the more respectable kind had been a fundamental of British imperialism since the first adventurers went to India in search of spices or indigo or Humphrey Gilbert realised the wealth of the Newfoundland fisheries. By the 19th century, Romantics saw their empire as a cornucopia from which good things flowed along the seaways to their islands. Gold and furs from western possessions. Skins, diamonds, wines and feathers from the south. Silk, rice, tea and precious stones from the east. Ivory from Africa. And food from all quarters. The empire had grown up around protected trading companies, often monopolies like the East India Company and with the help of the Navigation Acts, which obliged all trade to and from Britain and its colonies to be carried in British ships, with the specific aim of protecting British trade and growing the royal and the merchant navies. But, if free trade turned out to be more lucrative than these arrangements, the empire must give way. Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill were the great theorists of the free market in the late, 19th, in the late 18th and early 19th century. They, they viewed economics very differently. They said, rational economic actors enter into trading relationships from which both partners benefit and in which political interference can only be a drag. Their ideas caught on and were widely accepted by politicians by the 1840s. Now, as the world's industrial pioneer, Britain stood to gain more than any other nation from, uh, from monopolies and abolishing tariffs. The abolition of the Corn Laws in 1846, for example, reduced food prices in Britain. It was harmful to the interests of the conservative landowning classes, who until then had been assured a protected high price for their grain. But it was very advantageous for the majority of people in Britain who had to buy their own food. And as, industrialis as industrialization spread, and it had spread widely by the 1840s, more and more people had to buy food rather than grow their own. So the abolition of the Corn Laws was a very clear gain for them. The East India Company lost its monopoly on India trade in 1813, and the remains of the Navigation Acts were finally all repealed in 1849. There were clearly some people who lost by these changes. Free trade was a source of acute anxiety, for example, to the West India sugar planters. They'd lost slavery in 1833 when slavery was abolished, and now they'd lost their advantageous market situation as well. In fact, they were now plunged into the situation of many third world countries of today, that is, of being exporters of a single staple crop that's common on the world market, and with vulnerable, undiversified economies. The long decline of the West Indies set in in the 1830s and 40s and only really revived with the development of tourism after the Second World War. Even so, it's surely true that the winners outnumbered the losers in the transformation from protectionism to free trade. British manufactured goods were better in quality and lower in price than those of any rival. British competition, for example, damaged India's own textile industry. In the early days of the, uh, of the contacts with India, Britain had been importing fine fabrics from India. But by the 1800s, um, cotton textile factories in Lancashire in England were exporting big quantities to India, a complete transformation of the terms of trade. 
And as the Lancashire manufacturers said, justifying themselves, the ordinary Indian peasant, the majority of the Indian people, had better clothes than ever before and cheaper ones too, because economies of scale and industrialization really work. In the mid-19th century, British engineers built railways throughout and even beyond the empire. Nearly all the major railroad systems in the world were based on British innovations. That's why nearly all of them have the same gauge. If you, uh, if you go to Britain, the, rail, the, the two rails of a track are four foot eight and a half inches apart. And they are in Australia and Canada and New Zealand. And they are in the United States. Because it was British railway engineers who, who got them started. One English engineer, Thomas Brassey, built about 6,500 miles of railways on five continents, including the Grand Trunk Railroad of Canada, the Eastern Bengal Railway in India, and the Queensland Railway in Australia. So this was an immensely lucrative business, which took uh, British uh, railway builders literally around the globe. And at first, most of them were using exported British rails and British locomotives, Sometimes even the navvies, that is even the labourers who did the hard work on the railway, were sent out in gangs from Britain with their own doctors and their own clergymen. Incidentally, the reason for the four foot eight and a half gauge, or at least one of the stories associated with it, is this. The very, very earliest railways around British coal mines were horse-drawn. And the appropriate width for, um, for the shafts of a carriage drawn by a horse is about four feet eight and a half. In other words, the, uh, the, the reason our rails are as far apart as they are is related to the width of a horse. Now, in addition to its, uh, its leadership in industrial manufacturing, Britain also had the most mature financial institutions. Foreign governments and even foreign revolutionary movements seeking to overthrow governments in their home countries could borrow from London bankers at relatively low interest rates. And I've mentioned over the course of the lectures repeatedly the importance of the fact that early on, before even 1700, the Bank of England had been established and conferred a wonderful stability on British uh, financial and commercial work as a whole. Lloyd's, which began as a coffee house in London, became the world's great marine insurer. And uh, by the mid-1800s, Lloyd's was overwhelmingly the biggest marine insurance corporation in the world. Also very, very important was the introduction of limited liability legislation in 1862. This introduced the principle that an investor could separate his investment from his personal fortune. Then, if the company in which he invested went bankrupt, he was only liable up to the extent of the money he'd invested. He'd lose that, but he wouldn't have creditors then coming after his own personal fortune as well. In other words, the risks for investors were greatly reduced, by comparison with earlier days, and that reduced risk was itself a very great stimulus for more people to become involved in investment. And, and it was extremely useful in stimulating further economic growth. After 1840, ocean-going ocean steamships increased the pace and volume of international trade while reducing its cost. Now, to understand the history of the 19th century, and to understand really the whole history of the British Empire, it's absolutely vital that you don't romanticise sailing ships. It's true that on nice summer days, it can be very pleasant indeed to go sailing for a few hours. But to try to cross one of the great oceans in a sailing ship was nearly always extremely dangerous, utterly miserable, and could very easily cost you your life. That's why the uh, advent of steamships on ocean-going runs was so important. The very earliest steamships were confined to rivers because they needed frequent refuelling. 
But by the 1840s, they could cross the Atlantic. The rate of Atlantic crossings accelerated dramatically, and in the 1840s and 50s, again and again, the number of days taken to cross the Atlantic uh, diminished. And the route for the first time could be direct. You could literally set course for New York from Bristol and sail straight across the Atlantic because you were no longer at the mercy of the winds and the currents. You still had to take them into effect, into consideration, of course, and plot accordingly, but you no longer had to actually follow the lines of the currents and the prevailing winds. It was also possible for the first time to schedule sailings. The early shipping lines, like Cunard, eventually were able to say, we'll have a ship leaving from Southampton every Friday at four in the afternoon. You see, previous to that, it had been impossible to have schedules because when the ship would get back from America was almost completely unknown, and therefore when it would be refitted and ready to set off again had also been unknown. So the introduction of regular timetabling had an extremely positive stimulating effect upon economic development. Steamships made emigration from Britain safer than it ever had been before. And throughout the whole 19th and early 20th centuries, there was a constant migration out of Britain, which had a surplus population. They found great opportunities abroad too. The single biggest destination in the 19th century was the United States, and literally millions of, of British people between 1800 and 1900 did go to America. But the white colonies also became more and more popular destinations, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa. The numbers actually going to places like India and the tropical colonies was always quite a lot smaller, and usually the people who went there went not as settlers, but directly in the service of some colonial venture. Atlantic crossings took two months in the sailing era. By 1880, they routinely took only eight or nine days. The voyage from to Australia was down from five months in 1840 to one month in 1890. The size and speed of steamships made it possible for Britain to import low-value bulk goods in place of the early empire's emphasis on luxuries. The other great change in marine construction was that more and more metal could be used where you were less uh, hindered by the, the height to which trees grow in considering how big the ship could be. So bigger and bigger ships were being made. There was a great growth in trade in grain from the United States and Canada as the Great Plains opened up in the 1860s and 70s. Wool and meat from Australia could be shipped into Britain in big quantities. And this, of course, is a great change over the days when the only things worth bringing home through the Indian Ocean from the Far East had been very, very high-value commodities. In the old days, it had been silks and spices in small, slow, vulnerable sailing ships. Another extremely important development was the invention of refrigeration in 1882, because then it became possible to... Um, ship meat in large quantities because it could be slaughtered in Australia or New Zealand and kept fresh all the way to the English market. This, these uh, new trade lines had the collective effect of greatly improving the diet of ordinary British people, and meaning that throughout the year they could hope to eat um, meat and vegetables and fruits because from different parts of the, of the world they'd mature at different times. Similarly, very important, was the, uh, the laying of submarine cables throughout the empire, starting in the 1860s, because that had the effect of bringing all parts of the empire into rapid communication with one another. The first cable from England reached America in 1865, just as the American Civil War ended. The first to India was in 1870, and the first to Australia in 1872.
This depended on a whole complex of inventions, but the single most important one was the invention of the telegraph and Morse code, worked out by Samuel Morse, an American, in the 1830s. Some of the earliest uh, telegraph lines were stretched alongside railways so that the people controlling the movement of the trains could communicate with each other where the trains had got to to make sure the lines were safe. The first transatlantic cable, completed in 1865, and then an improved one, laid in 1872, were incredible technical accomplishments. Because to lay a transatlantic cable, that meant, that meant that you needed a ship big enough to carry literally thousands of miles of cable. A ship called the Great Eastern, built by the visionary British engineer Isambard Kingdom Brunel, weighed 20,000 tonnes. As a passenger ship, it was ahead of its time. But as a cable-laying ship, it found its idiom and was, was very well adapted to that kind of work. The cable, obviously, as, as it disappeared over the stern of the ship, had to be able to lie on the seabed beyond the hope of maintenance and to carry on working for years at a time. And the cables were well enough built that that did, in fact, happen. Cables enable the central government to increase its information about and its control over events in the colonies. They facilitated easy communication between merchants at both ends of long-term transactions. As I mentioned earlier, in the 1700s, India was so far away, really a year's voyage away, the East India Company and then the British government had to trust entirely in the probity of its agents there, and they weren't always deserving of that trust. But once the marine cables are in place, it becomes possible to communicate a message from India to England and back again in the space of an hour or two. That means, of course, that centralised control from Britain is very, very greatly enhanced. Britain lost its industrial and commercial lead after 1870, when new industrial giants, particularly the United States of America and a newly unified Germany, began to compete with Britain very aggressively. Once the Union had won the, civil, the American Civil War, America began to flex its muscles as a new industrial giant. Its railway builders no longer needed to buy British locomotives or import British engineers to do the work. They could uh, do it themselves. Although it is interesting that the man who built perhaps most of the rails which uh, contributed to the spread of the American railroad network was himself a Scottish immigrant, Andrew Carnegie. Just as the uh, Scots immigrants were very important throughout the white colonies of the British Empire, so they played a very big role in the history of the United States. And Andrew Carnegie, who'd gone from Scotland as a poor boy, a poor emigrant, made a great fortune in the iron and steel business and specialised in constant modernisation of his equipment and eventually in outstripping his British rivals in both low cost and high quality. He spent part of his later life living in a great castle in Scotland near where he'd grown up in a little cottage. Well, the period from 1815 to 1870 came to look in retrospect like a golden age for the British that wasn't going to return. That had been the era in which Britain unquestionably had a decisive economic advantage. The political implications of these changes were important too. The self-governing white colonies wanted a lot of latitude of political action. In other words, they wanted to be able to dominate their own affairs. But on the other hand, they realised that sometimes they would also want British military protection. Politics is always about getting and not giving. The Australian and Canadian politicians understandably wanted British protection if they were threatened, Canada by the United States or by the German Empire or Australia later by Japan. But they also didn't really want to have to pay for it as they would if they were completely independent. And in fact, Britain still did pay most of the defence costs of the whole empire. 
On the other hand, of course, the white colonists didn't really want to surrender the autonomy they'd gained after the Durham report, which had led to internal self-government. In the 1870s and 80s, when it was clear that competition from America and Germany was becoming a very real factor in British life, the idea of a Greater Britain began to be discussed. The possibility of an imperial federation which would bind all the colonies much closer to one another. A book called The Expansion of England by John Seeley, written in 1883, was one of the most articulate manifestos of this point of view. It urged a more unified and self-conscious imperial policy. Seeley himself was a rather pompous don from Cambridge University. But with this book, he hit a popular chord. He said, he, he, he said a phrase which subsequently became very famous. We seem to have conquered and peopled half the world in a fit of absence of mind. This idea of the accidental empire, the empire which grew to dominate half the world without even being planned or intentionally done, was a, was a clever idea. He said this also as he looking ahead, and very prophetically too. We seem to have conquered and peopled half the world in a fit of absence of mind. If the United States and Russia hold together for another half century, they will at the end of that time completely dwarf such old European states as France and Germany and depress them into the second class. They will do the same to England if at the end of that time England still thinks of herself simply as a European state. While well, he, he accurately foresaw the 20th century dominance of the, the Russians and the Americans, but at that point he still thought, well, Britain can be as big as either of them so long as its empire is one efficiently functioning political unit. And he thought that steamships and cables and the trading links within the empire made it possible. The late 1800s was also a period where pseudo-scientific ideas about the Anglo-Saxon peoples as a distinct race were widespread. The idea was that either God or natural selection, this is all after the publication of Darwin's book on the origin of species in 1859, that somehow the Anglo-Saxons were destined to dominate the world. It was the period of the development of eugenics, the science or the pseudoscience of, of um, managed reproduction by which you'd stimulate the reproduction of the fittest the ones who most perfectly fulfil the ideal, while trying to uh, suppress the reproduction of the unfit. That is, getting rid of all the undesirable traits in the, in the way of, of creating a, um, an ever-improving Anglo-Saxon master race. Now, of course, once you've lived through the Third Reich and heard about Hitler's ideas on eugenics, all this seems incredibly sinister. But in its day, in the 1890s, when eugenics was getting going, it seemed to many people, quite liberal people too, as an entirely benign and reasonable idea. The fear was that otherwise the population would suffer from the dominance of the weaker elements within it and would sink into degeneracy. Now among the people who believed very strongly in this idea of the supremacy of the Anglo-Saxons were Cecil Rhodes, the African entrepreneur and politician whom I've talked about in the context of Africa in the 1880s and 90s, Alfred Milner, a very important British colonial servant, and in America Theodore Roosevelt. They were all enthusiasts for this idea. Let me read to you, for example, from Milner. He said, If I am an imperialist, it is because the destiny of the English race, owing to its insular position and its long supremacy at sea, has been to strike fresh roots in distant parts of the world. My patriotism knows no geographical, but only racial limits. I am an imperialist and not a little Englander, because I am a British race patriot. It is not the soil of England 
which is essential to my patriotism, but the speech, the traditions, the spiritual heritage, the principles, the aspirations of the British race. Joseph Chamberlain, the colonial minister from 1895, favoured a policy of stronger imperial bonds. He also liked the idea which Seeley was advancing. Chamberlain himself was a Birmingham manufacturer who'd gone into politics. And incidentally, he was the man, his son, Neville Chamberlain, was going to be the British Prime Minister at the outset of the Second World War and was to be discredited by his underestimation of the evil of Hitler. Joseph Chamberlain, the father, was boundlessly energetic, a great friend of, of Cecil Rhodes. He admired Seeley and he believed in the Anglo-Saxon ideal. In, quote, what he called, in the greatness and importance of the distinction reserved to the Anglo-Saxon race, that proud, persistent, self-asserting and resolute stock which no change of condition can alter. In other words, you're still part of this race wherever in the world you live. He surprised the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, in 1895 by accepting what until then had been regarded as a cabinet position of second rank. He wanted to be the Minister for the Colonies and he was far more energetic in that position than his predecessors. He had electric lights installed in the colonial office buildings at a time when they were a brand new technology. He pledged to build up the colonies, to give them an infrastructure worthy of the Romans, and no longer to be obsessively cheap in his expenditures, which had been characteristic of the free trade generation. He approved bold railroad building schemes in Africa, backed by government funds. And he wanted a federal imperial council that would create a unified foreign policy. The colonial leaders themselves tended to shy away from that because they knew that it would be based in London and that sometimes it would, it would undertake policies which wouldn't have any direct benefit for themselves, even though they'd end up paying for it. Perhaps most important of all of Joseph Chamberlain's works, in view of their long-time significance, was that, is that he founded schools for the study of tropical medicine. And he patronised two doctors, Patrick Manson and Robert Ross who discovered that mosquitoes were the vectors of malaria. This is in 1898. That meant that if you could suppress the mosquitoes, you might be able to control malaria itself. It was quickly put into practice in the Suez Canal Zone and then in Hong Kong and Malaya with dramatically positive results. For the first time, this scourge, which for three, two or three hundred years by then had been killing Britons abroad, could be controlled. It certainly had a highly positive effect for the Americans who built the Panama Canal in the, in the early decade, the first decade of the 20th century. An earlier scheme to build the Panama Canal had completely failed because the men died from malaria and yellow fever. Similarly, a doctor named H.H. H. Johnston worked to eliminate tsetse flies, the bearers of sleeping sickness, and flies which had made it almost impossible to use horses in most of Africa because they were always bitten and died. So these great de developments in tropical medicine are an important part of Joseph Chamberlain's legacy. At meetings of colonial leaders, for example in 1902 at the coronation of King Edward VII, Chamberlain agreed with them on the need for preferential tariffs within the empire. They wanted tariff protection for their trade. But the electorate and the Liberal Party disagreed. To them, free trade still seemed best. And after the Boer War, which had then just ended, the costs of empire were starting to look distinctly unattractive, so the Liberals are becoming more and more sceptical about the idea. The conservative enthusiasm for the empire was boosted particularly by conservative newspapers and to some extent by popular writers who encouraged the idea of imperial unity. A man named Alfred Harmsworth, later Lord Northcliffe, played the same role in creating the British popular press 
as people like William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer in America. That is, creating newspapers with big pictures, big headlines, short stories, and very straightforward editorials which specialised in jingoism, building up the imperial pride of the ordinary British people in the hope that they'd vote Conservative as well. And uh, the, story, the papers were full of, of tales of imperial war, which was always popular when it was far away and when the forces involved were small and victorious. But it was even great for selling papers during uh, costly conflicts which didn't get work out so well, like the, uh, the long siege of Mafeking during the Boer War. At the same time as this was going on, radical economic theorists condemned imperialism. They saw it as a form of capitalist plundering of the rest of the world, and they anticipated that it would provoke great future wars. John Hobson was a British anti-imperial economist. He believed that the empire was essentially a sales operation for British manufacturers who overproduced goods and underpaid their workers. He came from my own hometown of Derby and he was an alumnus of Derby School where my father was later a teacher. He'd been in South Africa during the Boer War and he came to believe that the war had taken place because of the machinations of the capitalists. That's what had led to this costly and destructive conflict. It benefited the businessmen, but not the poor soldiers who had to fight and die there, and it was at a cost of thousands of British lives. He generalised this idea into a theory of the empire, and he wrote, It is open to imperialists to argue thus, We must have markets for our growing manufactures. We must have new outlets for the investment of our surplus capital, and for the energies of the adventurous surplus of our population. Such expansion is a necessity of life to a nation with our great and growing powers of production. An ever larger share of our population is devoted to the manufactures and commerce of towns and is thus dependent for life and work upon food and raw materials from foreign lands. In order to buy and pay for these things, we must sell our goods abroad. During the first three quarters of the 19th century, we could do so without difficulty by a natural expansion of commerce with continental nations and our colonies, all of which were far behind us in the main arts of manufacture and the carrying trades. So long as England held a virtual monopoly of the world markets for certain important classes of manufactured goods, imperialism was unnecessary. After 1870, this manufacturing and trading supremacy was greatly impaired. Other nations, especially Germany, the United States and Belgium, advanced with great rapidity. And while they have not crushed or even stayed the increase of our external trade, their competition made it more and more difficult to dispose of the full surplus of our manufactures at a profit. The encroachments made by these nations upon our old markets, even in our own possessions, made it most urgent that we should take energetic means to secure new markets. These new markets had to lie in hitherto undeveloped countries, chiefly in the tropics, where vast populations lived capable of growing economic needs, which our manufacturers and merchants could supply. In other words, it's all a great vast business conspiracy, and it's unsavoury because it, it, it pitches us into wars. The Russian revolutionary Lenin, a far more mercurial character, saw this competition for colonies as one of the causes of the First World War. In 1916, when the First World War was going on, he was living in Switzerland, which was one of the neutral countries, and that's where Lenin wrote, imperialism, the highest form of capitalism. He said, in the last 30 or 40 years, monopolies became even more powerful than governments, and they began to manipulate governments into colonizing economically backward areas. Then, competition between these governments led to catastrophic warfare. And at the time that the First World War was going on around him, it was a, at least partially plausible theory to advance. Still, subsequent interpreters have doubted the validity of what's called the Hobson-Lenin thesis. 
because they exaggerate the profitability of colonies. Historians have shown that Britain was becoming very wealthy through industrialization and free trade, and that it would have done so even without the empire. In other words, factors like jingoism and national pride, plus great power rivalry, may have had just as much to do with the empire as capitalist planning. And just because Britain did get rich at the same time as it built an empire, it's easy to assume a direct cause and effect relationship which might not be there. Britain also had extensive trading links, for example, with Latin America, especially Argentina and Uruguay, that cost a lot less to the British because there was no government apparatus to worry about. But as the 19th century closed and the 20th century began, the question of what the empire was for, whether it was economic, whether it was desirable, and whether it would persist, were all open to question. Lecture 23. The British Empire Fights Imperial Germany. Britain's armies on their own could never have defeated those of Germany in World War I. But Britain's command of the sea enabled it to blockade German trade, while its worldwide empire provided the necessary supplies of all kinds. Thousands of colonial soldiers Canadians, Indians and West Indians fought with the British armies on the Western Front and thousands more fought in the war's secondary campaigns. Australians and New Zealanders suffered heavy casualties in the Gallipoli campaign against the Turks. Indian soldiers fought in East Africa as Britain tried to seize German colonies, as did thousands of Africans, mainly in the humble role of carriers and servants. Already the effective rulers of Egypt the British tried to extend their influence in the Middle East by mounting a campaign against Iraq and, under the leadership of Lawrence of Arabia, by harassing Turkish communications in Palestine. Most of the war's colonial soldiers were volunteers, as highly motivated as those from Britain itself, and they developed a reputation for bravery and ferocity. On the other hand, poor treatment by British officers, racial discrimination against Indians and West Indians, and a feeling of being flung into a hopeless cause by blundering British officers, a feeling particularly strong among the Australians at Gallipoli, created anger and contributed to post-war disillusionment among many colonial peoples with the idea of the empire itself. Well, in the prelude to the First World War, the European powers undertook a naval armaments race in the early years of the 20th century. British dreadnought battleships were so much more advanced than any rivals that they made every other fighting ship afloat instantly obsolete. When the dreadnought was first launched, uh, the British naval engineers were jubilant at, the, at its power, but they suddenly realised that in a way it was a mixed blessing because now not only was it better than all the other ships in the world, it was also much better as a fighting device than all Britain's own ships, which were also rendered obsolete. In the, in the ensuing years, an intense naval race develops between Britain, Germany and the other major powers to develop dreadnought-style ships between 1906 and 1914. An American Navy man and writer, Alfred Thayer Mahan, had written the classic account of the significance of warships, a book called The Influence of Sea Power on History, published in 1890. 
Mahan showed more clearly than anyone before how naval power had enabled the British Empire to spread and prosper, maintaining links between colonies and home country. I don't mean to imply that before Mahan no one had ever noticed it, but rather that he was the first person to, to generalise it into a, a comprehensive theory of the relationships between power and, and, and sea power. When he came on a visit to England, he was lionised and became the first person ever to be given an honorary degree at both Oxford and Cambridge, the two great old universities, in the same week. And the book had an enormous influence on um, naval planners all over the world. Imperial Germans also took note and began building up a big navy. The Japanese navy ordered that a copy of Mahan translated into Japanese should be on board every ship. The Germans also believed that navies were a key to big and successful empires, and after German unification in 1870, were trying to create one of their own. The reality and the mystique of the Royal Navy had underpinned the British Empire for a century, since Nelson's great victory at Trafalgar in 1805. But since then, it had never fought a worthy adversary. Never again had British warships faced up against those of a, techn a technically comparable power. And over the course of the long 19th century, the Royal Navy lost some of the reckless daring of Nelson's era. It certainly didn't perform particularly well when the First World War began. One problem was that in World War I, it had to face a new weapon, submarines. Suddenly, miniaturization and stealth, rather than size and range and speed, became new factors. The dreadnoughts were devastating because of their size, power and speed. But tiny submarines perhaps could trump even that. Even though the First World War was fought over the issue of the balance of power in Europe, men from all, of the British, all over the British Empire volunteered to fight. Now by now, World War I is a byword for folly and futility, for vast casualties uh, incurred in response to in the struggle for trivial gains, useless muddy ground in France and Flanders, young men killed at orders of the old, and a pathetic lack of imagination among commanders. But when the war began in the late summer of 1914, it was greeted with wild romanticism and passionate outbursts of patriotism. Men all over the world scrambled to, to join up and, and become part of the fighting machines from fear that otherwise the war would finish far too quickly and they'd miss their chance. It was widely believed that now that um, warfare was so mechanised, whichever force got into the field first would have a decisive advantage and would win very quickly. And certainly it was widely believed in Britain that the war would be over by Christmas. That proved to be completely wrong because, in fact, the holders of defensive weapons, particularly machine guns, had a decisive advantage over offensive weapons. British politicians were surprised, pleasantly surprised, at the enthusiastic response to the outbreak of the war. They were even more impressed by the fact that the colonies vied with one another to send men and supplies to aid the war effort. A hundred thousand New Zealanders participated. This was a tenth of the whole population, and it was more than half of the eligible men, that is the young men of military age. 630,000 Canadians volunteered. So did 420,000 Australians. 57,000 Africans fought, and another 900,000 Africans worked as porters and labourers. One of the issues here, of course, is that in African campaigns, horses nearly always died from tsetse fly bites, so most things had to be carried by men instead. But there was a huge outpouring of effort in Africa too. 
Although they were all fighting on the same side, there was constant racial and ethnic tension and prejudice inside the greater British armies. British officers believed that Africans would not fight when it came to the point, and they hated the idea that white nurses in England might have to care for wounded black and Indian soldiers. It offended their sense of racial propriety. British soldiers, who earned one shilling per day, hated the Australians, who earned five shillings a day. In fact, the British had an extremely rude name for the Australian soldiers, which I can't even repeat here. The Australians were also very friendly with their officers, partly because there was a much looser class system in Australia than in Britain, and they thought that the Poms, which was their um, derogatory nickname for the English, they thought the Poms were pathetically deferential to their own officers. One of the great problems of the First World War was that Britain was unable to feed itself. It was completely dependent on food imports from the United States and particularly from Canada. And this, of course, made the North Atlantic a vital theatre of concern in the war. It was particularly significant in that, in the end, it was German submarine activity in the North Atlantic which brought the United States into the war in 1917 and hastened the eventual victory of the Allied side. More than a million soldiers from India fought, all of them volunteers, in the different theatres of the war. And here's the historian Niall Ferguson quoting one of them, Qatar Singh fighting on the Western Front against the Germans. He writes, The fighting is strange, on the ground, under the ground, in the sky and in the sea, everywhere. This is rightly called the War of Kings. It is the work of men and great intelligence. We shall never get another chance to exalt the name of race, country, ancestors, parents, village and brothers, and to prove our loyalty to the government. There will never be such a fierce fight. Food and clothing is all of the best. There's no shortage. Motors convey the rations right up to the trenches. We go singing as we march and care nothing that we are going to die. But in fact, most of the Indian soldiers were so cold and miserable in the unfamiliar environment of northern France and Belgium and suffered such high casualties that the British commanders, fearing Indians might mutiny, redeployed them to the Middle Eastern campaigns in 1915. Well, it wasn't long before the first flush of enthusiasm for the war began to wear off. In 1916, Britain introduced conscription. Uh, the supply of volunteers dried up, and then young men had to be made to join the armed forces. But most of the white dominions refused to follow them in this respect. Although lots of um, Canadians, Australians and New Zealanders had volunteered, they would not then impose conscription. This is partly because many Australians were of Irish ancestry and didn't particularly care whether or not Britain won. There were a lot of French Canadians in Quebec who also had uh, compromised loyalties. South African Boers were still reluctant to fight for Britain because it was only 10 or 12 years previously that they, that they had been fighting against Britain. In fact, in South Africa, there was a rebellion, the Maritz Rebellion. There were riots in Quebec when the Canadian Parliament considered conscription. And in Australia, two referendums on the question rejected the possibility of conscription. In addition to the Western Front, which is rightly the most famous of all the areas in which the First World War was fought, the Middle East was also an important theatre, particularly from the point of view of the destiny of the British Empire. Before the war, the Germans had cultivated a Turkish alliance. And the Sultan, the leader of the Ottoman Empire, was also the Caliph, that is, a spiritual leader to millions of Sunni Muslims, including many Muslims in British India, 
who would therefore also feel divided loyalties, uh, a spiritual loyalty to the caliph, but a political loyalty to the British. The Sultan himself declared a holy war, a jihad, in November 1914 against Britain and France. And that caused intense jitters among the officers in British India. The Viceroy and his subordinates were, they still had a memory of the Indian mutiny of 1857 and wondered whether something like that might not now happen again, a great Islamic uprising. There were some scattered mutinies, but always on a small scale, and there was no coordinated uprising. And this was partly because the rulers of the Islamic princely states, that is, who ruled indirectly with British supervision, depended on British goodwill. They told their people that the idea of a a jihad was itself German propaganda. The first Lord of the Admiralty at this time was Winston Churchill. After the Boer War, his career in British politics had taken off and he'd risen very, very quickly through the ranks of the Liberal Party, becoming a senior uh, cabinet member by the time the war began. He said, since uh, a stalemate had developed on the Western Front, perhaps victory over the Turks might uh, lead to a a quick and decisive victory in another theatre of the war. It was well known by then that the Turkish Empire was in a steady, chronic decline. And in fact, the Turks had been regarded as the sick man of Europe for nearly a century by then. Nobody thought that the Turks would fight very effectively. The idea of attacking Constantinople seemed like a good alternative to the trenches of the Western Front, where the defences just kept getting stronger, where attempts to attack them led to horrible massacres like the Battle of Luz in 1915 and the Battle of the Somme in 1916. Well, the attack against the Turks took place in two phases. The first phase was a direct naval assault on the narrow Dardanelles. This was in March of 1915, but it failed to open a passage to Constantinople. The Dardanelles are less than a mile wide in places, and they lead straight to Constantinople and then to the Black Sea. The British hoped that they could force their way past the forts and the minefields and seize this great Ottoman city and thereby provoke a Turkish surrender. But despite the presence of 12 British battleships with immense firepower, they couldn't destroy the shore forts and clear the minefields. Three battleships were badly damaged by mines, and the fleet withdrew. If had they known it, they were very, very close to victory. Uh, the Turks were almost ready to surrender, and a few more days of bombardment might have led to a British success. But of course, at the time, they didn't know that. The second alternative, phase two, tried a month later, was an invasion of the Gallipoli Peninsula. This is very close to the ancient city of Troy, from which the hope and expectation was the army could land and then march to capture Constantinople. The commander was a Scotsman, Sir Ian Hamilton, who'd fought in dozens of imperial wars and was a seasoned old veteran of the British Empire. But British planning was so poor that there was a complete lack of secrecy. The Turks had knowledge of the the fact that the invasion was coming and of exactly where it was coming, and that gave them plenty of time to prepare to defend against an attack which they knew was on the way. The British, on the other hand, had inaccurate maps poor supply lines, and gravely inadequate medical facilities. In the convoy sailing through the Mediterranean on the way to Gallipoli, Rupert Brooke wrote one of the most famous British World War I poems, which many of you will recognise, the poem of the thoughts of a man about to go into battle for the first time. If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, 
A dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam. A body of England's breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by the sons of home. Well, ironically, Rupert Brooke died of disease before even getting to Gallipoli. And that's perhaps an omen for what happened next, because almost everything about this campaign went wrong. The 30,000 Anzacs, that is members of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, the Anzacs, suffered very, very severe casualties in the ensuing disaster. And this is the theme of the movie Gallipoli, one of the films which made Mel Gibson famous. You may have seen that, which gives a fictionalised version of what the battle was like. Everyone had underestimated the tenacity of the Turkish forces. They were trained and stiffened with German reinforcements. They'd anticipated another colonial-style war of the kind that had always ended with an easy British victory, like the Battle of Tel el-Kabir, which had given Egypt to the British in the space of about an hour's fighting. What was supposed to be an alternative to the stalemate of the Western Front became a copy of it, except with this difference. The weather was hot and the gorgeous Aegean Sea was right behind the soldiers on the beaches. At first the battleships were fully illuminated and they were right there offshore. But then a German submarine arrived and sank one of them, forcing the others to disperse. On the beaches themselves and on the cliffs behind the beaches there was desperate hand-to-hand fighting and the men were forced to dig trenches and dugouts and shelter in shell holes. But never once were they out of sight of the beaches and only once, very briefly, were they above the ridge line, able to actually see the Dardanelles narrows, from which the hope had been that they'd be able to advance towards Constantinople itself. The whole area was littered with unburied bodies. Dead horses and dead mules were floating in the water, often bloated, and the beaches themselves were covered in debris and chaos. The enemy was always on higher ground, firing down onto the, the British and the Anzacs, One of the enemy there was uh, the future Turkish president, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. Finally, after 250 days, Gallipoli was evacuated in January 1916, by which time it was a dead loss. Half of the 500,000 men who landed there had been killed or wounded in the fighting. And this defeat at the hands of the Turks put a permanent dent into the British imperial mystique. Just as Japanese soldiers had defeated Russian-Europeans in the Russo-Japanese War ten years earlier, so now another group of Asians, the Turks, had defeated Britons. And this was a lesson not to be forgotten, especially by Ataturk himself. Early successes in another campaign in Mesopotamia, the place we call Iraq, were followed by reverses. The Middle East was becoming strategically important because of oil, Britain had no local sources of oil. It's got extensive coal fields, but no oil fields. But now the Royal Navy had switched from coal-burning ships to oil burners, so supplies were essential. This was also the period of the rapid spread of motor vehicles. So Britain, at the very beginning of the war, moved quickly to secure the ports of Abadan and Basra at the head of the Persian Gulf. But Mesopotamia, Iraq, was also a Turkish colony, and they wanted to secure it if they possibly could. The British commander there was General Charles Townsend, and at first he won a succession of easy victories. He undertook an amphibious operation in the swampy delta of the Tigris River. He took a lot of local boats and converted them into gun platforms, attacking Turkish islands, or islands on which little Turkish uh, defending groups were, were situated, successfully. 
and then he began to chase the Turkish retreat upriver. This is, this is a series of events remembered as the Townsend Regatta. The surprise of a British attack and the lack of preparedness of the Turkish defenders caused them to fall back very rapidly and the British could hardly advance fast enough. Large numbers of Turkish soldiers actually came down to the waterside in order to surrender to Townsend's groups. But finally, the British advance was checked just 20 miles from Baghdad and then it was forced to make a strategic retreat to a place called Kut al-Amara. And there, Townsend found himself besieged. He fortified the city, but couldn't advance anymore, and neither could he uh, retreat. For more than a year, the siege of Kut persisted, until finally Townsend was forced to surrender. Throughout the whole siege, he was constantly getting messages, which led him to hope that he might be relieved. And, and uh, again, there was, it was a source of great interest, just like the sieges of the Indian Mutiny, or the sieges uh, at Mafeking and Ladysmith in the Boer War. But... The Turks prevented relief expeditions from getting through. And here again, after the early Turkish defeats, German soldiers had arrived, German veterans, to stiffen the Turkish resistance. Now, after General Townsend surrendered, he was given a villa and enjoyed a busy social life in Constantinople for the rest of the war. That is, as a defeated enemy general, he was given the royal treatment. But his men were force-marched to a ghastly prison camp where more than half of them died before the, the fighting finally ended. General Stanley Maud finally did seize Baghdad in March of 1917. Despite the reverses that they suffered at Gallipoli and then at Kut, the British government still saw that the Turkish Empire was disintegrating, and they wanted to be sure that they would be in a decisive position to take over when it did. In other words, the, the long-term outcome of the fighting was almost sure to be uh, British victories. A third campaign in the Middle East was that of General Edmund Allenby in Palestine, and, in one of the most dramatic moments of the war, it liberated Jerusalem from the Ottoman Empire in 1917, which really did prefigure the very end of Turkish power. Allenby commanded the last cavalry campaign in British history, which advanced very, very effectively across uh, the parts, parts of what's today uh, southern Israel. And he, uh, he had a very ingenious use of deception. For example, at one point he sent out scouts t telling them to deliberately lose documents which were a source of systematic misinformation to the enemy about what his army was actually going to do. In other words, he wanted to lose information so long as it was misinformation. The, the security arrangements and the intelligence management of the Palestine campaign were much, much better than they had been at Gallipoli. Well, his army was the first British army to take Jerusalem since the Crusades 700 years earlier. Allenby walked into the city through the Jaffa Gate, as much like a pilgrim as like a conquering general, in a dusty uniform and watched by members of all the jostling religious groups of the city. By then, the Prime Minister was David Lloyd George. I mentioned him earlier as one of the critics of British policy during the Boer War. But now he'd risen to the leadership of a, a British wartime government coalition and had displaced Herbert Asquith, who'd been the British Prime Minister at the beginning of the war. In response to the capture of Jerusalem, Lloyd George made a speech in Parliament denying that this theatre of the war was irrelevant. In fact, he described it in the, in the context of the history of the British Empire. He said, I know there is a good deal said about sideshows. The British Empire owes a good deal to sideshows. During the Seven Years' War, which was also a great European war, the events which are best remembered by every Englishman are not the great battles on the continent of Europe, but Plassey and the Heights of Abraham. In other words, 
It's the fact that Britain conquered India and Canada in that war, which we now remember. And in the same way, the long-term consequences of, of this event might very well be of the very greatest significance. His government was under some criticism for uh, taking soldiers away from the Western Front, and certainly one line of thinking in Britain was, we've got to defeat the Germans in the Western Front, that's what matters, everything else is a distraction. And Lloyd George is challenging that idea. So he's saying, just as we kept India and Canada, so now we'll keep the Holy Land and Mesopotamia, Iraq. Among Allenby's troops fighting in the liberation of Jerusalem was David Ben-Gurion, the Zionist leader, who would later become the first Prime Minister of Israel. Now, the Zionist movement had begun in Europe, had been begun in Europe by Theodor Herzl and others in the 1890s. And the idea was to restore a Jewish homeland, uh, having been dispersed from there in the late Roman Empire. Now, the Jews all over the world should get back together once again in the land once promised to them by God. They saw defeating the Turks as a necessary stage, and hence Zionists in that period were fighting with the British. Allenby, after his success in Jerusalem, went on to win a shattering victory over the Turks at Megiddo. And this is the place where, in the Bible, uh, the, the Battle of Armageddon is, is uh, forecast to take place. His campaign was aided by the work of T.E. Lawrence, the man we remember as Lawrence of Arabia, who helped incite an Arab revolt against the Turks. Lawrence is himself a romantic figure. He was a brilliant linguist and archaeologist and irregular warrior who became one of the most colourful figures of the war. Uh, and the, the great thing about the desert campaign was that it was newsworthy, unlike the stifling Western Front where casualty rates were huge and, and significant advances very, very rare. He'd countered the German Ottoman talk of a jihad by winning the trust of many of the Arab chieftains. They became effective saboteurs of the Turkish railways and uh, interrupted Turkish lines of communications. I'll say more about him and about his work at the Treaty of Versailles next time. Well, another theatre of the war was Africa. British forces also attacked and eventually seized German colonies in Africa. One of the defeated generals from the Boer War, one of the defeated Boer generals, was Jan Smuts. Uh, who, in the years between the Boer War and the First World War, became a great British Empire loyalist. And he led a campaign, an Anglo-South African campaign, to capture German South West Africa, the country which is now Namibia. Before he could do so, however, he had to defeat an uprising at home, the Maritz Rebellion. This was an uprising of Boer diehards, who'd never been reconciled to the incorporation of the Boer Republics into the Union of South Africa. Smuts had become passionately pro-British, and eventually, in fact, he was to rise to a position in the Prime Minister's War Council in the later years of the war, one of the five or six most important people in the whole empire. But in this first campaign, his four columns outnumbered the Germans, who were in a hopeless position and had to surrender their capital, Windhoek, in 1915. In East Africa, the British uh, campaigns didn't go so well. A very ingenious German general, Paul von Latau Vorbeck, held out against superior British forces in German East Africa, the place which is now Tanzania, for three years. A German cruiser called the Königsberg had been chased into the Rufiji River Delta at the start of the war and then disabled by its British pursuers. Most of the German sailors got off, however, and then they joined von Latau Vorbeck and removed some of the guns to use as field artillery instead. When a force from British India landed at Tanga to attack this colony in November 1914, the Indian soldiers panicked under fire and ran away. 
and the whole expedition was forced to retreat despite its numerical superiority of 8 to 1. This is surely one of the very worst organised campaigns in, in the entire history of the British Empire. The Indian soldiers, nearly all of whom had never previously left India, were first loaded onto ships in the, in the harbour of Bombay, Mumbai as it is now, and then left there for about a month while planning continued. So all of them were extremely sick and uh, in, a, in very poor physical condition before they ever went into combat. Many of their officers couldn't even speak to them because of lack of knowledge of the appropriate languages. After the humiliating defeat there, the British left behind a great mountain of guns and ammunition and other equipment that von Latau could then use. This German commander turned to guerrilla warfare, and for three years he evaded a decisive battle because of his knowledge that that would destroy his force. Smuts gathered ever larger forces to confront him in the hope that he could hunt him down. So Smuts was in the position uh, of, of being on the other side of a guerrilla campaign. He'd been the guerrilla leader 15 years previously, but now he was the hunter, facing all the same difficulties his own pursuers had faced 10 to 15 years previously. He was eventually able to subdue Tanzania and turn it into a British protectorate. But von Latau's use of Af African Askaris, that is Africans fighting in German service, uh, developed a great ability to live off the land. They were far less vulnerable to tropical diseases than their English and Indian pursuers, who lost 31 men to disease for every casualty they suffered in battle. The Germans destroyed railway, railways and bridges. They crossed back and forth into Mozambique. And at one point, they captured a shipload of British medical supplies. When the war ended, Vorbeck had still not been apprehended or defeated. This was the only German army in the world still operating effectively in November 1918. And finally, he was informed of the armistice in Zambia, the, the place which was then northern Rhodesia, after another of his surprise raids. Now, when the Germans asked for an armistice in November 1918 on the Western Front, they hoped and expected that a peace treaty would then be worked out in accordance with the principles of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points. The Americans had entered the war uh, um, in 1917, and President Wilson had said, we ought to have a peace based on these high-minded principles of universal pacification and democratization. That's what Wilson wanted, but he wasn't able to get it. What Britain and France, the victors, wanted was to crush Germany and to make sure that Germany would never again be so severe a threat to, to themselves. The treaty was to have very big implications for the future of Europe and also for the future of the British Empire. Lecture 24, Versailles and Disillusionment. Woodrow Wilson's 14 points included self-determination for all peoples, an end to colonial empires, and a move towards universal democracy, all supervised by a powerful League of Nations. The victorious leaders of Britain and France, by contrast, wanted a vengeful peace against Germany and to seize as many colonies from their vanquished enemies as they could get. Self-determination for all nations would have spelled the end of the empire. By the actual terms of the Treaty of Versailles, Britain took over Germany's African colonies and became the dominant power in the formerly Turkish-ruled Middle East. Britain appeared to be both larger and stronger than ever before. 
The war had, however, fostered a mood of disillusionment and loss of faith in the empire, especially among the white dominions. By the 1920s, the empire no longer enjoyed the widespread support of the British population. Growing numbers of politicians, including those in the newly influential Labour Party, doubted whether they had the right to dominate other peoples around the world. That doubt, in turn, made the recruitment of high-quality administrators willing to spend their lives in the empire's service much more difficult. This decline in British confidence in the imperial mission, which can be seen in the best English literature of the era, was as significant in prompting the decline of the empire as the independence movements that were springing up at the same time in many colonies. Britain appeared to be stronger than ever by the terms of the Versailles Treaty, but the territorial extension of the empire masked a decline in imperial self-confidence. Let me give you two contrasting views to get a sense of that. First of all, from Lord Curzon, who was a former Viceroy of India and a member of the War Cabinet for Lloyd George during the fighting itself. He said, The British flag never flew over more powerful or united an empire than now. Britons never had better cause to look the world in the face. Never did our voice count for more in the councils of the nations or in determining the future destinies of mankind. So that's the voice of an imperial true believer. But on the other hand, the war itself had raised the national debt from £650 million to £7,400 million. 10% of British men under 45 had been killed, 700,000 of them in all. The historian Paul Johnson shows the other side of this picture. Those who survived had no doubt whatsoever that the finest of their generation had gone, a feeling impossible to quantify or prove, now perhaps dismissed as mere sentiment, but an overwhelming conviction which reflected a terrible truth. Such losses had an inevitable effect on the subsequent quality of British society at all levels and in all spheres it brought about a perceptible lowering of public and private spirit. Well, at the treaty itself, Britain and France aimed to weaken Germany permanently so that it would no longer be a threat. Over the course of the 19th century, they'd witnessed the development of German unification. Then they'd watched the German uh, acquisition of a colonial empire of its own. And then, in the war, the attempt by Germany to become the, uh, the master of Europe itself. That's why they thought of Wilson as being a little bit soft-headed and certainly refused to use his 14 points as the basis for settlement. They wanted to make Germany weak. The Germans and, the Austro and, the, and Germany's Austro-Hungarian allies had assumed that the negotiations would be on the basis of the 14 points. But the English and the French politicians, dismayed by them, persuaded Wilson to abandon them before the bargaining even started. Wilson had also gone from America to Versailles and was physically present in meetings with Clemenceau and Lloyd George, the French and British leaders. The Germans were excluded from the negotiations and had terms forced upon them. In effect, they were forced to surrender and take whatever terms they were given rather than participate in negotiations, as had been the normal uh, custom after all of the previous great uh, upheavals in Europe. And they were forced to accept terms under the threat that otherwise the Allied armies would once again resume fighting. No wonder Hitler's generation came to believe that they'd been betrayed, on the one hand by the Allies, and on the other hand by the German government which did feel forced to sign the treaty. The rise of Hitler in the ensuing years was based upon his declaration that he would restore the pride of the German people who'd been stabbed in the back at Versailles.
According to the terms finally thrashed out, Germany had to pay reparations to the victors, which had very unsettling economic consequences in the 1920s and certainly contributed to the onset of the Great Depression at the end of the 20s and into the 1930s. Meanwhile, Britain acquired Germany's colonies in Africa and in the Pacific. Namibia and Tanzania, as they are now, what was once called German West and German East Africa, Thousands of Pacific islands, most of which had, were to be administered directly from New Zealand and Australia, but altogether a million square miles of land and 13 million people. Nominally, these new colonies were League of Nations mandates, that is, run under the supervision of the League, but in practice they were run by Britain and its colonies just like any other. League mandates were really a, a fig leaf of decency. The League of Nations without American participation, was vitiated from the outset. Wilson had put most of his hopes in the idea that there'd now be an international parliament of nations, the League of Nations. But his own tactlessness and the belief of a lot of Senate Republicans that it would compromise American sovereignty uh, led to the leadership of um, Henry Cabot Lodge in opposing American participation. And the fact that America, which was clearly emerging as one of the world's great powers, didn't join the League of Nations made, made it fatally weak right, right from the outset and it was never able to prevent the onset of subsequent conflicts, not even local ones, let alone the Second World War. In the League of Nations, Britain had six votes. Britain itself, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and India. But that was as much a sign of division as unity, because it was no longer certain that each of them would vote in the same way. After disasters like Gallipoli, and the feeling of Canadian and Australian leaders that their people had been led to the slaughter by blundering English politicians and generals, they weren't going to be automatic confederates with England in all future ventures. Britain's contradictory promises to Arab and Zionist forces in the Middle East sowed the seeds of later dilemmas, dilemmas which are still being played out today. Lawrence of Arabia had encouraged Arab resistance to the Turks in return for the promise of independent Arab kingdoms afterwards. Lawrence, as I mentioned last time, was a, an archaeologist, an Oxford don, an excellent linguist, who then matured into an excellent guerrilla soldier. He organised the Arab revolt, gave effective irregular aid to Allenby's campaigns, and he supported the claims of the Sharif of Mecca, the head of the Hashemite clan. Lawrence rode into Damascus side by side with General Allenby, but also with his friend Emir Faisal, and, and, and hoped and intended that, that this family, the Hashemites, should become the great political leaders of new Arab nations. Lawrence himself was made famous by an American journalist and filmmaker called Lowell Thomas, who was looking for heroic figures in the midst of a mechanised war. He, he made a film called With Allenby in Palestine and Lawrence in Arabia, and it became a terrific hit just at the end of the First World War, seen by millions of people in England and America. And very often, this is in the early days of the cinema, uh, there would be cardboard pyramids in the foyer of the theatre and exotic dancing girls in the cinema to draw in a crowd and to encourage the idea of the exoticism of the East. Lawrence himself eventually came to detest the film, but it made him famous and gave him some political influence. Emir Faisal appeared at Versailles and claimed the right of the Arabs to be independent rulers in the Middle East, but he was unsuccessful. Britain was determined to dominate the region in view of its oil fields, its possible overland route to India, 
complementing the Suez Canal, and this buffer against the old fear of Russian aggression. You probably remember the great game of the 19th century, which I mentioned previously, the British defence of India and its approaches from Russian advances. The Sykes-Picot Agreement was an Anglo-French arrangement to share the spoils of the old Ottoman Empire. And this was made very much in the, in the bad old tradition of European power diplomacy, completely ignoring Wilsonian high-mindedness. It was a share-out, in a sense, the, the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Britain was to be the dominant power in Palestine, Transjordan and Iraq. France was to be the dominant power in Lebanon and Syria. Arab nationalists inevitably saw it as a treacherous betrayal of the nationalism that they had fostered and the work they'd done with the British against the Turks. So not, but not only was there a, an, an Anglo-Arab disagreement, to make matters even more complicated was the Balfour Declaration of 1917, which gave British, the British promise of support for a Zionist homeland in Palestine. It was made at a time when the population of Palestine was 93% Arab. And as I mentioned last time, Ben-Gurion and some of the other early Zionists had been supporting the British forces because they, could, they foresaw that getting rid of the Ottoman Empire was the necessary first step towards creating uh, a new Israel. And they were delighted by the Balfour Declaration because it suddenly put the power of the British Empire behind the concept of a homeland for the Jews. On the other hand, Britons who supported the Arab side were horrified by the Balfour Declaration. Here's the historian James Morris describing it. Among many British Arabists, a profound sense of shame set in to dog their attitudes and even affect their policies until the end of the empire. They felt that they had betrayed their friends and believed the imperial policies to have been dishonourable. Among those most deeply affected was Lawrence, whose private mortifications were sublimated into a public emotion. Shame was to be the leitmotif of his epic memoir, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Well, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom by Lawrence is a super book uh, about his exploits and also about his sense of British perfidy, Britain's betrayal of its promises to the Arab leaders. Britain did create two Hashemite kingdoms, Iraq and Transjordan, but it very effectively controlled their conduct. It was a kind of consolation prize for the Hashemites. Faisal became king of Iraq. But just like Egypt, which was nominally independent, or the princely states in India, the Hashemite kingdoms were really under British control. The British government was determined to be the decisive force in the whole area, if it possibly could. One of King Faisal's closest advisers was a daring woman, Gertrude Bell, one of the great individualists of British Empire history. She was the daughter of a rich industrialist from County Durham in the extreme northeast of England. She'd been one of the very first women to study for a degree at Oxford, and she got a first-class honours degree in history at Lady Margaret Hall, one of the early women's colleges. Then she spent her 20s and 30s and 40s travelling throughout the Middle East as an archaeologist, travel writer and political observer. She knew dozens of tribes, spoke many dialects of Arabic and Persian and was one of the friends of Lawrence. Incidentally, she was opposed to votes for women because she said so few women show any interest in politics. She never married, was a chain smoker and had a, a lot of the attributes of, of, of political men of her generation. Well, she was made a political officer in the Middle East during the war. In fact, she was the only female political officer throughout the empire at the time. And she drew maps to help the British invasion campaign in Iraq because she knew the area around Basra, the, the complicated mouth of the Tigris, better than anybody else, or at least any other Briton. 
She was a friend of the new King Faisal of Iraq, and she introduced him to many of the country's tribal leaders and was a member of the British High Commission in Iraq. This is important. As I speak to you today in 2008, obviously there's a continuing American and British mission in Iraq, which is still unresolved. Gertrude Bell, as much as anyone, is responsible for the current boundaries of Iraq. She argued in favour of the idea of including the Kurds in the north as a counterweight to the Shiite majority and the Sunni minority. She also believed that the Sunnis should rule, even though they were numerically inferior, because the Shiites would create a theocracy. You can see that she's a vital person to study in view of current concerns there today. Among many other things, she was also the founder of the Baghdad Archaeological Museum. What about Egypt? Egypt had been dominated by the British since 1882. And it remained in their control as the key to the Suez Canal. So the Suez Canal was now the presumptive routeway from India to Britain. The king of Egypt was a vassal of the British, in effect, but nevertheless he bitterly resented the British presence and yearned for more independence. The British were also challenged by a political movement, the WAFT. The British exiled the WAFT leaders in 1919, and in doing so sparked an uprising in Egypt itself. British ferocity in suppressing it, including air bombardment and machine gunning from the air, which led to the deaths of 1,500 of the Egyptian rebels. In the same year, the military government got approval from the Secretary of War, Churchill, to use poison gas against Kurdish rebels in northern Mesopotamia. It was approved, but not actually used. I think the, 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 the horrific violence of British reprisals at this point is itself a sign of the coarsening of moral sensibilities in the empire, the willingness to use that degree of force against peoples of the empire. And certainly the British soldiers and administrators continued to show, or perhaps even to develop more of, the arrogance and aloofness which had sometimes been characteristic of them earlier. For example, here's General Walter Congreve, the military commander-in-chief in Egypt in 1920. He said, When you talk politics to a Middle Easterner, you may be sure you will get the worst of it. Kick him and he loves and respects you. A contemptuous disregard for the interests of the Egyptians themselves. One of the many very profound changes which took place after the end of the First World War was the Washington Naval Treaty of 1922, which brought British naval supremacy to an abrupt end after two centuries or more in which Britain had ruled the waves, Britannia ruled the waves. After the Battle of Jutland, the, the German high seas fleet had kept to its harbours. The Battle of Jutland was the only set-piece battle between the two great navies in World War I. It took place in 1916. Now, in terms of fighting effectiveness, the German ships operated better than the British, and the British lost more ships sunk than did the Germans. But the German admirals fear that defeat could end the war overnight, that in, in a, a single unsuccessful battle Germany might lose the war completely, had led the German admirals to bring their fleet back into harbour, and they never sailed out to challenge the British high seas fleet again, or the Grand Fleet, I should say. At the war's end, the German Navy sailed 14 battleships and 56 cruisers and destroyers into the Firth of Forth, the river estuary on which Edinburgh is built, and it was led in by a single British cruiser. Six months later, on a signal from the Admiral, the whole fleet scuttled itself at Scarpa Flow, the British Navy base, rather than suffer uh, the ultimate humiliation of having the enemy take over the ships. But now, rather than maintain its naval supremacy, Britain gave it up voluntarily at Washington. 
Instead of its old uh, principle of the, t- the two power rule, that is that the Royal Navy would be stronger than the next two united navies in the world, now Britain accepted a ratio of parity with the United States and uh, a position of marginal inferiority over Japan. In other words, Britain and the US should have five ship- capital ships each to three of Japan. In conformity with the terms of the Washington Treaty, Britain scrapped 657 ships, including 26 battleships, many of them the great dreadnoughts of the pre-war naval race. The treaty itself was in part a response to the belief that great wars of the kind which had just taken place would no longer be necessary and therefore Britain ought not to devote a massive quantity of its annual revenues to, to shipbuilding. But a mood of disillusionment followed the war. It's evident in British literature and in popular attitudes. And it certainly augured a decline of imperial enthusiasm. A spate of anti-war literature denigrated the idealism that had led to the catastrophes of the Western Front. Robert Graves' book, Goodbye to All That, from 1929, and Siegfried Sassoon's Memoirs of an Infantry Officer, from 1930, are explorations of the futility, of the futility and brutality of the war, and also of the terrible trauma it imposed on the soldiers, killing most of them or wounding and maiming them horribly, or even those whom it didn't physically afflict, giving them what was then called shell shock, what we'd call post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and they describe the, the wastage of an entire generation. Equally powerful was Remark's book, All Quiet on the Western Front, in which a, a young German talks about the way in which the young men of Germany are sacrificed by the follies of the older generation, and in which one by one the young man and all his friends are killed. And at the end, he, he's shot in search of a butterfly, which represents a, a moment of hope in the midst of all the horrors. And the book ends with the remark, he was shot on a day uh, in which the n- news broadcast said, all quiet on the Western Front, nothing significant's happened. But of course, for the young man who's died, it's, it's everything. This is also the period of Ernest, Ernest Hemingway's book, A Farewell to Arms, uh, Hemingway had fought with, a, an, with an Italian ambulance uh, brigade and the hero of Farewell to Arms is a deserter and he's clearly the hero. The idea before World War I, the idea that the hero could be a deserter and that the reader's sympathy would go with him as he deserted would have been unimaginable. So a very new mood in the literature of the times. A new generation of novelists poured cold water on the idea that Britain had a civilising mission abroad. You can see this very clearly in E.M. Forster's novel, A Passage to India, from 1924, which is a, a vivid depiction of the racism and intolerance of the British imperialists. Forster himself had spent time in India, and he watched the interactions between the overlords, the, the British, and the Indian majority. He talks about the standoffishness of the British in their cantonments, these confined British areas, and their feeling of innate superiority. Passage to India itself is the story of a young Englishwoman visiting India, She wrongly accuses an Indian doctor, Dr. Aziz, of sexual assault while they're visiting the Marabar Caves, a local, uh, a fascinating local uh, point of interest. All the British assume that he's guilty, that he did in fact molest her. And one of them claims that it's a scientific fact that dark-skinned men lust after white women. But in court, she admits that she was confused, but that in fact there was no assault and that she'd been wrong to make the allegation. Many of the British are more interested in upholding their prejudices than they are interested in the truth of the case, and they regard her as a betrayer of the English and of the white race for telling the truth. 
One of the characters in the book is Mr. Fielding. Dr. Aziz, the Indian doctor, has a sympathetic English friend, Mr. Fielding, who runs a government school for Indian students, and he's much less aloof and less intolerant than most of the other English. But even so, they communicate, communicate across a gulf of misunderstandings. And the implication, very strong in the book, is that the Empire degrades moral character and inhibits real friendships. Similar in mood is George Orwell's novel Burmese Days from 1934, which was based on his, his service in the Imperial Police. George Orwell was born just too late to serve in World War I. He was a teenager during the war. But he joined the Imperial Police and served for five years in Burma before finally resigning in disgust. Burmese Days is the story of a teak merchant and the difficulties occasioned by his friendship with a Hindu. There are some passages, comparable passages in Passage to India and Burmese Days, including particularly a, a, an exploration of the shallowness and racism of most of the whites. But there's also a, a, a mo many moving passages about the degradation of the natives who've entered imperial service, the way in which local natives with privileges can tyrannise over the rest of the Burmese people because of their advantageous position. Orwell wrote about his job enforcing the law when he was in the Imperial Burma Police. In one passage, an American missionary watches uh, while he and some other British officers are involved in the interrogation of a prisoner. And this is what Orwell says about it. Like most nonconformist missionaries, he was a complete ass, but quite a good fellow. He turned to me and said, I wouldn't care to have your job. It made me horribly ashamed. So that was the kind of job I had. Even an ass of an American missionary had the right to look down on and pity me. He says he hated to see the floggings of, of uh, Burmese criminals, and he wrote a famous description of a hanging which he had to witness. Things like this are beyond bearing when you are in any way directly responsible for them. I watched a man hanged once, and it seemed to me worse than a thousand murders. I never went into a jail without feeling that my place was on the other side of the bars. Well, George Orwell is one of the most influential English writers of the whole 20th century. He was a socialist, but he was always passionately anti-totalitarian. And it's he who made the famous remark, communism is the worst enemy of socialism. In other words, the whole point is, of um, socialism, as he saw it, was that it should be a humane system with genuine democratic elements, giving people who'd earlier been suppressed the opportunity to express themselves and come to political maturity. And he saw communism as the antithesis of that. But he also saw imperialism as the antithesis of it. His, his work is a constant appeal for decency, freedom and economic justice. And he became an influential advocate against the idea of the, of the continuity of the British Empire. Now, the political transformation of Britain and the rise of the Labour Party did indeed place the future of the empire in jeopardy. The Labour Party had been created by the Trades Unions Congress in 1900 and it was pledged to parliamentary socialism. By 1900, Britain was a predominantly urban and industrial society. As I mentioned before, Britain couldn't feed itself in World War I and was, was dependent on imported food from elsewhere, mainly from the colonies. It, it specialised in industrial manufacturing. Working class people had only recently got the vote, some of them still didn't have it, and they were severely underrepresented politically, particularly in a political system where you had to have an independent source of wealth in order to be able to, to become a member of parliament, because members of parliament weren't paid. There was a long battle in the 19th century to establish the trade unions, 
and then another long process of, uh, of the unions recognising the need that they would have to enter politics directly to combat legislation which was very hostile to the position of the trade unions. The Labour Party began in 1900 as the Labour Representation Committee and it was greatly strengthened in response to the Taft Vale case in 1901. What happened in that case is that the, in the, the Taft Vale Railway, the workforce went on strike protesting against company policy and poor wages and poor working conditions. The owner of the rail, railway sued the union and the union was found liable for the damages suffered by the railway while work was at a standstill. Now, of course, what that meant was that trade unions were destined always to be ruined by any strike. It, it would have had the effect of making strikes illegal. And that meant that for the trade unions, the reversal of this decision by legislation was the very highest priority. It's a very important moment in 1900 when the British Labour movement decided that it would go directly into politics. Whereas at almost exactly the same time, the American uh, Labour movement, under the leadership of Samuel Gompers, decided that it wouldn't. Samuel Gompers, incidentally, was an English immigrant who grew up first in the English trade union movement and then went to America. He maintained the non-political nature of the American Federation of Labour. It, didn't, it never did mature into a political party, whereas the TUC in Britain did. The British Labour Party rapidly gained ground in the elections of the early 20th century, starting in the election of 1906. It was at that point that it changed its name from the Labour Representation Committee to the Labour Party. And it collaborated with the Liberal government of the, of the, of the first decade of the 20th century. Payment of Members of Parliament came in 1911, from which time it would be possible for a man who'd started life as a factory worker or a coal miner to become a Member of Parliament instead. The great crisis for the Labour movement all over the world came when the First World War began, because the International Organisation of Socialists, the Second International, had said, if a great war breaks out, it's going to be a capitalist war, and members and, and socialists ought not to fight. Because what's going to happen is that the workers of England are going to be cannon fodder for the British capitalists and the working men of Germany are going to be cannon fodder for the German capitalists and so on. But who's going to benefit from a war like this? Capitalism itself. We the socialists ought to oppose war. And nearly all the socialists around the world had taken the, um, a pledge supporting this idea. But when it came to the point... The power of patriotism proved to be too strong. What actually happened when the war began is that nearly all British workers showed their loyalty to Britain by joining the British forces and fighting in the trenches. And only a very, very small handful on the left fringe of the Labour movement refused to, to do so. One Labour uh, Member of Parliament, Arthur Henderson, uh, became the first Labour MP to sit in a British cabinet during the war. In other words, the government saw the wisdom of including even members of the Labour movement in the cabinet. He was an iron and steel worker and a union leader who rose to leadership of the party and then participated in the war cabinet. The Labour Party itself wrote a new constitution in 1917 and 18, and Clause 4 of the new constitution dedicated the party to nationalising the economy, that is to abolishing private ownership altogether. When it came to the point, actually, the Labour Party acted schizophrenically on imperial questions. The first time Labour had a majority in Parliament was in 1924 under the leadership of Ramsay MacDonald. But it lacked an overall majority. In other words, the conservative, liberal, the, the conservative and liberal members of Parliament together could outvote them. Ramsay MacDonald himself was very eager to show the rest of the ruling class that Labour also could manage to rule in a complex world, including imperial responsibilities. 
And, of course, the members of the British Labour movement were far from exempt from conventional British racial attitudes. On the other hand, they were more concerned with social justice, employment, the Depression started earlier and lasted longer than in, in Britain than in the United States. And among the people they hated the most were Winston Churchill and Lord Curzon, whom they regarded as the, the wicked old imperialists. What made this whole question more complicated was the fact that the Russian Revolution had, had taken place in 1917, having a very polarising effect on British and world politics, and whose long-term implications for colonial empires was also destined to be very negative. Tsarist Russia, Britain's ally in World War I, had collapsed under the strain of the war. The provisional government which ensued did no better, and the Bolsheviks took over easily in October 1917 because they alone were absolutely, categorically against the war. The Soviet Union became a consistent source of anti-imperial propaganda from then on right through until its collapse in 1990. It supported and directed communist parties throughout the rest of the world, which emphasised discipline, dedication and armed struggle against capitalism and imperialism. So communists often led anti-empire movements. That's the great paradox of the First World War. The empire was bigger than ever before, but now it was under a great shadow. Disliked by both the rising superpowers, the United States, which had also once fought its own anti-colonial war, and the USSR, and doubted by Britons of growing influence and power. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by The Teaching Company. These lectures are titled, The Rise and Fall of the British Empire, Part 3. Lecture 25, Ireland Divided. The great liberal prime minister, William Gladstone, tried to persuade British politicians to grant self-government to Ireland. But both his Home Rule bills in 1886 and again in 1893 failed in Parliament, further souring Anglo-Irish relations. Home Rule members of Parliament extorted a third Home Rule bill from Herbert Asquith's Liberal government in 1914. But the outbreak of the First World War postponed its implementation. In 1916, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, a radical nationalist group, seized the Dublin General Post Office and declared Ireland an independent republic. British troops and artillery battered them into submission, while the general population stood by and watched. Afterwards, however, more and more Irish Catholics came to admire the Dublin Rising and to support independence. The Irish War of Independence ensued, complicated by the fact that Ulster Protestants desperately wanted to avoid independence. When the Irish Free State came into existence in 1922, a civil war broke out between those among the victors who accepted the partitioning of Ireland and those who rejected it. Well, in the 1880s, Prime Minister Gladstone came to believe in Irish home rule, but he was unable to convince his parliamentary colleagues. Gladstone introduced Home Rule for Ireland legislation in 1886, using the model of Canadian and Australian internal self-government, the principle which had been applied to the White Dominions ever since the Durham Report of 1839. The legislation, as proposed, would have created a regional parliament in Dublin, while reserving foreign policy issues to Westminster. 
The fact that the issue was being backed by the Prime Minister itself caused a sensation in London. And the speech in which he introduced the, uh, the principle of home rule took place on April the 8th, 1886. His speech was scheduled to begin at 4.30 in the afternoon, and already by 12, midday, every seat in the House of Commons was taken. And immense crowds gathered in London, having the feeling that some great transformative event was about to take place. Gladstone made a passionate speech which lasted for three and a half hours. And like many people in the British Empire, certainly like his contemporary General Gordon, he believed that he was doing God's work, and often referred to the way in which he felt God's presence aiding him in what he did. Here's Gladstone's diary entry for that day. He was already in his late 70s, incidentally. The message came to me this morning. Hold thou up my goings in thy path, that my footsteps slip not. Reflected much. Took a short drive. House of Commons, 4.15 until 8.15. Extraordinary scenes outside the house and in. My speech, which I have sometimes thought could never end, lasted nearly three and a half hours. Voice and strength and freedom were granted to me in a degree beyond what I could have hoped. But many a prayer had gone up for me, and not, I believe, in vain. In other words, God gave him the power to give this speech and to be persuasive. He used the Canada, the Canada analogy. Canada had been given home rule in 1867 when it was unified, and seemingly it was closer to Britain than ever before. Gladstone, a liberal, was temperamentally opposed to coercion, and he believed that it couldn't work in the long run. The sheer fact that so many of the Irish were so bitterly discontented with their situation and the political relationship between England and Ireland was itself uh, the necessary stimulus to, to change it. He hoped that Home Rule would finally answer what was called the Irish question, and that then the Irish would become contented members of the British Empire of Nations. Speaking for the Conservative opposition, Lord Salisbury used the analogy of the Indian mutiny. And he said, The Irish, like the Hottentots, are incapable of self-government. Obviously, that's designed to be a, an insult. Now, before Home Rule finally came up for a vote in Parliament, Gladstone made an impassioned speech to his party members not to break ranks. He could foresee the possibility that the Conservatives would vote against Home Rule and that some of the Liberals would as well, in which case the party would be unable to carry the vote. And here's what Gladstone said on that occasion. Go into the length and breadth of the world, ransack the literature of all countries, find, if you can, a single voice, a single book, in which the conduct of England towards Ireland is anywhere treated except with profound and bitter condemnation. Think, I beseech you, think well, think wisely. Think not for the moment, but for the years that are to come before you reject this bill. But as he'd foreseen, enough of the Liberals did break party ranks for the bill to be defeated. And the measure split the Liberal Party into a home rule uh, liberal branch and a unionist branch. Joseph Chamberlain believed, uh, himself a liberal at that point, Joseph Chamberlain believed that the whole empire would collapse if Ireland got self-government. And he said that Britain would become a third-rate power. Chamberlain actually switched his allegiance to become a member of the Conservative and Unionist Party and then became a leading Tory imperialist whom we've met in some of the lectures on Africa and on trade policy and over the Boer War. Well, the six Ulster counties in the northeast of Ireland, the ones which had a majority Protestant population dating right back to uh, the 1600s, 
They reacted to the possibility of home rule with displays of fierce pro-unionism, that is, remaining part of a united kingdom. They were also the ones who lived in the most industrialised area, including Belfast, the major city in Ulster, and the Harland and Wolfe shipyards where many great ships, including a bit later the Titanic, were built. At the same time, many Conservative MPs, members of Parliament, became staunch unionists. For example, here's a speech from Arthur Balfour, a Conservative who himself was later to be Prime Minister as well, this is again in 1886, to a group of Protestant industrial workers in Belfast responding to the possibility of home rule. And Balfour says to them, Home rule means to you that you are to be put under the heel of a majority which, if greater than you in numbers, is most undoubtedly inferior to you in political knowledge and experience. It means that the whole patronage of Ulster is to be handed over to a hostile majority in Dublin. You, the wealthy, the orderly, the industrious, the enterprising portion of Ireland, are to supply money for that part of Ireland which is less orderly, less industrious, less enterprising and less law-abiding. Well, obviously, that, that's, a, in one way, a typical politician's speech flattering the voters. But also, of course, it's a, it's a way of inciting Protestant feeling over against the Catholics, even though Balfour admits that the Protestants are a minority, except in those counties. Gladstone introduced another Home Rule Bill in 1893. It passed the House of Commons, but then was rejected by the House of Lords. The Lords had a strong Tory majority, most of which was passionately pro-unionist. A third Home Rule Bill was passed in 1914 when the, uh, the Liberal Herbert Asquith was Prime Minister. By then, Irish Members of Parliament held the balance of power in the House of Commons and they insisted on Home Rule as a quid pro quo for supporting Asquith on his, uh, his English policies. In other words, if the Irish MPs were not to vote with Asquith, his government would lose votes and would be forced to uh, fall and, and to call a general election. Now, in the meantime, the House of Lords' veto power had been diminished to just two years in 1910. There was a great constitutional crisis, which doesn't concern us here, but it did have this uh, an indirect or important indirect effects on the Irish question. So the legislation uh, was passed by the Commons, but vetoed by the Lords in 1912, and again in 1913, but the Lords didn't have the right of a third veto, so that it was to become law in 1914. But yet again... The, the, the promise and the prospect of Irish Home Rule was thwarted, this time because of the outbreak of the European War, the First World War. Now, it isn't as though the people of Ireland had been sitting by waiting to see what was going to happen. They were taking steps as this legislation moved relentlessly towards acceptance. Militant Ulster Protestants had been importing weapons to meet the threat of Home Rule, which they intended to oppose by force. A group called the Ulster Volunteer Force smuggled 25,000 rifles into the port of Larn near Belfast in the spring of 1914. The UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, had 50,000 volunteers and it had the active support of many senior British politicians, notably Sir Edward Carson, a Member of Parliament. Many of its officers were formerly British Army officers in India and sympathisers included Rudyard Kipling. So in other words, although it's ostensibly uh, an, an illegal paramilitary force, in practice it's got a high degree of support from the, uh, from the conservative side of the British establishment. 
One group of British Army officers at the Curra declared that they would refuse to coerce Ulster Protestants in the event of war. They'd resign their commissions rather than be forced to fight against people whose cause they looked at as absolutely right. 58 of them, including their commander-in-chief, said they'd resign rather than fight. And this is remembered historically as the Curra Mutiny. But again, it's a very odd kind of mutiny since it's the, the officers themselves who are declaring their uh, reluctance to fight against the Ulster Unionists. Meanwhile, Catholic groups were importing weapons of their own. The Irish Volunteer Force, the IVF, was a Catholic copy of the UVF, but further south in the, Catholic, in the majority Catholic area. It too uh, undertook military drill. It smuggled in weapons. Some of them came in in the private yacht of a novelist, Erskine Childers. And they also got ready for war. And so it seemed in the summer of, early summer of 1914, it seemed highly probable that civil war was going to break out inside Ireland between the supporters and the opponents of the Home Rule legislation. By then, Irish nationalism had become associated with the revival of cultural nationalism and a Gaelic language revival. This is what the historian Simon Sharma says about it. Its literary and political leaders, such as Padraic Pierce, developed a cult of peasant mysticism that was deliberately meant to move as far away as possible from the polite, reasonable, my dear chap-ishness of liberalism. Along with it, much less happily, went the development of a cult of violence and blood sacrifice that would achieve its mythic consummation in the Easter Rising of 1916. Irish history is very, very complicated. When the First World War began, large numbers from both sides, Catholics and Protestants, did fight for Britain in the First World War. The place was riven with conflicting loyalties. And when it came to this great conflict, even many supporters of Home Rule did think it was appropriate to volunteer for the British forces to fight against Germany. The leader of the Home Rule Party, John Redmond, supported it strongly, and his son was killed in the war. The Home Rule Party were were mod procedural moderates who believed that Home Rule was going to be achieved by orderly parliamentary means. And it did look as though they were standing right on the brink of, of bringing to pass their objective. The UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force men, virtually all went to the Western Front. After all, they were passionate loyalists for Britain and for the Empire. And many of them died there. Their display of loyalty to the British Empire was repaid after the war by ensuring that whatever happened to the south of Ireland, Ulster would remain part of the United Kingdom. The Dublin Uprising of Easter 1916 failed to spark a general rebellion, but British persecution of its survivors led to a great shift in popular opinion. Now, the Irish Republican Brotherhood hoped to exploit Britain's wartime vulnerability. And some of its leaders had faith in the symbolic value even of a spectacular defeat. The IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, were on the what we might call the extreme left of the, of the Home Rule movement. They completely rejected the belief that sooner or later parliamentary procedure would bring it about. Here's Padraic Pearce, who I quoted earlier on the importance of a, a new feeling of, of Irish Gaelic nationalism. Pearce said... Bloodshed is a cleansing and sanctifying thing. Life springs from death, and from the graves of patriotic men and women spring living nations. Also active in the leadership were James Connolly, a Marxist, but also an Irish nationalist. 
and Michael Collins, one of the sinister masterminds of 20th century urban guerrilla warfare. Now, the planning, uh, the, the planning for the Dublin Uprising by the IRB was confused. Among other things, it led to the arrest of Roger Casement as he landed from a German submarine. He's one of the fascinating figures of the Irish nationalist story, Roger Casement. Like Isaac Butt and like Charles Stuart Parnell, two of the earlier leaders of the Irish Home Rule movement, he was actually a Protestant who dedicated himself and identified with the Catholic cause. He'd become convinced of the rightness of it. And he'd acted on his beliefs by going to Berlin, the enemy capital, to seek German help for an Irish uprising. You can imagine that from the German point of view, and a big uprising in Ireland, sort of behind Britain's back, would be highly desirable when uh, Germany was hard-pressed by British and French armies on the Western Front. Roger Casement himself had first become famous for describing to British audiences the horrifying conditions in the Belgian Congo. He'd been one of the, the journalists who'd witnessed horrifying scenes of exploitation and slavery and, and torture in the, in the Belgian colony of the Congo. So he was well known in Britain, but now was, had become an Irish revolutionary. Well, during the First World War, Britain had excellent espionage services. British intelligence learned that Casement was in Germany, negotiating for aid, and that a submarine was going to bring him back to Ireland, and that another shipment of guns was coming in. The Royal Navy moved to intercept the gun, the gu the gun smuggling ship, and the captain, rather than let his, his ship and its cargo be captured, scuttled it rather than be caught. And Casement himself was arrested. So this part of the rebellion fizzled even before it started. Nevertheless, the rising began on Easter Monday. And the rebels, about 1,600 of them, men and women, occupied the general post office and other strategic points, mainly public buildings, in the centre of Dublin. British troops attacked the post office and in the space of a week bombarded it into rubble, forcing the survivors to surrender. A Royal Navy gunboat on the River Liffey, the Helga, pounded the building and demolished much of, cent of central Dublin uh, in doing so. Eamon de Valera, who was later to be the first president of Ireland, led a skilful attack on British reinforcements just after they landed in Kingstown, killing and wounding over 200 of them. In parts of the countryside, too, detachments of volunteers harassed the police and the army. The five-hour Battle of Ashbourne led to the surrender of 40 policemen after eight of them had been killed in an ambush and gun battle. But it's important to emphasise that at this point, the, the work of the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, was that of a tiny minority. Most Irish Catholics were sceptical or even dismayed seeing the uprising as a stab in the back to Redmond and the respectable parliamentary idea of home rule. And of course, if most of the, uh, the Irish nationalists were surprised, the Unionists and the Ulster men were absolutely furious and, and disoriented by it. Here's the historian uh, J James Morris. He says, It rankled with the English and disturbed them that the most persistent threat to their omnipotence should come from this sister isle whose people were not even black, brown or yellow, nor even exactly pagan. That they should have chosen to rebel at the very moment of England's greatest peril made their attitudes more disquieting still, for it demonstrated, even to the most unimaginative English mind, that the deepest Irish loyalties were altogether alien to their own. 
The survivors of the post office were then put on trial for treason. Treason in wartime. And then several of them were shot by firing squad in May 1916. Fifteen of them. The British commander on the spot, General Maxwell, an unimaginative but efficient commander, saw the whole issue as a perfectly simple one. Treason. He failed to appreciate that there was a lot to be said for the idea of simply interning the, the survivors of the Dublin Uprising. At the time, the First World War was going very badly. Uh, and it was surely unwise to create, or, or to, to create the possibility of, of making new martyrs to the cause of Irish independence. On the other hand, it is true that General Maxwell was under intense pressure from the Ulster Unionists to execute more of the survivors. Among the survivors uh, of, the, of the Dublin fighting were Padraig Pearce himself and Connolly. They were both shot at Kilmainham Jail. Connolly himself had been badly wounded during the fighting and had to be taken from his hospital bed by stretcher and then propped up in a chair before the firing squad. Another of those shot after the fact was John McBride, who'd led a volunteer Irish brigade against the British during the Boer War with, a, with the membership of some Irish Americans. Uh, again, a scattered, um, an early example of, of taking up arms directly against the British Empire. Now, what then happened in the, in, between 1916 and 1918 is that Irishmen who had not risen at Easter, in other words, there hadn't been a sympathetic mass uprising in the Catholic countryside as the IRB had hoped. Irishmen who had not risen at Easter now came to regard them as martyrs. And it's possible to give a, a close analogy from American history. At the time when John Brown made the raid on Harper's Ferry, his raid soon fizzled out and he was captured, put on trial and then hanged. At the time of the raid, most Americans, even in the North, had condemned him. But he comported himself so well between then and his hanging that finally he came to be regarded as a martyr and had the effect of intensifying uh, pro-abolitionist and anti-Southern feeling. And exactly the same kind of thing happened now in Ireland. All sorts of Irish people who hadn't joined the rebellion began to wonder whether perhaps they ought to have done. Uh, here's the, uh, the commentary of Robert Key, a historian of Irish nationalism. He writes, Ineffectual as it had been in terms of military achievement, the Rising had brought about the only serious and disciplined fighting that had ever been conducted by Irishmen in single-minded pursuit of the aim of a totally independent Irish Republic. Something quite new had happened in Irish history. The centre of Dublin lay in ruins to prove it. Although the rebellion had come as a shattering surprise to 99% of Irishmen of all classes and political beliefs, being unexpected even by most of those who carried it out, such an event could not leave any nationally-minded Irishman's attitude to events in the future unaffected. The British ambassador in Washington cabled from America that American public opinion, which had been against the rising, had veered sharply with the executions and now was becoming increasingly sympathetic to the Republican position. These were the circumstances in which British authority in Southern Ireland gradually weakened as the First World War went on. And in the end, by the, by the last years of the war, the British government didn't try to enforce its conscription statute in 1918. In other words, everyone living inside the United Kingdom was vulnerable to conscription but the British government decided it was too risky to try to enforce conscription among the Catholics of Southern Ireland. 
They feared the, com the complete breakdown of their authority if they tried to seize men for military, for military service in the trenches. And of course, the fact that the Irish Republican Brotherhood was against conscription understandably made it popular among, among young men who might otherwise have had to go off and uh, almost certainly die or be mutilated in the trenches of the First World War. Some survivors of the uprising who'd been deported to England without trial were released in 1917 uh, and the motive there was to appease American public opinion. And there was first there were, there were the shootings of some of the ringleaders. Then there was the uh, unfavorable public reaction uh, in Ireland and abroad. And then the British begin to try to mollify American opinion. This was because in the early months of 1917, the British government was desperately hoping that the Americans would join in the First World War. And one of the ways of doing that was to show clemency to the surviving Irish rebels. 560 of them were released. And they were the men who'd become the, the leaders of the Irish War of Independence. They included Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera. Collins had been in the post office in Dublin and had been dismayed at the romanticism and the lack of organisation among the revolutionaries. He was to become the toughest of all the Irish guerrilla fighters in the coming years. At the British general election of 1918, when the, war, when the First World War ended, the Home Rule Party shrank to insignificance, while, it's, while the political party of the IRB, Sinn Féin, rose to a new significance. Its members were pledged never to sit in the Westminster Parliament. Whereas Home Rule had the Home Rule Party had dedicated itself to work in Parliament, Sinn Féin said, we'll never sit in the Westminster Parliament. So even though they're um, standing for election to seats in that Parliament, they're doing so as a way of expressing their, their rejection of it. 76 of them won, and 47 of them were currently in jail. In other words, what had happened between 1916 and 1918 was the disappearance of the moderates, the disappearance of the political middle. Having deferred home rule within the empire for so long, nearly all the Irish had abandoned the idea and come to favour complete independence instead. Sinn Féin, with its promise of independence, was encouraged by the Americans' role in the First World War, because America did enter the war in the spring of 1917. Woodrow Wilson, in the 14 points, specified democratic self-determination for small nations. And Wilson expressed his reluctance to help shore up the British Empire. So Sinn Féin was able to appeal to Woodrow Wilson's rhetoric and to the principles he espoused at the opening of the negotiations at the Treaty of Versailles. You can see here how already American opinion, especially in America, which has got a large Irish-American population, has become a very significant factor in the way in which the, uh, the situation developed. The Irish War of Independence, a civil and guerrilla conflict, took place amid scenes of extreme brutality. And its ending sparked an even more savage conflict among the victors over whether Ireland could be partitioned. Sinn Féin created a government and a parliament of its own under the leadership of Eamon de Valera, and it outlawed British authority in 1919. De Valera himself, uh, a fascinating person, he'd been born in New York uh, of a Spanish father, hence his name, and an Irish mother. He was one of the commanders in the Easter Rising. He'd been sentenced to death, then his, life sen then his death sentence had been commuted to 20 years imprisonment, and then he'd been released as a goodwill gesture by Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, during negotiations over the future of Ireland. The fact that De Valera was um, 
his death sentence was commuted and that then he was released is itself a sign of how much less ruthless than many other 19th and 20th century regimes the British were. They never persecuted to death many of the, the principal leaders of opposition movements to themselves. We'll see that a bit later in the course with Gandhi, who's another good example. The new Irish government created the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. And de Valera, understanding the importance of American uh, sympathies, toured the United States in 1919 and 1920. He was greeted as a liberator and as a national hero by Irish Americans and raised $5 million to help the cause. But the reality of this war was mainly a question of mutual intimidation. The IRA assassinated all Irish policemen, whether they were on or off duty. There was also a very high degree of intimidation of citizens who were reluctant to take sides. Michael Collins, the IRA commander, worked out some of the deadliest and most frightening ways to intimidate um, Irish people into support for Sinn Féin and to undermine British order. But of course, if you're a guerrilla leader, you've got, you're, you're always on a tightrope. On the one hand, you've got to be as ruthless as possible against the, against the enemy and against possible enemy sympathisers. But at the same time, you've got to be very careful not to forfeit the people's sympathies, which are essential because a guerrilla force can only survive if it can blend into the civilian population out of which it's operating. And Collins proved extremely effective in both these respects. The British government responded by recruiting ex-army men, that is survivors of the First World War, who'd come back from the trenches, uh, and put them into service to oppose the IRA. The Irish nicknamed, nicknamed them the Black and Tans. They victimised innocents in retaliation for IRA attacks on the army and the police. For example, in November 1920, the IRA shot 11 unarmed policemen. The Black and Tans responded by going to a soccer match and firing indiscriminately into the crowd, creating a panic which led to a stampede and 12 more fatalities. But actions like this were disastrous public relations for Britain, and it, both in Britain itself and in the colonies and in the United States, where increasingly the, the sentiments of um, Irish sympathisers were motivated. The IRA understood that although it couldn't win an actual military victory, it could perhaps outlast the British. It could cause them to want to withdraw by embarrassing them in the eyes of the rest of the world. And gradually that is what happened, leading to the calling of a truce in the summer of 1921 and the beginning of negotiations. So in this sense, the Irish Revolution is very unlike the American Revolution. There never was a, a military catastrophe for the British. There was no Battle of Saratoga and no Battle of Yorktown, because the IRA was never a field army in the way that George Washington's Continental Army had been. The Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921 ratified by the Irish Parliament early in 1922, gave Southern Ireland self-government as the Irish Free State. But it preserved Ulster, the six counties of Ulster, inside the United Kingdom. Sinn Féin had made no headway at all in Northern Ireland, whose people, whose major the majority of whose people were as determined as ever to remain as parts of the United Kingdom. Unionist diehards like Winston Churchill were horrified at giving away part of the empire so close to its centre. And historians continue to debate the merits of the treaty right up to the present, whether the British um, might have resumed full-scale fighting if the Irish delegation had not accepted the terms offered. Uh, it, was, it was controversial at the time, and it's remained so ever since. 
in, in the Republican, on the Republican side, there were anti-partition diehards who didn't want to accept the principle of partition. And they then fought against the pragmatists for the next year. That is, the pragmatists who had accepted the idea of partition, and, but ultimately lost. Several people seem to have accepted the opposite path than their lives up to that point would have suggested. For example, de Valera uh, fought against partition and Collins in favour, even though until that time uh, each man had appeared to embody the opposite political temperament. However, Irish independence, fully achieved by 1922, is a persuasive point at which to date the beginning of the end of the British Empire. Lecture 26, Cricket and the British Empire. Cricket became the sport of the entire British Empire. Its origins are lost in the Middle Ages. But by the 18th century, a game quite similar to the one played today was already popular in England. In the 19th century, colonising soldiers and administrators took it with them to India, Australia, New Zealand, the West Indies and South Africa, all of which became enthusiasts for the sport. In fact, one of the easiest ways to find out today whether a country was once part of the British Empire is to see whether its people played cricket. If they do, it was. Cricket taught British ideals of gentlemanliness to colonial people and introduced an elaborate etiquette in addition to the formal rules. When colonies began to struggle for independence, they often used cricket analogies to point out to Britain when it resisted them, uh, when Britain wasn't living up to its own ideals of fair play. The expression, that's just not cricket, was once a fairly serious condemnation of someone else's conduct. Now, anyone who loves baseball will love cricket too, but it won't be love at first sight. In fact, Americans watching cricket seem, seem to regard it as almost unbelievably perverse. But of course, conversely, uh, cricket fans watching baseball can't understand why the Americans do everything wrong. So they're actually very similar games, but at first glance they seem to be very different ones. Let me just spend a minute explaining some of the characteristics of cricket. But emphasising that beneath the superficial differences, they're the same in this sense. They're both bat and ball games in which one man throws a ball and another one hits it and then they run. They're games which require split-second timing, and they're games in which there, there are bursts of action, followed by long periods of standing around, apparently not doing very much. Now, the very first thing which strikes American audiences as extremely strange is the fact that the batsman, the man, the, what in America is called the batter, and in England is called the batsman, stands in the middle of the field, and that he can hit in any direction. He can hit in a 360-degree radius around himself, rather than having to hit into a fair zone of just 90 degrees. See, it seems very odd to British people that the Americans stand in the corner and have to hit out of the corner. Whereas the baseball batter defends home plate, the batsman in cricket defends three wickets. These are vertical posts stuck in the ground with two very small pieces of wood called the bales placed across them. Whereas in baseball, the pitcher has to do his wind-up on the mound, standing still. In cricket, the bowler, which is his equivalent, is allowed to run up to, get, to gather some momentum before he bowls. 
But then, when he actually delivers the ball, his, his elbow mustn't bend. It's got to be delivered with a stiff arm. And it's, it's delivered by an over-the-shoulder delivery with an unbroken elbow. Different also is the fact that in cricket, the batsman hits the ball as it rises after one bounce, rather than hitting it on the volley, as is the case in baseball. In cricket, the fielders do not wear gloves, and they expect a catch to hurt. The only exception there is the man called the wicketkeeper, who's the equivalent of the baseball catcher, who does wear gloves and protective gear. Now, another thing that strikes American audiences as very strange is that when the batsman hits the ball, he doesn't have to run if he doesn't want to. Uh, in, obviously, in, in baseball, if you hit the ball fair, you've got to go. I remember the very first time I played baseball, I simply didn't bother running because I didn't think I'd hit it far enough. And of course, in, in circumstances like that, you're out very quickly. But in cricket, you make a judgment. If you think you can reach the, uh, the, the other wicket, which is 22 yards away, safely, you do run. Otherwise, you can decide not to and just wait for the next ball. And that means, of course, that your at-bat, your innings, lasts a lot longer. Now, cricket has just two innings in a, in a game, whereas baseball has nine. Each innings requires ten outs rather than three. And an innings can sometimes last for more than a whole day. Incidentally, the word is innings rather than inning. Innings is a, is a singular word which ends in an S. And innings can last more than a day. And the length of the games themselves suggest that Britain was a society in which leisure enjoyed higher status than work. International games uh, still today last five days, six hours a day for five days. Now, one of the things which is also puzzling as we look back into the history of cricket is this, that it was more prestigious to play as an amateur than as a professional. We regard that, I mean, in the United States, the word professional is meant to, con to confer praise. If you do a, a very good job of something, you say, that's a thoroughly professional job. Whereas if you do it not quite so well, you might say, mm, that's rather amateurish. You know, in Britain, the, the valence of those words is exactly inverted. The great thing is to be an amateur, to do something from the love of it. A, a, a wonderful amateur, that's good. Whereas to do something professional gives it the tinge of having been done for, for mercenary motives, for money. And the idea that you're doing anything for money is itself a, a source of its diminished prestige. Cricket provides lovely examples of that idea in practice. Well, incidentally, that idea explains why Britain doesn't do particularly well in the Olympic Games and rarely wins, because it's much more dedicated to the amateur tradition than, than the nations which compete most vigorously. The British equivalent of the All-Star Game, the cricket equivalent, is a game called the Gentlemen versus the Players. And this was played every year from 1806 right through till 1963. And the idea was that the, rather than having a team from the National League and a team from the American League, you have um, a team made up entirely of players who don't get paid, the gentlemen, and then a team made up of players who were paid, the players, so-called. In other words, there were people who were extremely good, good cricketers but couldn't afford not to be paid. They weren't gentlemen with independent incomes, so they were paid for playing, but their status was distinctly lower. And there were two dressing rooms... Uh, in, in many uh, first-class teams, one for the gentlemen and one for the players. The idea was they ought not to mix because their social status was so different. Professional always implies a slight grubbiness and the possibility of a mercenary motive.
Well, the best player in British history was W.G. Grace, who lived from 1848 to 1915. And he played at the first class level from the age of 14 right through to the age of 60 and was never paid for it. And was very proud of the fact that he was never paid for it. His cousin, W.R. Gilbert, also a gentleman player, was impoverished. He could, he could have turned professional and been paid for it, but he thought it would dishonour him. Instead, he stole money surreptitiously from other players' clothes in the, rock, in the locker room. A detective was placed to find out who was the thief, and Gilbert was caught. Then his family ordered him to give up cricket and emigrate to the colonies, which he did, in exchange for them hushing up the scandal. He spent the rest of his life in Alberta and died in Calgary in Canada in 1924. And this story about cricket and shame and professionalism wasn't even discovered and published until 1970. The fact that he was willing to steal rather than be paid for doing something he was very good at shows how powerful this uh, impulse could be. Now, cricket was a game which crossed all social class boundaries, unlike most other sports, which tended to be very class-specific. There were some sports which were strictly those of the upper classes, fox hunting and grouse shooting. Croquet, these are strictly upper class games. On the other hand, soccer was distinctly a working class game. I was very surprised when I came to live in America to find that soccer here has a sort of middle class feeling and is played equally by girls and boys. That's very much not the case in Britain where it's a working class boys game. A little bit later, tennis and golf were also upper class sports partly because they need manicured lawns and lots of space to be played. But the thing about cricket, like soccer, is that you can play it in the street. All you need is a bat and ball and everything else can be improvised. You make up local rules depending on the circumstances in which you're playing. And generations of kids grow up playing street cricket, again including me. What about the history of the game and its development? There are scattered court case, evidence in court cases from before 1600 showing that in its early days it was often very rough and great crowds joined in the playing of the game. During the Puritan Interregnum, after the execution of King Charles I in 1649, when Oliver Cromwell was the Lord Protector, there was an attempt by Puritan parliamentarians to ban the game altogether, particularly because it was usually played on Sundays and they were trying to enforce uh, Sabbatarianism, the uh, observation of religion only on Sundays, but they had no luck. In 1748, the Court of King's Bench declared that the game itself was definitely not illegal. In other words, the fact that they had to adjudicate that was itself a sign that it tended to be the occasion of rioting and, and still had something of a, a stigma. But in 1751, Frederick, the Prince of Wales, was hit on the head by a cricket ball during a game and he died from the injury. That's why George III became king, with huge consequences for America and indeed for the British Empire itself. By the mid, mid and late 1700s, people played cricket across the social classes and it was one of few games in which that was true. George Trevelyan, who was England's first great social historian, uh, saw, saw cricket as a source of social stability. And he wrote in the 1890s that, quote, If the French nobility had been capable of playing cricket with their peasants, their chateau would never have been burned. In other words, he thinks this is a, a game which cements interclass connections. A surprising variety of well-known Britons played cricket very well, including Arthur Conan Doyle, the, founder of the, uh, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, and J.M. Barry, the man who created Peter Pan. Conan Doyle played for England in the 1890s. Now, moving to the Empire, playing cricket was one of the ways that settlers in the white colonies could recreate some of the familiarity of home. 
Whereas in the non-white colonies, it gave the indigenous people the chance to show how British they were or were capable of becoming. The Australians, for example, became very fierce and capable players and remain so right up to the present. Teams from England and Australia compete for a trophy called the Ashes, but puzzlingly, even when the Australians win, the trophy never actually leaves England. The very first series between the two nations was in 1876, and at first England used, would win comfortably. But England lost for the first time in 1882. They were too complacent and the Australians surprised them. A story in a newspaper called the Sporting Times joked, English cricket died yesterday and was deeply lamented by a large circle of sorrowing friends and acquaintances. The body will be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. It was a joke, but a group of Australian ladies picked up the joke and they burned the bales from the last game, that is the little pieces of wood which go across the top of the wickets, and then they put the ashes in an urn. And the urn's still there, it's bolted to a table at the Imperial War Memorial Gallery at Lords, and Lords is the name of the cricket ground, uh, which is the sort of symbolic home of British or of worldwide cricket. A breach of etiquette by a visiting England team in 1932-3 caused an Anglo-Australian diplomatic incident. The captain of the England team, Douglas Jardine, encouraged bouncers. This was called bodyline bowling. You can imagine, as the, because in cricket you hit a ball as it rises off the bounce, if the ball deliberately makes it bounce a little bit earlier, it arrives just about at head height of the batsman, and it's very, very intimidating to face, because the ball can often be coming at you at nearly 100 miles an hour. So if it's coming at your head at that speed, it's clearly very dangerous and intimidating, and it was meant to be. The Australians had a superstar player called Donald Bradman, and bodyline bowling was developed as a way of attempting to intimidate Bradman. The Australian Board of Control sent a cable to the MCC, the Metropolitan Cricket Club, which is, the, again, the world headquarters of cricket officially accusing England of unsportsmanlike conduct. The MCC vehemently denied it, and the argument continues up to the present. Uh, cricket enthusiasts, like baseball enthusiasts, get desperately earnest about questions like this. Generations of Australians idolised this man, Donald Bradman. He, was, um, he lived from 1908 to 2001, and so he was at the height of his powers in the 1920s and 30s. And he was as dominant in, critic, uh, in cricket as somebody like Wayne Gretzky was in ice hockey, seemingly an entire level above every other player of his day. This is the Australian writer Philip Lindsay, who wrote a book about him, and the link he felt with Bradman when he, a poor Australian writer, was, was trying to make his living in London, a hungry, aspiring author. And uh, Lindsay writes that during those months of misery, I did not lose faith in myself and abandon all hope of success by writing. I must thank Don Bradman. That I never made that final desperate choice between hunger and ambition and pawn my typewriter, as often the devil gnawing in my empty belly prompted me to pawn it, I must thank Don Bradman. He helped to keep my faith alight. And this association of myself with him, as nearly of an age and of the same country, made me feel somehow that I must not let him down as he had not let me down. Uh, an inspiring figure to an Australian living abroad. The West Indians also learned to play expertly. The first uh, visiting British team in 1895 was defeated by Trinidad. When the West Indies toured England, they took a racially balanced black and white team with them. But uh, the, the black players on the West Indies teams had to learn how to play wearing shoes. Most of them came from very, very poor circumstances and had played barefoot in, in, in Jamaica and Trinidad. 
uh, a black bowler, a man named Woods, begged his captain, a white man, to let him take off his shoes when England was batting strongly, because he said he could bowl much better if he wasn't wearing his shoes. You can imagine how strange it must have been to someone who wasn't used to, to wearing them. But the captain stiffly refused this request and said it was much better to suffer, the dis to suffer defeat than the dishonour which, which playing without shoes would create. There wasn't a rule against it, but there was an etiquette which had to be observed. The West Indian Marxist revolutionary C.L.R. James was also a cricket journalist and an excellent player. His autobiography, called Beyond a Boundary, is probably one of the, well, is certainly one of the best cricket books ever written. And he describes how in Trinidad, growing up, there was a hierarchy of cricket teams correlated to skin colour. He says, Here began my personal calvary. Which team to join? The British tradition soaked deep into me was that when you entered the sporting arena, you left behind you the sordid compromises of everyday existence. Yet for us to do that, we would have had to divest ourselves of our skins. And he talks about the gradations of racial distinction inside Trinidad cricket teams. He goes on to say that he first learned about the injustice of imperialism by loving and playing and studying cricket itself. His writing about the bodyline bowling crisis of the 1930s compares the England team with imperialism at its most unscrupulous and even makes comparisons with totalitarianism then rising in Europe. That again gives you an example of how seriously people take the analogy. Uh, it's entirely appropriate in their view to make analogies between cricket and high politics. Indian princes saw analogues to the, to the warrior virtues in the game. Now, one of the very, another of the very greatest cricket players was an Indian prince, His Highness Kumar Shri Sir Ranjit Singhji Vibhaji, who lived from 1872 to 1933. He was the prince of Nwanagar, a very near contemporary of, of Gandhi. He was three years younger than Gandhi, and like him, came from the province of Gujarat. Also like Gandhi, he was physically delicate, but in fact was a superb cricketer. His name means the lion that conquers in battle. He was sent by his parents to be educated at Cambridge University in England. The university team snubbed him at first for racist reasons, but when they finally gave him a chance, he played so well that the county of Sussex recruited him and he played for 10 years in the English County Championship. The County Championship is the cricket equivalent of Major League Baseball. Then he was recruited by the England team, being the first Asian ever to play for them. And in one match, in one innings against Australia in 1895, he scored 175 runs, which was then a record in an international match. He became the Prince of Nwanagar in 1907. And unlike Gandhi, he was very, very pro-British Empire. He volunteered to fight on the Western Front in World War I, even though by then he'd passed his 40th birthday. Listen to the... The, the critic Neville Cardus writing about him in the English newspaper The Guardian. He says, Ranji was unique, not biologically accountable. He was a case of complete and magical divergence from type. A strange light from the east flickered in the English sunshine when he was at the wicket. When he turned approved science upside down and changed the geometry of batsmanship to an esoteric ledger domain, we were bewitched to the realms of the rope dancers and snake charmers. This was cricket of an oriental sorcery, glowing with a dark beauty of its own. It was like a shooting star, all wrong in our astronomy, but right and splendid in some other and more dazzling stellar universe. 
Well, he pioneered playing shots off the back foot. That is, uh, hitting while his weight was on his back foot itself very unorthodox in his day. Another cricket writer, Ted Wainwright, wrote, he never played a Christian stroke in his life. It's idea that cricket's somehow intrinsically Christian. Now, different aspects of the game correspond to different attributes of the Hindu caste system. Listen now, if you will, to the, the writer Ashis Nandi, who says, To the Brahmin, the posture of moral superiority and self-control of the gentleman cricketer was bound to be attractive. The Kshatriyas and Kshatriya-like groups found him attractive for his defiance of fate, his emphasis on style and honour. Both appreciated the gentleman cricketer's emphasis on rituals or forms over substance, and his overt defiance of the professional cricketer's profit motive and performance principle, which were associated not only with the Barney and some of the low cultures of India, but also with the colonial rulers. This was the first sense in which cricket was a criticism of colonialism. It allowed Indians to assess their colonial rulers by Western values reflected in the official philosophy of cricket and to find the rulers wanting. In other words, if money-making is a little bit contemptible, why is it that the British Empire is clearly dedicated to making money? That is itself a discredit to the empire, and cricket's the medium through which that message becomes clear. Now, the English public schools, which is to say the private schools, regarded cricket as the ideal preparation for imperial service. In the late 18 and early 1900s, games, much more than academic achievement, conferred status. This is still true to a large extent at private schools in, in both countries, in Britain and America, but it was perhaps never truer than between 1850 and 1950. The great reformer of rugby school, Dr. Thomas Arnold, ad ad adapted the game because he believed it was ideal for teaching the character of Christian gentlemen to the young boys at school. It encouraged cooperation, teamwork, courage and self-discipline and blended the opportunities for individual distinction with self-subordination to the rules and to the etiquette. And he's fictionalised in a famous book, Thomas Hughes' novel, Tom Brown's School Days, that was published in 1857. The climax of the book is itself a cricket match. But the passage in the game, the passage about the game in the book, emphasises Tom's leadership as captain more than his actual performance as a batsman or a bowler. He's recognised as the hero of the game, even though his school team loses. And his teammates then raise him to their shoulders and sing, for he's a jolly good fellow. And while he's waiting to go into bat, he's also discussing Greek with one of his teachers. It's a, it's a highly stylized rendering of ideas about what uh, the good schoolboy should be like as he matures into a, 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 a Christian gentleman who can go out to run the empire. There's another lovely example in the memoirs of Leonard Wolfe, the man who later on became the husband of Virginia Wolfe and one of the leaders of the Bloomsbury group. He was Jewish, but he enjoyed high status at school because of his skill as a cricketer. It offset the potential victimisation he might otherwise have suffered as a Jew. And in volume one of his, his superb autobiography, he describes the absolute seriousness with which his school took cricket. He says, I learned the seriousness of games, the importance of style, the duty when you go into bat of making every stroke with a concentration which an artist puts in every stroke of his brush in painting a masterpiece. But he says that the other side of this lesson was also learning to take all other lessons not seriously. He says he was absolutely amazed when he went up to Cambridge University 
to find people with genuine intellectual interests who were not ashamed of the fact. Because at his school, you had to keep intellectual interests to yourself, where only sports mattered. Army officers and colonial administrators explained their duties with the help of cricket metaphors. And again, just as in American language today, sporting metaphors saturate conversation, so did cricket metaphors, particularly in British life. Let me read you now a poem called Vita Lampada by Henry Newbolt, written in 1898. Because this, is, this makes a systematic comparison of the crisis of a cricket match with the crisis of an imperial battle in the empire. Uh, and uh, he talks about a game in the close. The, the close is the area of the school field dedicated to playing cricket. And the poem goes like this. There's a breathless hush in the close tonight. Ten to make and the match to win. A bumping pitch and a blinding light. An hour to play and the last man in. And it's not for the sake of a ribboned coat or the selfish hope of a season's fame. But his captain's hand on his shoulder smote. Play up! Play up and play the game. The sand of the desert is sodden red, red with the wreck of a square that broke. The gatlings jammed and the colonel dead, and the regiment blind with dust and smoke. The river of death has brimmed his banks, and England's far, and honour a name. But the voice of a schoolboy rallies the ranks. Play up, play up and play the game. This is the word that, year by year, while in her place the school is set, Every one of her sons must hear, and none that hears it dare forget. This they all with a joyful mind bear through life like a torch in flame, and, falling, fling to the host behind, play up, play up, and play the game. Well, a very a, extremely popular poem and a very explicit linking of the, uh, the way in which you've got to play the game by helping your school team out when necessary, and you've got to keep calm in colonial battles when you're, the, 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 the square of your soldiers has broken and, and there's the danger of a military catastrophe. In the British Empire, ad hoc cricket matches consoled English garrisons all over the world. Robert Graves wrote a wonderful World War I book called Goodbye to All That, a great classic about his service in the trenches. And here's a little fragment from it. June the 24th, 1915. This afternoon we had a cricket match, officers versus sergeants, in an enclosure between some houses, out of observation from the enemy. Our front line is perhaps three quarters of a mile away. I made top score, 24. The bat was a bit of rafter from a shelled house. The ball, a piece of rag tied round with string. And the wicket, a parrot cage with the clean, dry corpse of a parrot inside. It had evidently died of starvation when the French evacuated the town. Machine gun fire broke up the match. There are dozens of uh, episodes in memoirs of the First World War of soldiers, as soon as they get far enough behind the front line and can climb out of the trenches, are once beginning to play cricket. However, it's also true that a subversive anti-cricket literature developed in the late 19th and early 20th century from people who disliked the game. And again, some prominent names are associated with the disliking of cricket. Rudyard Kipling is one of the most prominent. His novel, um, Storky and Co., uh, written in 1899, makes imperial heroes out of the boys who were bad at games. Now, Kipling, Kipling himself was nearsighted and wore thick spectacle lenses. He was bad at cricket, and he was resentful of the way that status revolved around sports. In his story, the boys who laugh at the etiquette and enjoy rambling around the neighbourhood and 
going out of bounds when they should be on the cricket field, they become much more effective soldiers than those who played cricket by the rules and were unimaginative. The book ends on the northwest frontier of India, where Storky's unconventional action saves the regiment. So he makes the opposite point from Newbolt's Vita Lampada at almost the same moment. The book came out just one year later. Even more effective, I think, is a brilliant passage by C.S. Lewis in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Um, he, found, he says that he found school cricket matches much worse than service in the trenches of the First World War. Now, there's a strong tradition in British literature that the most horrible thing that ever happened was the First World War, and that, that, that there's never been a place of more concentrated futility, misery, and horror than the trenches of the war, where, it's true, literally hundreds of thousands of English men died prematurely. And so what C.S. Lewis does is pick up that literary convention and compare it with the convention of, of healthy, manly sports in schools, which normally has a very, very positive connotation, but he inverts the two. And he says school was so horrible because of cricket that by comparison it was a, it was a relative sense of relief to go off to fight in the trenches instead. He writes, Straight tribulation is easier to bear than tribulation that advertises itself as pleasure. The one breeds camaraderie, and even, when intense, a kind of love between fellow sufferers. The other, mutual distrust, cynicism, concealed and fretting resentment. Well, the use of cricket to explain other areas of British life has persisted throughout the 20th century, as has the game itself. It's certainly as strong now in the early 21st century as ever before, and perhaps has never enjoyed such popularity as it does today. And again, and, and throughout the 20th century, it continued to be associated with political crises. For example, um, the growing dissatisfaction with South Africa for its maintenance of an apartheid regime led to a boycott of the South African cricket teams. They weren't allowed to compete internationally so long as apartheid persisted. And it was with a, a sense of great celebration after the election of, of Nelson Mandela in 1994 that the South Africans could once again come back onto the international cricket scene. There's been a great controversy in recent years about whether the team should play in different colours. Traditionally, everybody plays in white. It's quite clear from what you're doing which team you belong to. You don't need the separation of colours. But gradually, coloured uniforms have been introduced in place of what used to be called whites. There's the question now of advertising on clothes as well, whereas hard-pressed teams looking for revenue uh, succumb to the temptation of having advertising slogans on the players' clothes. Various new forms of the game have been introduced so that, for example, a, a game can be confined to the space of one afternoon and the game will encourage risk-taking and flashy batsmanship. There's the question of whether it's right to chant and cheer at matches. It's common in Pakistan and the West Indies, but it's very much frowned upon in the United Kingdom. These are the kinds of things that cricket fans continue to dispute right up to the present. And uh, there are purists who deplore every novelty, just as in America there are purists who who deplored the introduction of the designated hitter rule or the introduction of interleague play. But above all, especially for an American audience, I need to emphasize the absolute seriousness of cricket and the very central role it's played in the history of the British Empire. Lecture 27, British India Between the World Wars.
1920, most Indians were still poor illiterates who lived by farming. After the Amritsar massacre of 1919, Mohandas Gandhi, leader of the Indian National Congress, intensified his appeal for Swaraj, complete independence. In and out of prison during the 1920s and 30s, Gandhi was an expert in appealing to British principles and standards as a way of giving the British administrators guilty consciences. He, like most of the British-educated Indian elite, was horrified by recurrent sectarian violence in which Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs would massacre each other in response to rumours of religious insult. He wanted malcontents to focus their attention on expelling the British. But he also wanted them to confine themselves to using peaceful methods of satyagraha, soul force. He foresaw, accurately enough, that religious differences would impede the achievement of Indian unity. The British tiptoed cautiously towards Indian self-government, which they conceded in principle during the First World War. But in the meantime, they retained all the apparatus of repression. The Government of India Act of 1935 created a federation of Indian provinces, each with its own parliament. The predominantly Hindu Congress party won most of these elections, which intensified Muslims' fears that independence would leave them as a vulnerable, despised and persecuted minority. Mohammed Jinnah, leader of the Muslim League, resolved in the 1930s that if the British did quit India, Muslims should have a country of their own, Pakistan. Well, for nearly a century after, after the Indian mutiny of 1857, a handful of Britons continued to rule India. They were strenuously educated at Haileybury, the school in, in England dedicated to preparing the Indian uh, civil servants. And they were taught to be self-sacrificing and incorruptible. It was a highly competitive school and people very much wanted to have the opportunity to participate. They faced the very daunting challenge of the ICS exam, the Indian Civil Service exam. After the 1850s, it was meritocratic. You couldn't get in by your connections. You had to actually be good enough to do it by on your own merits. And just to give you an example, here are some um, sample examination questions which the students would have to answer. What experimental methods are applicable to the determination of the true antecedent in phenomena where there may be a plurality of causes? That's one. Another is classify fallacies. In other words, you had to be very, very good indeed at clear, methodical thinking and have a very broad width of knowledge to be able to pass the exams and get included in the Indian Civil Service. Now, Indians themselves were theoretically entitled to take the exam, but they had to go to England to take it, which meant, of course, that in practice only very, very wealthy ones, well-connected ones, could be able to do so. This was often true of the British Empire in, in India from the 1830s onwards. Theoretical in, in theoretical equality, but in practice still a very, very strict racial hierarchy. Young men from the, from the British middle classes who did get into the Indian civil service often exercised immense power, sometimes over literally millions of people. Rudyard Kipling, the Indian writer and journalist, regarded the ICS men as excellent fellows, and he describes the situation how, by about the year 1900, something like a thousand British district officers were responsible for the lives of 300 million Indians. The numerical disparity was immense. And here's what Kipling wrote about them. Year by year, England sends out fresh drafts for the fighting line, which is officially called the Indian Civil Service. 
These die or kill themselves by overwork or are worried to death or broken in health and hope in order that the land may be protected from death and sickness, famine and war and may eventually become capable of standing alone. It will never stand alone. But the idea is a pretty one and men are willing to die for it and yearly the work of pushing and coaxing and scolding and petting the country into good living goes forward. If an advance be made, all credit is given to the native, while the Englishmen stand back and wipe their foreheads. If a failure occurs, the Englishmen step forward and take the blame. In other words, they're almost too good to be true, as Kipling tells it, completely selfless and dedicated to the, the task of improving a country, which Kipling suggests is never going to be adequately improved. Leonard Wolfe was more sceptical, and he decided not to make the ICS his life's work. I mentioned Leonard Wolfe last time, the young English Jew who was a very good batsman and therefore enjoyed high status at his private school as a sportsman, and later on went into the civil service working in Ceylon off the southeastern shore of India. He also describes a very, very sharp racial separation and an awareness of the hierarchy in which he has a, a fixed position. He says of, of himself and people like him, We were all rather grand a good deal grander than we could have been at home in London or Edinburgh. We were grand because we were a ruling caste in a strange Asiatic country. I did not realise this at the time, though I felt something in the atmosphere, which to me was slightly strange and disconcerting. In Ceylon, we were always, subconsciously or consciously, playing a part, acting upon a stage. The stage, the scenery, the backcloth before which I began to gesticulate was imperialism. Well, in the end, he decided not to make this his life's work, went back to England, married Virginia Stephen, whom we remember as Virginia Woolf, and became the centre of the Bloomsbury Group, a literary intellectual uh, coterie in London. A tight hierarchy ruled British India. At the very top was the monarch. Benjamin Disraeli made Queen Victoria the Empress of India in 1876. Her cousin, the Kaiser, had become emperor of the newly unified Germany. And this was Disraeli's way of flattering the queen and enabling her to keep up by becoming an empress in her own right. The actual government of India took place jointly by the Secretary of State for India, who stayed in London, and the Viceroy, who went to India. And as you can imagine, once the, uh, the um, submarine cables were laid and it was possible to communicate communicate quickly between India and, and London, the, uh, the Secretary of State for India became relatively more important in decision-making, though the, vi the Viceroy remained an extremely uh, impressive and important post. About one-third of India was still run by the indigenous princes, the, the Maharajas. There were 562 of them, and they vied with one another to provide lavish entertainment to the visiting viceroys. They understood that their position was dependent on British goodwill and were eager to uh, oblige. The government itself spent five months in Calcutta, later the capital moved to Delhi, and then about seven months in Simla. This is up in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains and is now a favoured honeymoon place because of its numerous eccentric British palaces and because Simla's a great deal cooler than life down on the Indian plains. Simla was founded by a Scotsman and it looks weirdly British. It had to be approached on horseback or elephant until a railway was finally built there in the early 20th century. The architect Edward Lutyens wrote... If one was told that monkeys had built it, all one could say would be, what wonderful monkeys, they must be shot in case they do it again. Now the reason the government moved up to Simla was because of the intense heat of the Indian summer down in the plains. 
Here's a description of what that was like. Every door and window was shut, for the outside air was that of an oven. The atmosphere within was only 104 degrees, as the thermometer bore witness, and heavy with the foul smell of badly trimmed kerosene lamps. And this stench, combined with that of native tobacco, baked brick and dried earth, sends the heart of many a strong man down to his boots, for it is the smell of the great Indian Empire when she turns herself for six months into a house of torment. And as I mentioned earlier, in some of the battles for India, the soldiers have been burned by their own plate armour. It was so hot. Among the very grandest of the viceroys was Lord Curzon. He was a man who wanted to be best at everything, and certainly wanted to be Prime Minister, though in the end he never quite made it, though he got very, very close. He was raised in the English county of Derbyshire by, and, and raised by his family who hired a deranged governess. When he did badly in his lessons, she'd make him wear a dunce cap or a hat with the word liar written on it, and then she'd parade him through the village streets. So uh, that might have made him slightly odd right from the outset. But he was very, very competitive at Oxford, rose rapidly in national service, and was made viceroy before his 40th birthday, the fulfilment of one of his lifelong dreams. The Viceroy's mansion in Calcutta was an exact copy of his family's ancestral home, Kedleston Hall. The British in India specialised in big, grand architectural statements. And when Edward Lutyens, the man who I quoted there on Simla, Lutyens was commissioned to build New Delhi when the capital was moved to Delhi in 1911-1912. And he undertook the work between then and 1929. And it's one of the many great architectural monuments which made a kind of declaration in brick and stone that the British were here to stay, even though, ironically, they, they weren't. Lord Curzon maintained all 77 ranks in the Anglo-Indian hierarchy. He was himself very, very attuned to fine gradations of social difference. And he encouraged the vivid pageantry of the Durbars when the, all the princes would come together to pay homage to the empire and to himself as the representative of that empire. He favoured the native princes over the educated Indian middle classes, many of whom he despised. India industrialised only slowly, and it remained vulnerable to famine. In fact, the recurrent famines stand in stern judgement over Britain's failure to assure Indian welfare. As late as 1943-44, during the Second World War, there was a terrible famine in Bengal, where perhaps as many as three million Bengalis died of starvation. All the time, uh, from the Indian mutiny onwards, the question, well, the question lying behind all Indian affairs was this. Is India eventually going to become self-governing, or is it always going to be uh, dependent on British governors? The Congress movement was founded in 1885, and it began with the help of English sympathisers, people like Alan Octavian Hume and William Wedderburn, Englishmen who sympathised with the idea of Indian self-government. Uh, and at the original meeting in Bombay, Alan Octavian Hume played a very important role. He was one of these men who'd been educated at Haleybury and then had gone out to India and become an exemplary district officer in northwestern India. In his district, he introduced schools for poor Indian children. He paid for building a high school with his own money and he helped found a local newspaper. But he was fired by the British administration for his outspoken criticism of some of its administrative reforms in 1879. After that, he began to encourage Indian political organisation. And he was Congress's secretary for its first 20 years. In other words, even from the outset, it wasn't only an Indian initiative, but rather one of some of the Anglo-Indians. 
Hume was a wonderful eccentric. He was a leading ornithologist who made a vast collection of Indian bird species. He built himself a castle at Simla and created a vast museum inside it, but unfortunately lost half of it when a, a landslide carried away part of the house. He agreed to give the whole thing to the British Museum, so long as its chief bird curator came out to arrange shipment back to England, and so long as the curator's pay was then increased, in view of the fact that he'd now have a new burden of looking after all these new species. The museum said yes, and 82,000 of human specimens were carefully shipped back to the British Museum. Well, Congress, the Indian Congress, boycotted English cloth imports in 1905 to protest the partitioning of Bengal. And the next year, 1906, Congress for the first time voted in favour of the principle of self-government for India. Like most political movements inside the colonies, the movement itself uh, tended to split between moderates who favoured the idea of, of discussion and parliamentary procedure and, and orderly uh, debate on the one hand, and on the other hand, radicals who, if necessary, were willing to take violent direct action to stimulate changes. The leader of the radicals was Tilak. He split the organisation because the moderates favoured staying on good terms with the British rather than antagonising them with radical demands. And Tilak, a newspaper editor, was imprisoned for sedition between 1908 and 1914 for supporting the idea of violent acts against the British. But the most luminous figure in the movement, and the one who's certainly best remembered today, is unquestionably Mohandas Gandhi. Gandhi came from Gujarat. He'd been born in 1869. He came from the merchant class. In fact, the name means grocer. But his father was um, the prime minister to one of the local princes. And Gandhi said that his whole life was dedicated to the pursuit of truth. In fact, his autobiography is called The Story of My Experiments with Truth. There's a wonderful, uh, it's, well, it's full of wonderful um, stories, but one of the best, I think, is his description of how, as a child, um, he grew up as a, as a Hindu who was prohibited from eating meat. But when he's 12 or 13, one of his teenage friends says to him, I've got some meat, the meat of a goat. Let's sneak off and eat the meat and see what it tastes like. And uh, for him, it's a sort of, it starts out as, a, as a, a prank, you know, a dare to defy the parents by breaking a taboo. And he does eat the meat, but then he says that night he had horrifying dreams that the goat whose meat he had eaten had come back to life inside his stomach and was fighting to get out. And he gave him hysterical nightmares, after which he never again attempted to, uh, to go in this way. He was married at the age of 13 to a woman called Casturbai. And at first he says he was brutal towards her and lustful. Later on, when he was 37 years old, he gave up sex altogether. In fact, Gandhi thought that women were better than men because he believed that they didn't enjoy sex. Later on in life, he used to sleep with young women, but he said it was solely for warmth and as a test of his resolution. Um, psychobiographers have been very interested in several aspects of Gandhi's life, including this one. Early on, he became anglicised. He studied law in England and he passed the bar in London. He promised his mother that while he was in London he'd eat no meat, that he would drink no alcohol and that he wouldn't consort with women. He read a book called The Plea for Vegetarianism by Henry Salt and he was one of the founders of the Vegetarian League in London. Back in India, attempting to make his living as a, an attorney, he was paralysed and tongue-tied tongue when he went to court. He couldn't express himself properly. And it looked as though his career as a lawyer was going to be uh, completely unsuccessful. 
Sympathetic members of the family said, well, let's, let's try him in South Africa instead. And he spent um, many years, from 1893 to 1914, living in South Africa. Uh, at that time, a large um, Indian population had gone to South Africa, which of course was also a British colony, and, and were one of the groups there which were kept rigidly segregated by race. And it was in uh, South Africa that he experienced his first epiphany, which led to his life's work. He was on a train uh, from Durban, and he'd bought a first-class ticket. But when he got to the little town of Peter Maritzburg, he was thrown out of the train because he was not white. And uh, he then describes in his autobiography the long, cold night he spent waiting on Peter Maritzburg station, when he resolved that he'd devote himself to protesting against racial discrimination, of which he'd just been uh, conspicuously a victim. He read the work of Leo Tolstoy, The Kingdom of God is Within You. He read the work of English socialists like John Ruskin, Unto This Last, a book which emphasises the dignity of manual labour. And as a lawyer in South Africa, he gradually found his feet and became more and more effective, usually not working as a, a courtroom orator, but promoting conciliation and arbitration instead. His very first big case was solved in this way. And he wrote, My joy was boundless. I had learned the true practice of law. I had learned to find out the better side of human nature and to enter men's hearts. I realised the true function of a lawyer was to unite parties riven asunder. He was an immensely persuasive man and very often his clients, he'd begin by trying to persuade his clients to reconcile with their antagonists rather than go to the confrontation of the courtroom. He became the editor of a newspaper in the South African Indian community called Indian Opinion in the hope that he might be able to unite the scattered Indian community living there and organise protests when, the, when he interpreted the government's, um, what we'd call the apartheid regulations, as being particularly heavy-handed. It was in South Africa also that Gandhi developed the idea of Satyagraha, truth force. He said... The world wouldn't exist at all if there weren't more love and forgiveness than hatred and war. Peace is natural and it's stronger than force. I mean, this is the exact opposite of the ideas of people like Winston Churchill, who always took the view, war's natural and there's always going to be wars. Gandhi says, no, no, peace is natural. He also developed the idea of brahmacharya, self-denial. This contributes to his decision in favour of permanent celibacy in 1906. He said his marriage was much better after that. He also became a, a virtuoso of fasting, uh, believing that the purification of the self and, and the projection of this idea of self-sacrifice could also have highly positive political consequences. And he developed the idea of swaraj, which means self-control, but as he used it, could also mean self-rule for India. In 1913, the South African government denied the legitimacy of marriages between the Indian community there. Gandhi organised a massive resistance movement and forced the government to back down. And in doing so, he, he recognised the possibility of drawing women into protests as well. He went back to India in 1915 and founded an ashram, a religious community, funded by local sympathisers who'd heard about his good work in Africa. And he was, he was successful then and later at using British consciences against the British. It led an English woman called Annie Besant, who was one of his greatest admirers, to give him the nickname of Mahatma, or Great Soul. And in fact, he's often known right up to the present as Mahatma Gandhi. Nonviolence. It seemed to him that 
Nonviolence was the embodiment of ancient wisdom and that violence was itself somehow modern. He had the idea that the Indian people, by wanting wealth, were accepting modern civilization, which is evil. He said, if they wished for absolute simplicity, they could at once be free of the British and everything that the British represented. Well, some of his ideas have been widely regarded by historians as crazy. He believed, for example, that industrialization itself was a, a synonym for selfishness. And he advocated a return of India to complete pre-industrial conditions. That's why later on in life, he, could, he was often photographed with a spinning wheel. He began spinning when he was in prison. And he began wearing a loincloth, the dhoti, instead of Western clothes. This was a symbolic rejection of everything that Britain stood for. But of course, in practice, if India had rejected the whole possibility of industrialization, it would have been condemned to extreme poverty and periodic malnutrition and famine into the indefinite future. Many of his ideas were difficult, even for his most sympathetic followers, to go along with. For example, he was a critic of many aspects of the Indian caste system. He hated the stigma of untouchability and tried to eliminate it, but that roused violent opposition among most of the other castes, including uh, the opposition of his own wife. Now, the Muslim League, founded in 1906, aimed to make sure that an independent India, if it came, would not be Hindu-dominated. Temporarily, the Hindus and the Muslims, both protesting against the British, were able to unify during the, in the era of the First World War, with Motilal Nehru, the Hindu leader, and Muhammad Ali Jinnah cooperating. Annie Besant, the woman who had named Gandhi the Mahatma, was one of the founders of the Home Rule League in 1916. And of course, she's picking up the idea from events which were taking place in Ireland at the same time. In 1916, these, these, the Hindu and the Muslim organizations met jointly and made an agreement called the Lucknow Pact, which was that together they'd operate in, in campaigning for greater self-government for India. Annie Besant and Bal Gangadhar Tilak, the radical leaders of Congress, were then re-imprisoned under wartime martial law. At the end of the First World War, the Montague-Chelmsford reforms and Gandhi's non-cooperation movement led to very uneasy fluctuations in British policy. The Montague-Chelmsford reforms of 1919 accepted the principle of eventual self-government for India. And this, was, this took place at the same time as the contradictory promises that the British made on the one hand to the Arabs who had followed, followed Lawrence of Arabia, on the other hand, the Zionists who accepted the Balfour Declaration. In the period of the Treaty of Versailles, the British appeared to be making many mutually contradictory promises. Edwin Montague, the Secretary of State for India, was the son of a millionaire banker and philanthropist, a 20th century style liberal who felt guilty about his own privileges and about the fact that the British were responsible for oppression abroad. Well, not surprisingly, the British assumed that the process of transformation to self-government would be very gradual. But the Indian politicised middle classes assumed that it would be quick. Straight away, there's a point of conflict there. But in the meantime, the British were determined that they'd uphold law and order. And this is, these are the preconditions for the Amritsar massacre of 1919. What happened is this. The crisis came in, a, uh, in Amritsar, a town in the Punjab in the northwest of India. The Rowlett Act imposed martial law and prohibited the gathering of more than five people in public places. This is in response to great demonstrations. Gandhi proposed a nationwide boycott, or hartal, to protest against the Rowlett Acts. It was a way, Gandhi suggested, of being both active and yet also non-violent. 
Well, in Amritsar, a crowd of 20,000 people gathered, despite General Dyer's warning that he would enforce the law. Dyer himself, then in his mid-50s, was, uh, had been badly wounded in the First World War and was in constant pain from his war wounds. He fired on the crowd. Uh, he, he brought with him a, a troop of Gurkha troops, and without warning, they began to, for, to pour rifle fire into this crowd, which had technically gathered in violation of the Roll Act. There were only two small exits from the enclosure, and one of them was occupied by the soldiers. The result was the massacre of 379 people and the wounding of a thousand more. Some of the desperate people climbed the walls or jumped into the well in the hope of trying to get away. Dyer himself showed no remorse, and he admitted that he'd forbidden help to the wounded by upholding a curfew which compelled the streets to be empty. Well, the Amritsar massacre made Dyer a symbolic figure, a little bit like Lieutenant Calley during the Vietnam War, the man responsible for uh, uh, the My Lai massacre. The question of the, the, the rights and wrongs of whether violence of this degree can ever be justified. The House of Lords, dominated by Conservatives, passed a vote of confidence in him, but the House of Commons contradicted it with a, a motion of censure. Winston Churchill said, The incident in Jallianwala Bagh was an extraordinary event, a monstrous event, an event which stands in singular and sinister isolation. On the other hand, sympathetic British citizens collected money on behalf of Dyer and presented him with £26,000. He was removed from India, but it's clear that the, pu the public relations view of his action was very, very sharply divided. The governor of the Punjab, Michael O'Dwyer, who supported the actions of General Dyer, was assassinated 21 years later in 1940 by a man who'd been wounded at Amritsar and had sworn vengeance, Vidam Singh, who finally caught up with him. Amritsar itself is now a national monument and some of the bullet holes are still visible. Well, the Amritsar massacre had the same effect in India that the Easter Rising had in Dublin, the event after which nothing could be the same again. Meanwhile, in the 1920s, Gandhi continued to uh, try to ratchet up the pressure on the British with the use of satyagraha, using the Britain's bad consciences against them. For him, it was a life's mission, although for many of his followers, it was something more like a political tactic. Martin Luther King later on said that Gandhi was a very influential figure for him, and Gandhi, like King, wasn't really a politician. He was really someone who goaded the consciences of a nation to force them to start thinking previously unfamiliar thoughts, and always linking them very closely with national traditions. Gandhi was imprisoned for six years, but released after two, for his leadership of the non-cooperation movement. He said he read a hundred books while he was in prison and took to spinning for four hours every day as he developed this idea of anti-industrialization. In 1930, he resumed leadership with the Salt March. This is at a time when the government had a monopoly on salt, a commodity everybody needs, and charged a high price for it. Gandhi recognized that it was a universal necessity and that the tax was a burden on the poor. So he marched from his ashram in Gujarat down to the seashore, a distance of about 200 miles, and the march lasted for 24 days, generating a great deal of publicity on the way. And when they got to the sea, they made their own salt on the beach by filling shallow pans with seawater, and as the water evaporated, the salt was left behind. This again was a brilliant way of linking personal issues with political issues, and of bringing women directly into the movement. It, he showed for the first time that even kitchen work has political overtones. Winston Churchill hated him and despised him too, called him the half-naked faker, although there's no question that uh, rhetorically Gandhi often got the better of Churchill. The British by 1930 were in a very awkward spot. They were condemned if they intervened in the Salt March, which was studiously non-violent, 
but they seemed powerless if they didn't intervene. One official noted, the Indians joined in not because they expect any definite results from the anti-salt laws campaign, but because belief that British connection is morally indefensible and economically intolerable is gaining strength among educated Hindus, Gujaratis mostly, but others also. Another British officer said, I confess I've been getting the impression during the last week or two from various parts of India that our government may not be retaining that essential moral superiority, which is perhaps the most important factor in this struggle. Well, in 1931, Gandhi had a long personal meeting with Lord Irwin, the Viceroy, and the two of them came to terms, each man being under intense pressure from extremists in his own camp. Uh, on, on, the, on the political right, some of the British in India are saying to the, government, to the Viceroy, you must be more repressive. And on the other hand, members of the, the radicals of Congress Party are saying to Gandhi, you've got to be more radical. Gandhi went to London as negotiator for the Congress Party. Uh, with a mandate to create a dominion status for India so that it would be self become self-governing in the same way as Canada or Australia. But he was opposed by the Muslims and by the princes and by the untouchables. He wanted them incorporated into society. They wanted separate representation of their own in the government. The Government of India Act of 1935 created a federation of Indian provinces, each with its own parliament. The predominantly Hindu Congress party won elections to nearly all of them, which intensified the Muslims' fears that independence would leave them as a vulnerable, despised and persecuted minority. Mohammed Jinnah, the leader of the Muslim League, resolved in the 1930s that if the British did quit India, Muslims must have a country of their own, Pakistan. So by the 1930s there were many ominous portents for the future in India, all of them were to be brought to a crisis by the outbreak of the Second World War. Lecture 28. World War II, England Alone. Anti-war feeling was so strong in the 1920s and early 1930s that Britain starved its armed forces of money and made few efforts to stay abreast of developments in munitions research and development. Only in the late 1930s, as the menace of Nazism intensified, did Britain make a belated effort to catch up. Early defeats in the war and a humiliating retreat from Dunkirk in 1940 brought Winston Churchill to the premiership with a grim determination to prevail. Churchill, unlike many other conservatives, had never accepted the principle that the entire empire should eventually win independence. He regarded the colonies as, as vital as military bases and as sources of supplies, and he believed them essential to Britain's role as a great power. He also recognised, however, that Hitler's grip on Europe was so strong that Britain would never be able to liberate it without American aid he urged President Franklin Roosevelt to become directly involved in the war, but found Roosevelt cautious. Sympathetic to the plight of Britain, whose lifeline was again the submarine-infested Atlantic Ocean, FDR was also determined not to use American resources to preserve the British Empire. When Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, America entered the war. Almost at once, Britain faced more mortifying reverses as its garrison in Singapore surrendered to a smaller Japanese army, 
and as a Japanese air attack sank two of its battleships. Well, in the 1930s, Churchill seemed to be a relic of of Victorian imperial days rather than a heroic leader awaiting his supreme role. And I think it's very important in thinking about the life of Churchill not to read later events back into his earlier life. Most of the members, even of his own party in the 1930s, thought of him as superannuated, an old dinosaur, a a warlike relic from bygone days. He believed war to be inevitable. And therefore, he wanted Britain to prepare for the contingency. Since nations are going to fight, let's make sure that they're ready to fight on advantageous terms. That was his view. He'd certainly never believed the rhetoric of Woodrow Wilson that the First World War was the war to end all wars. He believed also that the empire made Britain a great power, that it was morally defensible, and that its subject peoples benefited from its existence. He'd had a very, very adventurous life, first on the northwest frontier as a young officer, then at the Battle of Omdurman in the last great cavalry charge of the British Empire, in the Boer War with his escape from uh, captivity, at the Admiralty at the beginning of the First World War, the Gallipoli campaign, then his volunteering to fight on the Western Front, and then his work as colonial minister. Here's the historian James Morris talking about Churchill's early career. He always behaved as though Britain were a superpower the leader of a great disciplined empire destined to last a millennium. He approached President Roosevelt, the American, Marshal Stalin, the Russian, not simply as personal equals, but as political equals too. He spoke as he might have spoken if the Victorian Empire were still at his back, at its unchallengeable zenith. He spoke in imperial hyperboles, saw with an imperial vision, and gave to the British themselves, for the last time, the feeling that they were a special people, with honourable duties all their own. Now, ironically, his great adversary, Adolf Hitler, also admired the British Empire, and in fact speculated about preserving it through an Anglo-German alliance. Listen to this speech from Hitler from 1939. During the whole of my political activity, I have always expounded the idea of a close friendship and collaboration between Germany and England. This desire for Anglo-German friendship and cooperation conforms not merely to sentiments which result from the racial origins of our two peoples, but also to my realisation of the importance for the whole of mankind of the existence of the British Empire. I have never doubted that the existence of this empire is an inestimable factor of value for the whole of human, cultural and economic life. You'd have no idea that was by Hitler if you weren't alerted to the fact beforehand. No wonder some British politicians were tempted to make a deal with Hitler before the war and tempted again after the fall of France and the retreat from Dunkirk. There were many people in Britain who regarded the Soviet Union and communism as a worse threat than that of Nazi Germany. While the failure of appeasement discredited Neville Chamberlain and brought Churchill to the premiership in May 1940. And Churchill then presided over the Battle of Britain, which fought the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, to a standstill. This was the, the, the summer of 1940, when the German Air Force attempted to get complete air dominance so that the German forces could then launch an invasion across the English Channel. And the Royal Air Force was able to prevent them from doing so. Enough of the German planes were shot down by the spitfires and hurricanes of the Royal Air Force that Germany couldn't undertake the invasion. It wasn't really a victory, it was more of a standoff. 
In other words, Britain's strategic position wasn't stronger afterwards, but at least it didn't get even weaker. It certainly was a vital event, preventing the conquest of Britain. And it was during the Battle of Britain that Churchill made some of the speeches for which he's best remembered, particularly the one in which he said, Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. In other words, we stand permanently in the debt of the handful of fighter pilots. In, in anticipating the possibility that a German army would invade, which did seem a very real possibility in the summer of 1940, Britain had prepared a home guard, an army to fight locally, although it was mainly people who were too young or too old to be in the ordinary forces. And he said, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. His voice on the radio was a source of inspiration and, and gave courage to a British people who had reason to feel that they were on the brink of disaster. And his, his rhetoric during these uh, speeches in the Battle of Britain was, was satur saturated with imperial themes. For example, in this one, he said, And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and liberation of the old. And perhaps most famous of all, if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. He was aware that Britain alone could not defeat Hitler, couldn't liberate Europe. And that's why he dedicated himself to winning American support. But President Roosevelt was very aware of two things. First, America's long isolationist heritage, the tradition of not becoming involved in European conflicts uh, ever since Washington's farewell address. And second, the feeling of revulsion against war, which had been very, very strong after the Treaty of Versailles. It was widely believed in America during the 1930s that it was the merchants of death, the munitions manufacturers, who'd cheated uh, America into, first, into the First World War and that they alone had profited from it. So uh, Franklin Roosevelt was far too shrewd a politician to commit the United States prematurely to an unpopular conflict, especially because he was already anticipating running for an unprecedented third term as president in the fall elections of 1940. But he did make concessions to Churchill. He undertook the Destroyers for Bases deal in which the Americans gave some old ships to the Royal Navy in exchange for the American use of ports in the British Caribbean. Then Lend-Lease, the system whereby Britain was, was forwarded munitions before they could pay for them. And finally, in 1940 and 41, American Navy ships began protecting convoys further and further out into the North Atlantic with the implication or the possibility that sooner or later they would be attacked by German submarines and that that might become a, a, a cause of American participation in the war. Churchill and Roosevelt together signed the Atlantic Charter before the United States entered the war, even though its language had strongly anti-colonialist overtones. Among the principles of the Atlantic Charter were that all people have the right to self-determination, that territorial changes brought about by the war must win the assent of the people concerned, and that in the war no territorial gains were to be sought by either the UK, the United Kingdom or the United States. Churchill probably made a mental reservation that he would at least prevent the empire from getting smaller, even if he couldn't actually make it bigger. 
What about the empire itself? Well, the Second World War brought about renewed declarations of loyalty from the British colonies. Its early campaigns played out many old imperial themes. Canada, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa once again pledged to support Britain in the conflict. In South Africa, pro-British sympathisers outnumbered pro-Hitler Afrikaners. Some of the Afrikaners were in favour of the Nazi position, certainly the racial position. But Jan Smuts, who'd become, who was once a Boer leader but had become an important politician in, in the First World War effort, once again became the Prime Minister of South Africa. In India, the National Congress Party protested against the Viceroy's declaration of war without consultation. The, the Viceroy simply said, India is now at war uh, with Britain's enemies. But although Congress protested, nearly two million people from the subcontinent of India again rallied to join the army and to fight. When Gandhi launched the Quit India campaign in 1942, trying to pressure Britain into leaving once and for all, the British had him arrested, imposed censorship, and the war effort went on without very much danger of internal rebellion. Even from the officially neutral Irish Free State, which had fought its war of independence to get away from the British Empire, even from there, 43,000 men volunteered to fight for Britain. So, so that the, uh, the sentimental ties of empire remained strong. And the case of Ireland is a particularly strange one, because Ireland itself, the Republic of Ireland, remained neutral. And yet it was still technically a dominion of the empire under the king. And because it was neutral, an Irish ambassador stayed in, uh, in Berlin, in Nazi, the capital of Nazi Germany, all through the war, even though he was nominally serving under King George VI, uh, Hitler's great enemy. So a very paradoxical legal situation for the Irish Free State. Thousands of Canadian merchant seamen served on the hazardous Atlantic convoys. Britain was heavily dependent on imported food again. Since the late 19th century, Britain had been unable to feed itself, and, and the outbreak of war therefore precipitated great subsistence crises. The Canadian Prime Minister, Mackenzie King, was very eager to help Britain. But he acted differently from the Viceroy of India. Rather than uh, declare Canada also to be at war, he waited until the C Canadian Parliament reconvened and let Parliament make a declaration of war saying that he himself was not empowered to do so. Canada then did go along with the war. It was much less internally divided than South Africa, for example. Convoys were an essential part of the war effort. And in fact, the Battle of the Atlantic, the struggle between the attempt by the convoys to get to Britain with food and war supplies and the attempt of the German submarines to stop them, this was one of the vital uh, campaigns of the war and one of the keys to Britain's, uh, the Allies' ultimate victory. A very old-fashioned or old-fashioned seeming campaign took place between the British and the Italians in Africa. Mussolini, Hitler's ally, invaded the British colonies of Sudan and Kenya from Ethiopia, which Mussolini had overrun earlier in the century. British counter-attacks in the spring of 1941 defeated the Italians and restored the deposed Ethiopian king, Haile Selassie, to his throne. British control of nearly all the Indian Ocean ports in East Africa enabled Britain to gather men and materials from India and from South Africa, which the Italians couldn't do because of the power of the Royal Navy in the Mediterranean and British control of the Suez Canal. This campaign, the Ethiopia campaign, was very similar to the old colonial wars because there were no roads and no railways and so horses and camels dictated the pace. 
The campaign also marked the appearance onto a world stage of Ord Wingate, one of the most fascinating irregular warriors in British history. He fought his way with Gideon's column to Addis Ababa, the Ethiopian capital, and then led the first British victory parade of the war. Ord Wingate was an unconventional military genius, very much in the mould of Lawrence of Arabia. He was an artillery officer who was just too young to participate in the First World War. But he learned Arabic and, and, some, and studied Semitics, even though he was a devout Christian. He'd been running border control in Abyssinia, Ethiopia, in the 1930s against the slave trade, which even then still persisted, and against ivory poachers. The British sent him to Palestine in 1936 as an intelligence officer in response to the Palestinian Arab Revolt, in which Palestinians were killing Zionists and the British. Aldwingate learned to speak Hebrew and became a passionate Zionist, even though he was also a devout Christian. He created the special night squads in which Zionist and British guerrillas led nighttime counter-attacks against the, uh, the Arab rebels. And he was a great admirer of Gideon. That, this is the, uh, the leader of the children of Israel in the book of Judges, perhaps the most adventure, the, the book of the Bible which is fullest of adventure stories. Gideon keeps making his army smaller to defeat a bigger and bigger force. And Wingate was inspired by the idea that a small force operating quickly and secretly and at night can uh, in, in, impose devastating damage on the enemy. He's still today regarded as a hero in Israel and as one of the founders of Haganah and the Israeli Defense Force. Um, Moshe Dayan, the hero of the Six-Day War, the one-eyed general, was one of his protégés who first learned to fight uh, unconventionally under the influence of Ord Wingate. Well, in, Ethiopia, in the Ethiopia campaign, Gideon Force was a small commando unit sent to disrupt the Italian forces, and it was brilliantly successful. Further north and west, Italian forces in Libya also attacked the British in Egypt. The British Empire had been in Egypt since 1882 to protect the Suez Canal at a time when Egypt was nominally still a Turkish possession. And Britain had been a mandate power in Egypt since World War I. They always said they were about to leave and yet they stayed on for decade after decade. They were still the effective power and afraid of an Axis breakthrough, a German-Italian breakthrough to Palestine and to the oil fields of the Middle East, which became a crucial strategic target in the, uh, in, in the fighting of mechanised armies. Cairo was, in some ways, the emotional centre of the British war effort. Men from every colony gathered there. The British Commander-in-Chief, General Wavell, told the Australians who were there, I look to you to show the Egyptians that their notions of Australians as rough, wild, undisciplined people given to strong drink are incorrect. This was an attempt to shame the Australians into some restraint and some uh, good conduct. They were, in fact, notorious for uh, drunken and disorderly behaviour. There was also a big uh, Royal Navy base nearby in Alexandria. Egypt was nominally an independent kingdom under the leadership of the 22-year-old King Farouk, who himself had been educated in England. But the British ambassador, Sir Miles Lampson, was really in control. He called King Farouk the boy and told him exactly what he could do and what he couldn't do. He ordered his abdication in 1942 when Farouk tried to defy him. Lampson went to the king's palace with a group of tanks, at which point Farouk meekly backed down and appointed exactly the ministers whom Lampson had specified. So that was a vivid indication that the British were still, in fact, the authority in Egypt. British counterattacks in North Africa beat back the Italians easily in December 1940. And in the course of that campaign, the British seized 130,000 Italian prisoners. 
But at that point, Hitler, Mussolini's ally, sent General Rommel and a German force, the Africa Corps, to stiffen the Italians' resistance. And at once, the fighting in North Africa became far more tenacious and far more difficult. The arrival of the Africa Corps meant that the war in the North African desert was to be much longer and more desperate than it otherwise would have been. One group of Australians, the 9th Division, heroically uh, resisted a long German siege in the city of Tobruk. But the war was no, no longer became the kind of foregone conclusion. It looked as though it, had, it, it was going to be in the days when it was a matter of the British fighting against the Italians. The desert campa campaign finally reached a climax at the battle, of, the, the battle of El Alamein in the fall of 1942, really the first decisive British military victory against the Germans in the whole war, to which I'll return in the next lecture. But it was in the fall of 1941 that the Japanese entered the war. The early success of, ja of Japanese forces in the Far East damaged the empire's reputation for omnipotence, inflicting a wound from which it never recovered. On hearing the news of Pearl Harbor, on hearing the news of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Churchill realized that Britain and its empire would, in some form, emerge from the war victorious. He was certain that Japan and Germany together could not possibly defeat the United States and Britain together. So he wasn't actually happy by the news of Pearl Harbor, but it, it, the, the news lifted him out of a severe depression. At once he became extremely eager to declare war on Japan and to get into conversations with uh, Roosevelt about how together they'd defeat Germany and Japan. He went to the White House for Christmas, Christmas of 1941, and it was he who lit the Christmas tree lights outside the White House. For a while, for two weeks, two of the world's great governments, the British and the American, were run together from the White House. He made a, an address to a joint session of Congress on December the 26th, 1941, the day after Christmas. And there he emphasized his American, the fact that he had an, a long American heritage. His, his mother was an American. And he emphasized the long history of Anglo-American amity while carefully soft-peddling the question of the British Empire. Churchill was still dedicated to preserving it and dedicating to using the Americans as much as he could to help him do so. But he, he perfectly understood that it would be very diplomatically tactless to give the impression that that was his principal interest while speaking to an American audience. Life magazine uh, underlined this point with a, an open letter to the people of England in 1942, so very soon after the Americans had joined in. Life magazine sends this warning to Britain. One thing we are sure we are not fighting for is to hold the British Empire together. We don't like to put the matter so bluntly, but we don't want you to have any illusions. If your strategists are planning a war to hold the British Empire together, they will sooner or later find themselves strategizing alone. Well, in answer to that view, uh, General Smuts, the South African leader, wrote, the British, Commonwealth, the, 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 the British Commonwealth was the widest system of organized human freedom in the entire history of the world. In other words, that the Americans ought to be far more enthusiastic about it than they seem to be. Smuts there was using the word commonwealth, which increasingly came to be um, uh, um, a euphemism for the empire. The idea that it's a, it's a congress of nations which together are sharing a, a destiny, not through rule and coercion, but by choice. And progressively that did in fact become the, that did become the fact of the matter too. Still, when the, at the beginning of the Japanese war, Britain sustained a jarring succession of reversals in late 1941 and early 1942. Two British battleships were sunk by Japanese aircraft the day after Pearl Harbor, taken by surprise in just the same way that the US Navy had been. 
These were the Prince of Wales and the Repulse. They were sailing to prevent a possible Japanese landing in Malaya, but they were sunk by, by shore-based aircraft. This was a premonition of the limits of battleships unprotected from the air. Churchill himself wrote, In all the war, I never received a more direct shock. The fact that just like that, two of his capital ships should be annihilated. Hong Kong surrendered after a 20-day siege by the Japanese. Then, a Japanese force advanced rapidly down the Malay Peninsula. Until Singapore surrendered after a short siege of its own in February 1942. This was one of the worst humiliations in British military history. The Japanese had invaded Malaya and marched south, with untrained and poorly prepared British troops falling back in the face of the Japanese advance. Many of the British soldiers were new recruits from India. Their British officers couldn't yet speak any Urdu, which was the language used in many of the units of the army. The British had inadequate air support. Singapore itself had few artillery batteries facing inland. They were supplied in part with the wrong kind of ammunition. As the Japanese uh, drew close to Singapore, they began heavy shelling of the city. And finally, General Percival, the commander on the spot, believing that the one million or more refugees who were crowding into Singapore were in danger of being massacred, decided he was going to surrender. He ignored Churchill's telegram that he must hold out at all costs and instead surrendered his garrison, 130,000 strong, to a smaller Japanese force. There's a famous photograph of him with the Union Jack and an officer beside him carrying a white flag as he goes out to surrender to the Japanese. For this surrender, in the face of explicit instructions not to surrender, he was later utterly ostracised when the war had ended. The Japanese were, in fact, exhausted from weeks of fighting, and more resolution on, on the British part in Singapore might very well have led to effective continual resistance and possibly even a, a counter-offensive. Churchill himself saw it as a dismaying indictment of the British will to fight. The Australians interpreted Singapore as a British sacrifice. In other words, a sign to the Australians that Britain wasn't taking the Far East seriously enough. They said the garrison should have been more strongly prepared and it should have been readier to repel a Japanese invasion. That prompted them to begin looking to America as Australia's logical ally and defender in the Pacific. A makeshift Australian and British and Dutch and American naval force, ABDA, lost the Battle of the Java Sea in February 1942. The Dutch Admiral Doerman went down with his ship. ABDA, this force, was defeated because of the superiority of Japanese torpedoes. And the combination of the fall of Singapore and the defeat in the naval battle left Australia almost defenceless as the Japanese conquered the Dutch East Indies, which are very close to the northern coast of Australia. The British then fought a rearguard action through Burma until the Japanese troops threatened India itself. Particularly sinister then was the fact that the Burmese National Army, under the leadership of Aung San, regarded the Japanese forces as liberators rather than as conquerors. In other words, they interpreted the arrival of the Japanese as a welcome end to British domination. The Burmese had always bitterly resented the British Empire, as George Orwell had shown in his book Burmese Days. Some of the Indian troops taken prisoner at Singapore joined Subhas Chandra Bose, who proposed with his Indian National Army to fight for Indian independence. This was an Indian leader who also took the view, we might be able to regard the Japanese as liberators, perhaps we'll get a better deal for India from, then, from them than we can from the British. 
Bose had sailed to Japan in a German submarine in 1943. He was disliked by Gandhi and Congress Party, who rightly interpreted him as a warlike figure, an aspiring fascist leader, leader for India itself. Well, after decades of underestimating the Japanese, the British now began to fear that the Japanese were invincible. Britain and Japan had been allies early in the 20th century, and the Royal Navy had greatly admired the Japanese victory over the Russian fleet at the Battle of Tsushima back in 1905. And yet, in 1935, a British Admiralty report said that the Japanese had, quote, peculiarly slow brains because of the stress uh, they endured in learning 6,000 written characters in the Japanese style of writing. The allegation was that the Japanese were weak and near-sighted, that they couldn't see properly in the dark and certainly couldn't fight in the dark, alleged that they had defective ears and a poor sense of balance, that they were poor drivers and, and uh, inadequate as mechanics, that they thought the jungles were full of ghosts and demons. In all these ways, the British had gravely underestimated the rate of development of, of Japan as an effective fighting force. The Allies even ignored the high quality of the best Japanese fighter plane, the Mitsubishi Zero, probably the best fighter plane of its day. They hadn't believed that the Japanese could build a superior weapon to their own. Suddenly, after Pearl Harbor and the fall of the Philippines and the fall of Singapore and Malaya, there's a complete inversion of this view. Now, suddenly, the Japanese seem to be invincible supermen. Here's the historian John Dower count, uh, commenting on this, this switch. The catastrophe of the two warships alone on the second day of the war led to a belief in the invincibility of Japanese air power, a belief which was given strength by the ease with which the enemy outmatched the obsolescent Allied aircraft. It created the myth of Japanese superiority in all three services, which took a long time to die. In General Slim's words, the Japanese became the super bogeymen of the jungle, while British forces fell into a massive inferiority complex, an experience unprecedented in the history of the British Empire. Japanese mistreatment of British and Imperial prisoners of war was in part a conscious policy to degrade the British and the white man's prestige in the Far East. And there were areas of Asia which uh, recognised that if the British can be humiliated in this way, they can't possibly be overlords. Probably the most notorious incident is the way in which British and Australian prisoners were forced to build a railway through Burma. And this was a theme fictionalised in the, in the film uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai after the war. There was a very high incidence among prisoners of war in the Far East of malnutrition, tropical diseases, dysentery, cholera, malaria, beriberi and uh, horrible abusive treatment by Japanese captors. The Japanese weren't signatories of the Geneva Convention and didn't regard prisoners of war as deserving any respect. Their view was that it's humiliating to be taken prisoner, much better to die first. And throughout much of the Pacific War, the Japanese would uh, kill themselves rather than surrender or would fight to the last man. Here's an Australian officer, Lieutenant Colonel Edward Dunlop, who kept a diary of the building of the railway. He says, the Japanese have a great reserve of manpower here and at Singapore and they are showing every intention of just breaking men on this job, with not the faintest consideration for either life or health. This can only be regarded as a cold-blooded, merciless crime against mankind, obviously premeditated. These days, in which I see men being progressively broken into emaciated, pitiful wrecks, 
bloated with beriberi, terribly reduced with pellagra, dysentery and malaria, and covered with disgusting sores. A searing hate arises in me whenever I see a nip, in other words, a Japanese soldier. Disgusting, deplorable, hateful troop of men. Apes. It is a bitter lesson to all of us not to surrender to these beasts while there is still life in one's body. A profound and intense racial hatred of the Japanese was characteristic of the Pacific War among both the British and the American soldiers. Well, in the middle of 1942, there was still no sign at all of victory. The future seemed very uncertain. But, gradually, the tide of the war would turn in favour of the Allies, although it was never again going to turn in favour of the persistence of the British Empire itself. Lecture 29, World War II, The Pyrrhic Victory. The tide of the war turned in 1942, with a British victory over the Germans at El Alamein and an American victory over the Japanese at Midway. The German offensive against Russia stalled at Stalingrad. Churchill and Roosevelt, aware that the Soviet Union was confronting the full might of the Wehrmacht, planned and executed the invasion of Italy in 1943 and France in 1944. With each passing month, however, the American role in the war effort grew, forcing Britain to take second place. By the time the fighting ended, with the unconditional surrender of Germany and Japan, Britain was economically exhausted. A new Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, told a new American President, Harry Truman, that Britain could no longer accept worldwide responsibilities and that it intended to dismantle its colonial empire. It was not resistance inside the empire itself that brought it to an end, so much as changing ideas about the justification for empires and the devastating impact of the two world wars. Well, Churchill cautioned Roosevelt not to be too hasty in planning the Second Front invasion of Europe. As soon as the Americans entered the war, Stalin, who was hard-pressed by the German armies, appealed to Britain and America to launch a so-called Second Front, that is an invasion of Western Europe, which would force Germany to fight on the West and the East, just as it had done during the First World War. Churchill and Roosevelt agreed in principle, but uh, didn't hurry to do so. First of all, it was going to be an extremely difficult military operation because it entailed a seaborne invasion of the, either the Netherlands or the French coast against a coastline which was being more and more heavily defended by the Germans. So Churchill persuaded the Americans to defer the invasion, first until 1943, and then until 1944. So for several years, Stalin uh, had to uh, endure the full impact of the German war machine. And Stalin felt betrayed by his allies. This is one of the long-term causes of the Cold War. On the other hand, the Allies could counter that between 1939 and 41, Hitler and Stalin had been allied. Together they'd dismembered Poland. And of course it always remained possible that political cynics of that type might reverse course again, even now. Churchill also said to Roosevelt, Our interests, Anglo-American interests, are actually well served by having Stalin and Hitler weaken each other. It's good for us 
that these two totalitarian powers, both of which are completely alien and hostile to our way of life, should be tearing each other to pieces out there on the Eastern Front. And just to give you an idea of the disparity of scale, at El Alamein in 1942, the British Army's victory over the Africa Corps in the desert, the British defeated three German divisions. At the same time, at Stalingrad, the Russians defeated 190 German divisions. That was the most, the Russian front was by far the most lethal area of the whole Second World War. And of all the Germans who died fighting in World War II, about 90% of them died on the Eastern Front. So Churchill was being cynical, but the Soviets were equally cynical. One of them told a British diplomat that he added up Nazi casualties and the Western Allies' casualties in the same column. In other words, the Soviets were also thinking the Americans and British might be our proximate and provisional allies, but sooner or later they're going to be enemies as well. D-Day, the, the invasion of Western Europe, when it did take place, was led by an American general, Eisenhower. and This was in the early summer of 1944. By then, Britain had become increasingly dependent on American supplies and material for its own war effort. At the Battle of Alamein, the British used Sherman tanks, mass-produced in America. And these were the first Allied tanks able to go head-to-head -head with German panzers. They were still probably inferior, but the capacity of the American factories to produce huge numbers of them uh, made up in numbers what they lacked in quality. It was very galling to Churchill and to his successful General Montgomery, the victor of Alamein, that Eisenhower should now take control of the Allied invasion of Europe. They thought of Eisenhower as an unimaginative organisation man. It is true that Eisenhower was exceptionally gifted in logistics, that is, getting the right people and material to the right place at the right time. And for a complicated operation like D-Day, that was itself an extremely important matter. But in the planning for D-Day, friction between senior British and American officials was widespread. The Americans thought it was disgraceful for the British to be fighting to uphold a colonial empire. And they took the language of the Atlantic Charter to heart. The historian Lawrence James comments uh, in this way, Behind visceral American anti-imperialism lay that schoolroom version of the American War of Independence, in which liberty-loving colonists rose up against the arrogant and despotic George III and his brutal redcoats. At a more sophisticated political level, there was a strong feeling that the protectionist empire and the sterling bloc were major barriers to the creation of open free markets throughout the world, to which the United States was committed. Well, that was the source of, or one of the sources, of American suspicion of Britain's motives. But the British countered that the Americans were the great hypocrites because they treated their own African-American population far worse than any of the peoples of the British Empire. In fact, Britain devoted a lot of propaganda energy to reassuring the United States that British colonised peoples were well cared for and fairly treated. Friction between men of all classes increased as the American build-up in England continued prior to D-Day. There were more and more Americans in Britain, uh, some aviators flying uh, air raids and some soldiers getting ready for the Great Invasion. And there were dramatic differentials in pay. The Americans were much more highly paid. They had much better uniforms. They weren't so often closely confined to barracks and so on. And meanwhile, many British soldiers were overseas fighting in the Far East or in Egypt. Uh, they resented the fact that more and more British women were dating American soldiers. And one of the sayings of the British soldiers about the Americans was, they're overpaid, oversexed and over here. 
Still, it, it wouldn't do to um, exaggerate the degree of Anglo-American tension. Churchill himself certainly never lost sight of the crucial need for this, of this alliance. And he and President Roosevelt established an effective working relationship, always patching over moments of tension and disagreement. Churchill, in his two great addresses to joint sessions of Congress, uh, was careful to emphasise the, the, the themes that Britain and America shared in common, which were in fact many. And it's also true that offsetting the antagonism over the empire, there was widespread American admiration for the steadiness of the British, particularly in the period of 1940 and 41, when they'd been subjected to very heavy German aerial bombardment during the Blitz. There was the organisation Bundles for Britain, which was regularly sending supplies to Britain, which was starved of almost everything. Some British refugee children had gone to live in America for the duration of the war. So, despite internal tensions, the Anglo-American alliance was an effective one. American armies advanced across the Pacific against the Japanese between 1943 and 45, while British forces advanced through Burma. And the coordination of the, uh, of the Allied war effort in the Far East was called SEAC, South East Asia Command. It was founded in 1943 to coordinate uh, all these different theatres of war. Some Americans nicknamed it Save England's Asiatic Colonies. Its commander was Lord Louis Mountbatten, a young royal swashbuckler, frowned on by older officers and hated by the American General Stilwell, who was an aide to the Chinese leader, Chiang Kai-shek. Mountbatten was also disliked by the Canadians for his leadership of a 1942 raid on Dieppe. This was an early test of the strength of the German fortifications on the Atlantic Wall, in which the Canadians felt that their soldiers had suffered disproportionately. Now earlier I mentioned the work of Ord Wingate, the uh, irregular soldier who'd uh, played a crucial role in the Ethiopia campaign. He persuaded the British High Command to let him lead irregular soldiers behind the lines in the campaign against the Japanese in Burma. He was also the man who played a crucial role in teaching um, the Zionist settlers how to fight guerrilla warfare against the Arab revolt in Palestine, one of the most fascinating and charismatic figures in the history of the British military in the 20th century. He reminded Winston Churchill, who was always a lover of unconventional warfare, of Lawrence of Arabia. And he persuaded General Wavell, the Viceroy of India at the time, to launch large-scale operations behind Japanese lines. He made two big raids. The first was in February 1943 and the, the second in March 1944. The second time at the strength of a division. Meanwhile, Wingate himself was becoming progressively more and more idiosyncratic. He often used to wear an onion on a string around his neck and as he was walking around inspecting his troops, he'd take great bites out of the raw onion. And he preferred to go completely naked. Well, although um, there's a certain amount of irregularity permitted to commandos, the idea of them not being dressed at all was extremely strange and, uh, and greatly frowned upon by most of his fellow soldiers. His, sol his, his, his group was called the Chindits. The first uh, attack was, was a march into Burma. The Chindits sabotaged Japanese railways, although they weren't able to keep them out of action for all that long, and they were heavily counter-attacked. They were supplied by airdrops. British aircraft would come over and, and drop supplies to them by parachute. A bigger group went further behind enemy lines by glider in 1944. The Chindits had an immense propaganda benefit. It was possible to show newsreels back in England of the daring work that these irregular soldiers were doing. But 
historians who studied them say that their actual military value was really marginal in the long run, partly because they suffered very heavy casualties from, the, from enemy action and from disease in an extremely inhospitable environment. The best British commander in the Far East was General Slim, and his judgment is perhaps the most appropriate one in this context. He said, The Chindits gave a splendid example of courage and hardihood. Yet I came firmly to the conclusion that such formations, trained, equipped and mentally adjusted for one kind of operation, were wasteful. They did not give, militarily, a worthwhile return for the resources in men, material and time that they absorbed. Special forces were usually formed by attracting the best men. The result of these methods was undoubtedly to lower the quality of the rest of the army. Anything, whatever the shortcuts to victory it may promise, which thus weakens the army's spirit, is dangerous. The cult of special forces is as sensible as to form a royal corps of tree climbers and then say that no soldier who does not wear its green hat with a bunch of oak leaves stuck in it should be expected to climb a tree. You can see there a deep level of scepticism in General Slim's response. Meanwhile, small British and Indian forces held strong points of Kohima and Imphal. This is in the Assam area, the, the far east of India and northern Burma, in the spring of 1944, to prevent a Japanese invasion of India itself, for, which for a while seemed imminent. General Slim inspired his men with determination and with an aggressive spirit. Slim was a lifelong army and empire man. He'd been wounded at the unsuccessful Gallipoli campaign in the First World War. He'd recovered. He'd been wounded again in the Mesopotamia campaign of the First War. And then he'd done years of service in India. He was wounded in action for a third time in the Abyssinia campaign, but nevertheless won the support and enthusiastic assent of his commanders and was promoted repeatedly. As a commander in the Burma theatre, he realised the need not to depend on motor vehicles. There were hardly any roads, and they were fighting often in monsoon conditions, which made what roads there were impassable because of mud. So instead he worked on using mules, infantry, and airdrops. He taught jungle fighting to his men to overcome their fear that the Japanese were supreme in the jungle and couldn't be defeated in such circumstances. Slim probably did the most with the least promising men and equipment. His command was often the lowest priority for all of Southeast Asia command. Drivers, cooks, mechanics and other non-combatants were thrown into the firing line and held up much larger Japanese forces at Kohima. And there was desperate fighting there for three months between April and June of 1944, including the Battle of the Tennis Court. This was when the British and Japanese soldiers were literally only the distance of the length of a tennis court apart from each other on the grounds of the old district commissioner's bungalow, a fierce, intense campaign in which finally Britain was able to hold off Japanese attacks. Again, airdrops were the key. When the monsoon forced the Japanese to abandon the attack, only 20,000 of their original 85,000 soldiers were fit for duty because of disease and wounds. This was also the campaign in which the Indian National Army under Subhas Chandra Bose had not fought effectively. The Indian National Army was made up of Indians who deserted to the Japanese side, some of them captured at Singapore, and it had been a source of intense anxiety to the British. Might it be possible that Indian nationalism would uh, carry the day um, in an alliance with the Japanese? Well, it proved not to be the case. Despite Bose's bluster, it evaporated in action. Many of the soldiers deserted the Japanese ranks and returned to British service. 
Meanwhile, thousands of other Indian prisoners of war had refused to join the Indian National Army, some even being tortured or starved to death as slave labourers rather than change their allegiance. Lord Louis Mountbatten's 1945 expedition to invade Malaya and recapture Singapore coincided with the American use of the atomic bombs against Hiroshima and Nagasaki and was therefore unnecessary. But it was unmistakable, as the war finally came to an end in the Pacific, that Britain had recovered its eastern possessions because of American power. The war further uh, furthered the Australian tendency to seek aid from the United States rather than from Britain. In 1942, there had been a series of Japanese air raids against the northern Australian town of Darwin. There was a severe and understandable invasion scare in 1942. The rate of advance of the Japanese armies had been so phenomenal and the complete inability of the British to stop them early on made, made it a reasonable fear for the Australians that their country was going to be invaded. Britain couldn't spare resources to send to Australia and its Labour government under the leadership of John Curtin felt unfairly neglected and imperiled. Uh, this was particularly severe because most of the Australian army was then fighting in North Africa. It wasn't even available to defend Australia itself. They were fighting against the Italians and then against Rommel. Well, the British Labour Party won a majority of seats in Parliament for the first time in the general election of 1945, following victory in Europe. The mood of ordinary Britons during World War II was one of impatience with what was called the old gang and a determination to undertake a social transformation. Um, Americans often express astonishment that Winston Churchill, the great war leader, should have lost this election. Surely the gratitude of, uh, of the nation should have been sufficient to, uh, to push him to victory one more time. But although he was Churchill was widely admired in Britain as a great war leader, he wasn't regarded as the appropriate voice of the future of a peaceful Britain. A very interesting film made during World War II gives an idea of British attitudes at the time about generations. It's a film called The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. And Colonel Blimp was a sort of nickname. Originally it was a cartoon character, and he was the personification of everything old-fashioned, complacent and out of date in Britain. The film was made by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger in 1943 and still very much worth watching, watching right up to today. Colonel Blimp's an old army officer whose uh, early military campaign had been in the Boer War and the colonial campaigns of the very early 20th century. And when the mood begins, he's now a senior officer who's, who's about to participate in a war game and he's taking a Turkish bath just before the, um, the, the war game begins. But the people who've been given the role of his rivals decide to start the war game a day earlier, and so they capture him completely unprepared and, and literally without his clothes on in the, uh, in the Turkish bath. And he says, that's outrageous, you've, you've broken the rules. To which the young commander says, that's what the Nazis do too. The way in which to fight in this war isn't to observe the chivalrous old rules, but rather the ruthless new ones. We've got to fight dirty because they will. The film's, uh, but the film goes on to show that although in this incident he seems helpless, he does in fact have wonderful qualities. And uh, the, the, most of the film is a long retrospective on the, the, the marvellous qualities of Colonel Blimp, the kind of man whose uh, who's, who's good work and whose selflessness has in fact held the empire together through the years. So it's wonderful propaganda, but of a fairly sophisticated kind, because it admits, yes, there's a problem now in the old guard, but yes, they did have virtues of their own in their day. 
Press stories during the war noted the laconic and snobbish attitude of the British imperial elite and its remoteness from the colonised peoples, particularly in Asia. A Labour Member of Parliament in 1942 said, The majority of British officials live in a bygone world. At this very moment they'll be dining in short coats and all the rest of the palaver in Calcutta, only a few miles away from the front line. And actually that wasn't far from the truth. Now a very important government report, the Beveridge Report, published in 1942, created something close to millennial expectations in Britain about what Britain was going to be like after the war, reformed, classless and socially just. Many of its recommendations were eventually enacted by the Labour government of the late 1940s, including the introduction of a national health service and the abolition of college tuition fees, so that health and education for the first time would be available to everybody. The lack of health care in Britain prior to 1945 is astonishing. Hardly any British people ever went to the doctor unless they were already desperately ill. Uh, there were very, very few dentists. In fact, English dentistry was famously bad right into the, uh, the post-Second World War period. Now, wartime is always extraordinary. And the British military camps during the, First World, uh, during the Second World War became centres for discussion of political affairs, centres of, of adult education and political debate. And I can give you the, an example of this from my own... Family. My father was in those days was leading aircraftsman Eric Allett in the Royal Air Force, and uh, during the course of the Second World War, he made a fairly extensive tour of the empire in service of the military. He just turned eighteen when the war began. He joined the Royal Air Force as a radio specialist because he'd been an uh, a radio, uh, amateur radio enthusiast before the war. He knew that if he didn't volunteer, he was going to be drafted, probably into the infantry. He served all over the empire first in Northern Ireland with a group that was working on anti-submarine warfare. Then he was loaded on board a ship heading for Singapore in the Far East. The ship was torpedoed by a German submarine off the coast of Africa, and the survivors, after a week in an open boat, were taken into Freetown, Sierra Leone. This was the old slave haven, which had been founded by the British when they abolished the slave trade, as a place to repatriate slaves taken off the, uh, the ships of slave pirates. From there, they were shipped to South Africa to refit, and uh, he was urged to settle there after the war to swell the white population. The possibility that eventually South Africa was going to have a conflicted racial future was already foreseen. They set off again for Singapore, but heard along the way that it had fallen to the Japanese armies and diverted to India. From there, he was sent to Egypt, then to a place called Zerka in Transjordan, a place which today is Jordan and then to Palestine, where for the last two years of the war, he lived and worked at Lydda, which was as part of the military occupation of the civil airfield. And he said that everywhere there were study and discussion groups going on, and particularly protest against the class rigidity of British life, and in favour of idealistic socialism. He voted Labour in the election of 1945, and when interviewed by a historian about why, he said... I then viewed Churchill as a spent force. I was imbued with the socialist spirit, as most servicemen were. We'd nearly all come from working-class backgrounds, and our fathers had told us how oppressed they were. War experiences reinforced this feeling, particularly the jarring contact with officers who were completely insensitive uh, or, or who exploited class differences. 
in Palestine, he had the opportunity to talk with Zionists and with Palestinian Arabs and with Egyptians and had a sense of the, the whole British Empire in ferment and of the fact that it was, its dismemberment was imminent. He came back to the United Kingdom in a hospital ship, having contracted polio in the Middle East, but recovered and went on to college on the British equivalent, although it was much less lavish, of the GI Bill. And then uh, spent his, his working life as a high school physics teacher. Well, I thought I'd introduce this little element from my, my family's history, because in some ways my father had the opportunity to see all these parts of the empire at a very volatile moment, just when, the, when it's beginning to... Uh, to recognize the need for radical transformation. It certainly was a jarring shock to Winston Churchill to be ousted from the premiership in the general election of 1945. This was in July, uh, two months after Hitler was defeated. The agreement had been to break up the wartime coalition government when Hitler was defeated. Conservatives favoured an early election anyway because they expected to profit from Churchill's high wartime reputation as leader of the whole nation. But his pre-election speeches were partisan and intolerant, especially one in which he said that socialists would introduce a Gestapo of their own and destroy British freedoms. They certainly didn't have the quality of his great wartime speeches. The Labour leader, Clement Attlee, answered that Churchill, quote, obviously wanted the electorate to understand how great was the distinction between Winston Churchill, the great war leader, and Mr. Churchill, the party leader of the Conservatives. He feared that those who accepted his leadership in war might be tempted out of gratitude to follow him further. I thank him for having disillusioned them so thoroughly. In other words, a little uh, jibe at Churchill for uh, costing his party votes by the tactlessness of his rhetoric. Churchill, in fact, at this point had never won an election to the position of prime minister. He'd been appointed in 1940, but had never been elected on his own account. He joked to some of his friends that if Franklin Roosevelt could win four, he could surely win at least one. And he expected to get a majority of about 60 seats in the House of Commons. But the election results, which showed that he'd lost, were announced in the middle of the Potsdam Conference, in which the British, the Americans and the Russians were together debating the future of Germany and the future of Europe now that Nazism had been defeated. When the conference began, the participants were Truman, Churchill and Stalin. By the end, the participants were Truman, Attlee and Stalin. Both Truman and Attlee were newcomers to the making of foreign policy. Attlee, the new Prime Minister, nationalised major sectors of the British economy because his party was committed to the principle of state socialism. He'd been the Deputy Prime Minister during the war, very good at committee work, conciliatory, not involved in foreign policy questions. Churchill made constant jokes at his expense. He said somewhere, an empty car drew up and Clement Attlee climbed out. He called him a sheep in sheep's clothing. But of course, Attlee had the last laugh. His own constituency, Limehouse, had been bombed almost to the ground during the Blitz. Well, Britain under Attlee had to assess its position in a world dominated by the two new superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union. And Britain could now look to three distinct kinds of future. One was with the empire, the second was with America, and the third was with a united Europe. Over the next few decades after 1945, it gradually became more and more attached to the idea of belonging to a united Europe, which is clearly its principal identity today. 
On the other hand, some prime ministers kept the Anglo-American special relationship very, very strong. This was particularly true of Churchill, then later on uh, Margaret Thatcher, another conservative leader, and most recently Tony Blair during the, uh, the early part of the 21st century. But sooner or later, all of them from both parties recognised that they'd got to give up the British Empire. That wasn't instantly apparent, however, at the war's end. Early on, immediately after the defeat of Hitler, there were still hopes for conciliation with the Soviet Union, but they quickly vanished to be replaced by the Cold War, and Britain became a founding member of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, in 1949, which bound together the United States with Western Europe in an anti-Soviet alliance. Development of its own nuclear weapons gave Britain the ability to make great power claims through the 1950s. What had happened during the Second World War was that Britain had pooled its nuclear knowledge with the Americans during the Manhattan Project. So most of the British nuclear physicists had been working at Oak Ridge or Alamogordo or Hanford, which are the three centres of the uh, nuclear project. But Britain produced and tested its own bomb in 1952. The Russians had done their own in 1949. Still, there was little question now but that Britain was going to have to be allied uh, in collaboration with the Americans in thinking about its foreign policy principles. Clement Attlee informed the new American president, Harry Truman, that Britain could no longer maintain its extensive security operations throughout the world. Britain was effectively bankrupted by the Second World War. It was heavily dependent on American loans, including the aid which is, which is accepted through the Marshall Plan, that contributed to the rebuilding of Western Europe after the war. The, government, the British government found itself unable to act in ways that the American government disapproved of. The Marshall Plan was a very shrewd use of American abundance, which turned the Iron Curtain into a, a wealth and poverty barrier as well as a strategic one, so that throughout the Cold War, to pass over into the eastern zones was at once to pass over into an area which was not only more repressive, but much, much poorer. The whole of Europe was so disorganised by the Second World War, its people were hungry. There were terrible famines in Germany and the Netherlands. In the late 1940s, several years after the war had ended, the average American was consuming about 3,300 calories per day, whereas Western Europeans were consuming only about 1,200. And that was as true of people in Britain as those on the continent itself. The Truman Doctrine embodied the Americans' determination to take over responsibilities that Britain could no longer do, in particular, or first of all, in preventing the spread of communism to Greece and Turkey. All these moves indicated a shift of power to the two new superpowers, and British recognition that its future lay in alliance with one of the two, the United States. It also demonstrated British eagerness to prevent the withdrawal of the United States from European affairs, as had happened at the end of the First World War. Lecture 30, Twilight of the Raj. Once the Labour government under Clement Attlee had decided that it must give India independence, it moved quickly. Lord Louis Mountbatten was the last viceroy, whose task was to supervise the transition of power as smoothly as possible. He openly favoured Jawaharlal Nehru's predominantly Hindu Congress Party, 
which intensified Mohammed Jinnah's determination to create a separate Muslim Pakistan. Sir Cyril Radcliffe, a British civil servant with no experience in India, was given the all but impossible job of, of drawing a boundary line through northwestern India so that the majority of Muslims would be left to the west of it and the majority of Hindus to the east. The mingling of populations over the preceding centuries meant that large minorities of each religion were left in the wrong place. Afraid of victimization, they became refugees as the British departed. Sure enough, horrible sectarian massacres killed between a quarter and half a million people in the turbulence of 1947 and 1948, creating a legacy of bitterness between India and Pakistan that persists up to the present. Gandhi, who had devoted his life to non-violent resistance, was powerless to stop the killing. An ominous symbol of the times was his assassination by a Hindu extremist who accused him of making too many concessions to Muslims. India had never been a single political entity and remained diverse and decentralised right into the 1940s. Its population was religiously and ethnically divided and the majority of its nearly 400 million people lived still as subsistence farmers in villages. Hindus numbered around 250 million, divided into numerous castes, with about 60 million of them belonging to the very lowest caste of the untouchables. The second largest group, population group, was the Muslims, about 90 million. But India also included numerous minorities, Sikhs, Christians, Buddhists and numerous others. There were still, even in the 1940s, about 500 semi-independent princes and maharajas who still ruled under British sufferance. And they feared a loss of their powers in the event that India became united and independent. India has 23 principal languages and several hundred dialects. The Western-educated political class to which Britain planned to hand over power spoke the language of Western politics and communicated with each other in English, but they weren't really representative of the Indian people as a whole. And uh, there had been people in Britain who'd recognised this in the interwar years between the two world wars, for example, an advisor to the Conservative Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin said this, The fact is that the British government, the Viceroy, and to a certain extent the states, have been bounced by Gandhi into believing that a few half-baked, semi-educated urban agitators represent the views of 365 million hard-working and comparatively contented cultivators. It seems to me that the elephant has been stampeded by a flea. In other words, this was the claim made by someone who's opposed to the idea of, Indi of Indian independence and says, who says, just because a tiny minority of highly educated uh, lawyers who've adapted to Western ideas and have come up with the Western idea of nationalism are agitating for Indian uh, self-government doesn't really mean that the people of India themselves are particularly interested in it. That's the claim. Now, it is true that the very idea of nationalism is itself a Western idea imported into India. But, because many of the groups in India had experienced British rule in comparable ways, it did become possible for them to begin thinking of themselves collectively and to create the idea of an independent and united India. Here's the Indian historian uh, Tapan Rechaduri commenting on th this idea. He says, The overt racism of the British in India 
contributed powerfully to the growth of nationalist sentiment. All Indians, whatever their status, shared the experience of being treated as racial inferiors. The life stories of Indian celebrities are full of episodes of racial insults. The perception of shared bondage gave credibility to the notion of shared nationhood. Despite periodic disruptions and repression since the First World War, Britain's position in India had not become untenable. What had happened, however, is that many of the British had lost the will to rule. There was nobody in British India by the 1940s who displayed the kind of ruthless veracity of, of Robert Clive and Warren Hastings back in the 18th century, the people for whom India was a marvellous opportunity for plunder and who scarcely uh, checked themselves in the collection of it. And by the 1940s, there was nobody willing to stamp out rebellion with the same kind of mercilessness as had been showed by General Dyer during the uh, Amritsar massacre in 1919. Various commentators and Indian historians have pointed out that Gandhi himself could only have thrived under a relatively unrepressive regime. Had he been a Russian, Stalin would simply have exterminated him early on and that would have been an end to it. And there's a long tradition of, of scepticism about Gandhi himself and his, his virtues. The English historian Paul Johnson, for example, has never been impressed by Gandhi. He says, Gandhi's eccentricities appealed to a nation which venerates sacral oddity. But his teachings had no relevance to India's programs or aspirations. Hand-weaving made no sense in a country whose chief industry was the mass production of textiles. His food policy would have led to mass starvation. In fact, Gandhi's own ashram, with his own very expensive, simple tastes and innumerable secretaries and handmaidens, had to be heavily subsidised by three merchant princes. As one of his circle observed, it costs a great deal of money to keep Gandhiji living in poverty. About the Gandhi phenomenon, there was always a strong aroma of 20th century humbug. And Paul Johnson, the same historian, goes on to compare him to the sorcerer's apprentice, the, the, uh, the half-trained magician who's learned how to get things started but doesn't know how to stop them. He says, Gandhi could bring a mass movement into being. He could certainly stir people up and, be, and get them out into the streets. But then he was unable to control them and could only wring his hands when the discontent which he'd helped to nurture turned into sectarian rioting and massacre. That's a fairly serious indictment of Gandhi. During the 1940s, Britain took the popularity of the Indian National Army veterans as an ominous sign. These were the people who had uh, deserted from the British Army and joined the Japanese Army and, and, fought, and, and fought against the British. Many of them were arrested and put on trial when the war ended. But, uh, the, to the dismay of the British, they were found to be popular and respected when they were tried for treason. Nehru, who was going to become the first Prime Minister of India, represented some of them in court. The historian Stanley Walpert says this about the trial. The trial became a eulogy for Bose, that was the leader of the Indian National Army, a tribute to India's martial courage, a symbol of her sense of total independence, a matter more of pride than of justice. It helped weaken the last ties of loyalty to the Raj, for here were Indian soldiers who had actually fired at Englishmen at Imphal and stood up to claim that they did so for love of India, from patriotic motives. In other words, that far from being traitors, they were the true Indian patriots because they'd fought against the British. 
Well, all those who were convicted of treason were given suspended sentences rather than be executed, as you would expect of a, a conviction for treason in wartime. And perhaps this was because the British themselves remembered what had happened in Dublin after the, uh, the post office uprising in 1916. If you kill them, they'll at once become martyrs. Better simply to leave them for the moment in prison. At the end of the war against Japan, there were also mutinies. Uh, the Indian sailors on the frigate Tauwa mutinied in February 1946. The captain of the ship called the sailors coolie bastards or black buggers. 7,000 other Indian sailors joined in. The British tried to restore order when the mutineers provoked riots in Calcutta and Madras, two of, long two of the principal centres of British rule in India. Over 200 people were killed in the ensuing fighting. Well, this is the background to the uh, appearance of the Labour government and the British declaration of its determination to leave India. The Ackley government set an early deadline for its departure. And Parliament passed the Indian Independence Act with little opposition in July 1947. The Prime Minister appointed Lord Louis Mountbatten, the man who had previously been the head of the Southeast Asia Command during the Second World War, as the final Viceroy. Mountbatten replaced General Wavell, who'd been there as Viceroy since 1943. Wavell was a not very successful general from the Second World War, a shy and studious man who said of himself that his role in the war had been to conduct withdrawals and to mitigate defeats. When he was appointed Viceroy, Wavell wrote, I very much doubt whether my brain power or personality are up to it. So a strange negative uh, character, a very odd choice to rise so high in the, uh, in the army and then become Viceroy of India. Wavell himself believed India should be independent and he felt ashamed at the prevarication of Churchill's government, which during the war was doing everything it could to prevent that being the final outcome. Mountbatten replaced Wavell in March of 1947. He was a charmer. He was the great-grandson of Queen Victoria, the uncle of Prince Philip, the current Duke of Edinburgh. Royal glamorous, with a successful war record, and admired and liked throughout the world. He was still only 46 then, whereas Wavell was in his mid-60s. A mission of three trusted cabinet, minute, cabinet members had been unable to convince the Indian political leaders in 1946 that some kind of constitutional union scheme in which India would stay inside the British Empire was viable. As sectarian unre unrest worsened, Mountbatten brought the date of independence forwards to August 1947. He negotiated with the principal figures in Indian political life with a sense of desperate urgency in the hope of being able to bring about a peaceful transition. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Churchill throughout, the, throughout his whole life had been absolutely dedicated to preserving the British Empire. And he believed that Britain first ought to be a great power, and second, couldn't be a great power unless it had its worldwide colonial empire. He'd fought in India as a young man, and he'd done everything throughout his political career to try to preserve the British Empire in India. But now, in addition to the galling shock of losing the general election of 1945, he has the further dismaying sense that his successors are offloading the empire as quickly as they can, and even getting rid of what was called the jewel in the crown, India itself. He deplored the short deadline for British departure because he said once the British set a deadline, they've got no leverage at all over what goes on. People can simply wait them out in the knowledge that they're going to leave. And Churchill accurately foresaw that British departure would precipitate ho horrifying violence. He said, 
Everyone knows that the short time limit is fatal to any orderly transference of power. And I'm bound to say that the whole thing wears the aspect of an attempt by the government to make use of brilliant war figures, in other words, Mountbatten, in order to cover up a melancholy and disastrous transaction. That was prophetic. Well, after years of prevarication and delay, suddenly now everything moved very, very quickly in the spring and summer of 1947. And somehow the accumulated uh, phenomena of more than two centuries of imperialism had to be uh, undone very, very rapidly. Jawaharlal Nehru, the Congress leader, hoped to be able to retain Indian unity. But his party, Indian National Congress, was overwhelmingly Hindu in character. Muhammad Ali Jinnah, was determined to create a separate Pakistan for India's Muslims, fearing that otherwise they'd become a permanent, persecuted minority. Incidentally, the idea of Pakistan was a, a recent one. It was invented by a group of Muslim students studying at Cambridge University in 1932. And here's what it meant. P for Punjab, A for the Afghan areas, K for Kashmir, S for Sindh. But Pak also means pure. In other words, it's the land of purity, but it's also a useful acronym. So it's a, a punning title for this proposed new country, which didn't yet exist. Ironically, Jinnah himself was the grandson of converts to Islam, and himself spoke no Urdu, though that was to be one of the dominant languages. He wasn't very religious. He was heavily anglicised, wore western clothes through most of his life. He had a house in London, and for many years Jinnah had been a successful lawyer practising at the London Bar. By the mid-1940s, he was dying from complications of tuberculosis and cancer. But he negotiated with a steady single-mindedness for partition. If you've seen the Ben Kingsley movie, Gandhi, you'll probably remember that Jinnah there is, is depicted as the villain, the, the hard-faced politician who won't make compromises at a time when Gandhi was willing to make them. But that's perhaps a little bit unfair to Jinnah. He certainly had good reasons for his own conduct and a sense of the, of the potential peril to which a Muslim minority might be subjected in a Hindu-dominated, united India. Well, Parliament reluctantly agreed to partition in May 1947. By then, of course, the British government was thinking chiefly of the Cold War. That had now become the great new overwhelming geopolitical reality. Attlee hoped that India might, be, might remain unified and might become a pro-Western democracy and a centre of anti-communism in Asia. He was afraid that partition would make it weaker uh, and was afraid particularly that this was an area where the Russians were potentially a great threat. Nobody in Britain had completely forgotten the echoes of the old great game, the 19th century uh, conflict with the Russians, and the fear that sooner or later Russian power might move southwards into the subcontinent itself. As plans were made for partition, the assets of British India were shared out, 82.5% of them to the new state of India, which was much the bigger of the two, and 17.5% to Pakistan. Where was the boundary line going to be? Sir Cyril Radcliffe, a conscientious civil servant, but one who had no prior experience in India, drew the India-Pakistan boundary. But its exact path was kept secret until after independence. 
He had assistants, both Muslim and Hindu, but they were terrified, terrified of reprisals. If they were to participate in the drawing of the line on the wrong side of certain places, they realized that they might literally be jeopardizing the lives of people living in those places and might suffer death in consequence. The populations were incredibly mixed up and had been for centuries by then because uh, the influence of Islam very, had been very, very strong ever since the arrival of the Mughals in the early 1500s. Some Hindu states had Muslim princes, this was true in Hyderabad, and other Muslim states had Hindu princes, that was the case in Kashmir. How were things like that going to be unraveled? And in fact, what was going to happen to the independent states? This was one more question which had to be decided. Again, the uh, historian Stanley Wolpert says, Eight Indian High Court judges, four from Bengal, four from the Punjab, half chosen by Congress, half by the Muslim League, assisted Sir Cyril in drawing his tortuous lines. But all the most bitterly contested decisions were his to make alone, on small maps, often outdated, in rooms remote from the Punjab's dusty reality and Bengal's rain-drenched soil. One of the many complications was the the future of the Sikh population. They were extremely reluctant to be left in Pakistan. But most of the Sikhs lived in the Punjab, which was eventually split between India and Pakistan. They raised the chant of, Death to Pakistan, and sought a state of their own. Now this has been the fate of partition plans ever since the Treaty of Versailles. If you make a partition uh, as a way of trying to honour national groups... You satisfy the larger groups, but you leave smaller groups within the new divisions who want the same principle applied to them that the big minorities are being given. Partition's been tried repeatedly, or was tried repeatedly in the 20th century, and in almost every case, satisfying one minority antagonised other smaller minorities. And the question in India was particularly tormented because... Not only was there a, a Muslim population in the northwest, the part which became West Pakistan, there was also a Muslim majority in Bengal, and that became East Pakistan. In other words, Pakistan itself came into being in two distinct geographical centres, with a thousand miles of India between them. Linguistically and culturally, they were very different. And the resentments of the eastern part finally led to a war of independence and the creation of a new country, Bangladesh, in 1971. It had the larger population, but it lacked the political and economic power and was exploited by West Pakistan in the years between 1947 and 1971. This was another issue that the British had to deal with. Most of the independent princes would have preferred the status quo with the British, They opposed independence, which they expected to rob them of their remaining powers. And they were right to fear it, because very rapidly, nearly all of them were completely stripped of what remaining powers they had. As the turbulence in India intensified, Gandhi appealed in vain for peace. And he struggled to make Hindus and Muslims alike restrain themselves. He told Congress it would be better to hand over to Jinnah entirely than to have partition. Hard-headed Congress party politicians thought he was going senile by then. He was old and he'd never been closely attuned to hard political realities. He'd always been more of an inspirational figure than a political leader in the conventional sense. And certainly at this point, with partition imminent, the politicians in Congress weren't going to take the advice of, of the Mahatma, however much he might be respected. Gandhi even recited verses of the Quran in Hindu temples. 
which in turn made angry Hindu extremists see him as a traitor. They called him Jinnah's slave. August the 15th, 1947, the first day of India's independence, was accompanied by chaos and violence, far worse than anything which had been seen during the previous two centuries of British occupation. There was a symbolic lowering of the Union Jack, the British flag, at Lucknow, the scene of the siege during the 1857 mutiny. The flag had been aloft continuously there ever since, not taken down even at nightfall. About 10 million people fled, keeping of their property only what they could carry. And somewhere between a quarter and half a million people were killed. Even the number of deaths in this period has been hotly disputed. In the, in the city of Amritsar alone, far more people died in sectarian violence than had been killed by General Dyer in the Amritsar massacre of 1919. Entire trainloads of refugees were hijacked by opposing groups and annihilated. An article in Time magazine from Lahore in September 1947 described how the last Europeans were dancing and drinking cocktails in the hotel, but it went on to say, over the deserted railroad station, the smell of corpses hung. One-seventh of Lahore, capital of the Punjab, had been destroyed. Scores of nearby towns and villages had been razed. War, or rather competitive massacre, between Muslims and Sikhs had reached a pitch of horror that made the Indian mutiny of 1857 look like a mere street brawl. Most of the bodies were too hacked and charred to be recognised. Nehru became Prime Minister of the New India, and he dominated it and its parliamentary system for the next 17 years. He felt an overwhelming sense of jubilation as freedom approached, and he said in his speech, Long years ago, we made a tryst with destiny, and now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge, not wholly or in full measure, but very substantially. At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will wake to life and freedom. Let us take the pledge of dedication to the service of India and her people, and to the still larger cause of humanity. The Indian Constitution of 1949 was drafted by a man who had been born an untouchable. The new India abolished the caste system, although it proved extremely tenacious in practice and remains so right up to the present, particularly in, in rural areas. When the Muslim head of the princely state of Hyderabad refused to join a united India, Indian troops invaded and conquered it in 1948. This was uh, the fulfilment of the dread of the princes that they were going to be some of the victims of this transformation. Jinnah became governor-general of the new country of Pakistan. One in ten of Pakistan's population from the outset were refugees, about seven million people in all, fleeing from India, a daunting burden to impose on any government, but most of all, a new one. And for, for years afterwards, there was a condition of desperate poverty among the refugees. Jinnah wanted Muslim dominance, but he also wanted a secular government. He didn't want it to be a theocratic state. He, he favoured religious freedom in Pakistan. He was clearly influenced by his many years in the United Kingdom and by the Enlightenment traditions that he'd learned there. Here's a, an extract from an early speech by Jinnah. If we want to make this great state of Pakistan happy and prosperous, we should wholly and solely concentrate on the well-being of the people, and especially of the masses and the poor. You are free. You are free to go to your temples, mosques, or any other place of worship in this state of Pakistan. You may belong to any religion, caste or creed, that has nothing to do with the business of the state. 
In due course of time, Hindus will cease to be Hindus and Muslims will cease to be Muslims, not in a religious sense, for that is the personal faith of an individual, but in a political sense, as citizens of one state. Jinnah died in 1948 and was buried in a massive mausoleum in Karachi that became Pakistan's national monument. Meanwhile in India, Gandhi, now 79 years old, was sickened by the bloodletting and by the new Indian government's persecution of Muslims. Ironically, Gandhi had always admired much about the British Empire and its comparative tolerance which had enabled him to flourish there. He began to fast in January 1948 until the new Indian government promised a more conciliatory policy towards its Muslim minority. But a few days later, a Hindu extremist, Naturam Godse, assassinated him at his house in New Delhi. Like Jinnah, Nehru, the new Indian Prime Minister, wanted a secular state, and the killing of Gandhi enabled him to point out the hazards of religious fanaticism. Godse was hanged, and his movement was outlawed. The historian Walpert says, Through his martyrdom, Gandhi came closer to achieving his goal of Hindu-Muslim unity than he ever did in his lifetime. So that's the final irony of the Mahatma's life. Well, historians continue to debate the pros and cons of the British Empire in India. The British probably created, or had created over nearly 200 years, a more peaceable situation in most of India than ever before. Although there were constant rebellions against British rule, most of them were extremely minor, uh, and there were very, very few major wars after 1800, whereas prior to 1800, the entire subcontinent had been almost continuously riven by bitter strife. So from the point of view of the ordinary peasant farmer, the period of the British Empire was probably one of relatively good government, relatively honest government, and relative internal peace and stability. On the other hand, it's true that the British were never able to prevent periodic famines, and they left the vast majority of Indians poor and illiterate when they left. The average standard of living in Britain had gone up much faster than the average standard of living in India. And you could take the view that a fair measure of judgment of the empire would be whether the empire's peoples benefited as much from uh, economic development as did the people in the home country. If that's the criterion, then clearly the British Empire in India had failed. Here's the Indian historian Tapan Rechodori. He says, In India, some 48-53% to 53 of the rural population were below the poverty line in 1947, the year of independence. In other words, nearly half the population could not afford the minimum amount of food required to sustain the human body. Average life expectancy was 29 years. Nearly 88% of the population was illiterate, and the rate of illiteracy was even higher among women. India had not developed an industrial base to compensate for the poverty of the countryside. And still, even at the end of the British Empire, India had among the very lowest per capita incomes in the world. But the British had permitted, and eventually even encouraged, the education of a native elite, whose members were administrators, lawyers and businessmen, able to create the cadre that could begin running the country after the British Empire had gone. So I think it's reasonable to say that, with all its failings and with all our current disapproval of the idea of the domination of one country by another, the British Empire was, is a genuine, has a genuinely mixed legacy of accomplishments along with some very shameful failures.
Lecture 31 Israel, Egypt, and the Suez Canal. Zionists had been settling and working in Palestine since the turn of the century. First, when it was part of the Ottoman Empire, and then, after 1919, when it was a British Mandate territory under the League of Nations. The near extermination of European Jewry during the Holocaust created an immense wave of sympathy for Jews after World War II, giving the idea of an independent Israel more credibility among the world's governments than ever before. Britain had pledged itself to the idea with the Balfour Declaration of 1917, and in 1948 it attempted the same kind of partition between Israel and Palestine as it had tried the year earlier, earlier with Ireland and the year earlier with India and Pakistan. British forces, eager to leave because they were under attack from militant Zionist militias, were again unable to prevent post-colonial warfare, which continued in the ensuing decades. Egypt, also newly liberated from British control, led an attack on Israel, but suffered a humiliating defeat. In 1952, a new Egyptian leader, Gamal Abdel Nasser, rose to power through an officer's coup. Eager to defy Britain and Israel, he seized the Suez Canal, which had been Britain's gateway to India ever since its completion in 1869. Britain, France and Israel responded by drawing up a secret plan to recapture the canal and launched their campaign in the fall of 1956. President Eisenhower, however, furious at not being notified, ordered the British to stop. The fact that they did stop showed unmistakably that Britain was no longer a first-rate world power capable of unilateral imperial actions. Well, Britain ruled Palestine after World War I through a League of Nations mandate, but it was unable to stop the escalation of political tensions. For a while at the beginning, just after the departure of the Ottoman Empire, there was some promise of an amicable multicultural society. Here's what the historian James Morris says about it. Never had the colonial service possessed such a city as Jerusalem, and its officers guarded it lovingly. The walled city they preserved intact in all its medieval intricacy, its cavernous bazaars and its dusty, wrinkled alleys. Outside the walls, New Jerusalem had arisen under the imperial aegis, in golden stone too, but flat-roofed and spacious. Here, a new mixture of cultures had been fostered. Here, one could see the new generation of westernized Arabs, British-educated and gentlemanly, dressed often in well-cut tweeds or cavalry twill, speaking in exquisite English, and constituting the most highly skilled and widely cultured elite of the Arab world. Beside them, the urban Jews flourished, refugees often from Vienna or Berlin, running bookshops, serving cakes at Viennese cafes, rehearsing with the Palestine Philharmonic, or presiding over intellectual tea parties behind the Hebrew University. The members of these two communities were not natural enemies. They had much in common and were much alike. It had been the high ambition of the British to bring them together, to fuse them into a governing class, and so bring their government of Palestine to an honourable conclusion. So again, it's, it's, it's important not to read back current tensions into the past. In 1920, it did seem possible that the two communities could uh, coexist harmoniously. 
The Zionist movement, founded by Theodor Herzl in the late 19th century, inspired thousands of European Jews to migrate to Palestine. It was a response to rising anti-Semitism and to pogroms in the Russian Empire. In the 1880s, the Russian Tsars began to persecute Jews with, with renewed zeal and intensity. Theodor Herzl was a Vienna journalist from the Austro-Hungarian Empire who covered the Dreyfus case in Paris in the 1890s, itself an example of the intense anti-Semitism still felt in many parts of Europe. And he came to believe, Herzl came to believe, that the Jews of Europe would never be secure unless they were to have a homeland of their own. His book, The Jewish State, published in 1896, is often seen as the founding of modern Zionism, or perhaps the first Zionist Congress held the next year, 1897, at Basel in Switzerland. The Zionists were determined to be self-sufficient, and if necessary, to be self-defending, in, in Palestine, those who returned established the first kibbutzim, collective farms, where all property and all work were shared. This is one of the successful examples of practical idealistic socialism. And the Zionistic ideal bound together the kibbutzniks and, and, and enabled them to work harmoniously over long periods of time, rather than uh, witnessing the kind of deterioration of common ventures, which has been common in many other uh, so socialist experiments, particularly that of the Soviet Union. Zionism attracted enthusiastic recruits like David Ben-Gurion, who, who was born in Russian Poland. He wasn't very religious. Sometimes he identified himself as a Marxist, but he was inspired also by the regathering in Israel, and Ben-Gurion was the man who eventually would become the first prime minister of Israel. The Zionists also resolved to revive Hebrew as a living language, for centuries, it had simply been the scriptural language of the Hebrew Bible. This was the idea of a Lithuanian immigrant, Eliezer ben Yehuda. It was an excellent way of creating a new cultural unity, despite the practical difficulties. In terms of, the, of, of ease of, of practical use, Yiddish would have been the most sensible language for the early Zionists to use. But Hebrew, then, right, and right up to the present, carries a great symbolic power as the language of a regathered uh, people of Israel. The kibbutzim also um, cultivated the uh, mystique of hard outdoor work. They didn't want to be dependent on the work of Arab laborers who were hired, and they very much didn't want to be like the urbanized ghetto Jews of Europe, people whose, whose way of life was often commercial. So there's a great cult of the, the physical hard work in the outdoors and of farming and orchard work and looking after the chickens among the kibbutz people. The Balfour Declaration of 1917 made support for an eventual State of Israel official British government policy. Balfour was the British Foreign Secretary, uh, who had con conclusive evidence by 1917 that the Turkish Empire would dissolve, that Britain would almost certainly be the successor uh, state dominating the area, and that uh, Zionism was justifiable. The actual wording of the Balfour Declaration is a little bit paradoxical. It says this, his Majesty's government views with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. 
uh, the Balfour Declaration didn't actually specify that there was going to be a Jewish state. The wording was a national home for the Jewish people. But it did specify that there should be such a national home and the right to migrate to Palestine. The first British High Commissioner to, uh, to mandate Palestine was Sir Herbert Samuel. Uh, this is in the years 1920 to 1925. And he was himself an English Jew who became the first Jew for nearly 2,000 years to head a government in the Holy Land. He was a Zionist, but he also had an absolute loyalty to the British Empire. And this was common in the years before the creation of Israel, this feeling that it was possible to have double loyalties. And Samuel was both. So in some respects, a very, very shrewd choice on the part of the British government to send one of its own most trusted servants, who was also sympathetic to Zionism itself. But because he was Jewish, he had to work very hard to allay Arab fears that Britain was taking sides in what was beginning to develop as a, a conflict. As Hitler's persecution of the Jews began after 1933, British policy began to discourage Jewish immigration to Palestine because as more Jews came in, so greater conflict was provoked with the Palestinian Arabs. The British could see that it was intensifying friction in the country. The Jews were extremely hard-working. More and more of them were buying land and making it more productive than it, than it had ever been before through irrigation projects. Areas which for centuries had simply been desert were now being transformed into fertile and productive farmland. In the 1930s, the Jewish population doubled as European refugees from Hitler began to pour in despite an unsympathetic British migration policy. There were perhaps 600,000 Jews in, in Palestine by at 1939. The Arabs took the view that the country was theirs, time out of mind. The Zionist view was that it was a land given to them, given to them by God himself and that their sacred books confirmed it. Immigration was the key issue to these escalating tensions. Ben-Gurion and other Zionist leaders wanted numbers at all costs. The Arabs wanted to prevent them and the British wanted to keep the peace. So each group's got a fairly well-identified objective, and then there's a three-way wrangle between them. Well, British promises to Arab leaders during the First World War appear to contradict the Balfour Declaration. In my lectures about the First World War and the Treaty in Versailles during this course, I explained the way in which Lawrence of Arabia felt that the British had betrayed promises which he had given to the Arab leaders in good faith. Uh, and that the Arabs had been sold out by an unreasonable British policy at Versailles. In 1921, Britain made Mohammed Amin al-Husseini the Mufti, that is to say the senior judge, of Jerusalem. And this was a choice made by Herbert Samuel, the, the Jewish High Commissioner, to mollify Arab opinion, which was horrified by the British appointment of a Jewish governor. In the long run, uh, Samuel and the rest of the British administration regretted this choice of, for the Mufti because he was a fanatical anti-Semite whom Britain had earlier imprisoned for provoking anti-Jewish riots. Among other things, the Mufti believed the protocols of the learned elders of Zion. This is a, um, a notorious forgery, a document created sometime in the late 19th century, which alleged to prove that the Jews sacrificed children, Christian children and drank their blood, that they tortured animals and that they had a sinister design to take over the entire world. In the history of 20th century anti-Semitism, the protocols of the learned elders of Zion often crops up as a document uh, in which, which anti 
Semites use to justify their persecution of the Jews. And there's no question that it's a forgery. The Mufti set about assassinating the Arab moderates, which made a peaceful solution to the issue much less likely. Many Arab moderates had cooperated with early Zionist settlers, which is why for a, for a time it had seemed at least possible that there might be a harmonious multi-ethnic society. And the result is that the Arab leaders left were more uncompromising. The Arabs became progressively more anti-Jewish, uh, a condition expressed in their uprisings of 1920, 21 and 29. In 1936, 9,000 British soldiers were sent to Palestine to suppress an Arab revolt. That intensified Arab anti-British feeling and led to many of the Arabs sympathising with Hitler during the Second World War, since he was the man who seemed most likely to reduce British power, and also because he was anti-Jewish himself. This was the setting in which Ord Wingate, the eccentric British intelligence officer who I've also mentioned in some of the previous lectures, trained and fought with the special night squads, the counter-guerrilla force in which the Israeli settlers learned how to fight back using irregular warfare techniques. Well, finally, during the Second World War, the Mufti was to go to Berlin and recruit some Muslims into the Nazi SS. Britain created a Jewish brigade during World War II, which became the nucleus of the Israel, uh, Israel Defence Force at the war's end. There was some discussion in Britain about whether it was a good idea to let the Jewish Brigade fight under its own colours from fear that that would increase its uh, uh, political leverage in post-war negotiations. But Churchill was sympathetic to Zionism and he, he intervened on its behalf in 1944, so it did actually go into combat with a blue and white Zionist flag, fighting not in the Middle East but in the Italian campaign. Its members' view was that they should fight for Britain until Nazism had been defeated but then that it should be ready to fight for Israel at the war's end, if necessary, against Britain. David Ben-Gurion, who was the head of the Jewish agency by then, and the leader of the Israeli Labour Party, later to be the first Prime Minister, urged Palestinian Jews during the war to join the British army to fight against Nazism. Sympathy for the surviving victims of Hitler's anti-Jewish policies coincided with British determination to fold up the empire in the late 1940s. So uh, when the Second World War ended, the full magnitude of the Holocaust inside Europe was revealed clearly to everyone. During the war, there had been a lot of uncertainty and a lot of rumour about how extensive this policy was. It soon became clear in 1945 and 46 that Hitler really had attempted the mass extermination of all the Jews of Europe and had succeeded in killing millions of them. That creates sympathy on the international scene and the election of the Attlee government and its determination to abandon the empire coincided. Holocaust survivors wanted to migrate to Palestine as soon as the fighting ended, but British policy was still to limit and discourage them because they thought that the more uh, Jewish settlers came, the more difficult it was going to be to broker a stable and, and, and permanent post-imperial policy. The result was that British authorities often turned away shiploads of desperate survivors. But it's also true that a steady stream of people was arriving, being smuggled in secretively by the Zionist agencies. There were two extremist Zionist groups, the Stern Gang and Irgun, and they, they began attacking the British as a way of hastening their departure. Abraham Stern, a Polish Jew and Anglophobe, a, a, Briton, a Briton hater, began attacks on the British, but he was killed in 1942. 
Irgun was led by Menachem Begin, who later was to become the Prime Minister of Israel and would be the man who, along with Anwar Sadat and President Jimmy Carter, finally brokered the Camp David Peace Treaty of 1978. Irgun, his group, was a more powerful anti-British terrorist group, attacking the infrastructure of British rule. And their most dramatic and notorious uh, act was uh, blowing up the King David Hotel in Jerusalem in July 1946, killing 100 people, including 17 Jews. It was a British military intelligence station, as well as the place where some of the British uh, officers were staying. Only two minutes warning of the blast were given, and that was insufficient to get the people out. Winston Churchill was dismayed by the rise of Irgun, and he warned that it would be a tragedy, quote, if our dreams of Zionism are to end in the smoke of an assassin's pistol, and the labours for its future produce a new set of gangsters worthy of Nazi Germany. There was great controversy, even within the Zionist uh, camp, about the rights and wrongs of Irgun. For example, Chaim Weizmann, who was to be the first president of Israel, and was himself a Zionist, was also a political moderate who'd lived most of his life in England. He was a chemistry professor. Deplored Irgun, saying Israel would go to the utmost limits of its power to destroy Irgun. In other words, it was exactly the kind of Israel that Weizmann didn't want to see coming into existence. In India, as I said in the last lecture, the Hindus and the Muslims had turned on each other and killed hundreds of thousands, but there were virtually no attacks on the British, the departing imperial power. In Palestine, by contrast, the British were targets, and that, of course, had the effect of increasing their eagerness to leave. In that sense, there's no question that Irgun terrorism was effective. One of the great difficulties of setting a deadline for your departure is that you yourself think it's time to go and are very reluctant to lay down your life in the last few remaining weeks or months of an empire which is clearly leaving. And you, you, and by creating a deadline, you hand over to the adversary a much stronger bargaining position than you would have done if you left your departure date uncertain. Anyway, the Irgun attacks and the murder of two captured British sergeants in 1947 made the British army more and more anti-Israeli, anti-Zionist. It also had the effect of provoking the first anti-Jewish riots in England since the 13th century. A synagogue in Derby, which is my hometown, was burned down by an, an angry, indignant mob about, in, in reaction to the death of the sergeants and the, burning of the, uh, the destruction of the King David Hotel. The historian Paul Johnson says, When the evacuation took place, this is when the British finally did leave, when the evacuation took place, officers and men conspired to hand over weapons, posts and supplies to the Arabs. The military consequences were very serious. In effect, Jewish terrorism cost the Jewish state the old city of Jerusalem and the West Bank of the Jordan, which were not taken until 1967 and then without legal title. The United Nations, another new organization in the mid-1940s, devised a two-nation solution for the Israel-Palestine dilemma in November 1947 and enjoyed the support of President Truman. 33 countries voted for it, 13 voted against it, and 10 abstained, including Britain itself, which took the view that since it was the departing power, it ought not to appear to be casting its vote either in favour or against. The American Jewish community's support for Israel was very important, vital at the beginning of Israel's existence, and it's been important ever since. There was a great deal of successful lobbying of the US government, uh, and, and the American Jewish community had come of age by the 1940s, 
Many of the American Jews who'd been new immigrants between 1880 and 1920, now the second and third generations were growing up fully assimilated to American life, becoming prosperous and uh, learning the techniques of political lobbying. Besides, President Truman was more sympathetic to Zionism than, Fran than Franklin Roosevelt had been. Meanwhile, the British, by then, couldn't wait to leave. Here's what James Morris, the historian, says. Nagged by the United Nations, pestered by the Americans, bewildered by the Zionists, insulted by the Arabs, excoriated by world opinion, exhausted by the strain of it, impoverished by the cost, disillusioned, embittered. In December 1947, the British government announced that, like Pontius Pilate before them, they would have no more of it. They washed their hands of the Holy Land. The final evacuation took place on May the 14th, 1948. On the same afternoon, David Ben-Gurion read out the Israeli Declaration of Independence in Hebrew at a, a ceremony in Tel Aviv. And, and in the uh, declaration, he made a reference to Theodor Herzl, the founder of the Zionist movement, and a reference to the Balfour Declaration, which had helped bring about this eventual outcome. Ben-Gurion also said that Israel would conform to United Nations principles. And it appealed, um, quote, in the very midst of the onslaught launched against us to the Arab inhabitants of the state of Israel to play their part in the development of the state on the basis of full and equal citizenship and due representation in all its bodies and institutions. He was already looking forward to the fact that Israel, as created, had a large Arab population whose participation was highly desirable to the success of the state. The Soviet Union, this is the very early days of the Cold War, the Soviet Union initially favoured the creation of Israel because it looked, as, it looked on Israel as a way of weakening British influence in the Middle East. The British are leaving the Middle East, that's good for the Soviet Union, and therefore Israel ought to be a client. That's why one of the Soviet puppet states, Czechoslovakia, was authorised to send weapons to Haganah, the, uh, the Jewish, the Israeli Defence Force. Israel's Arab neighbours never recognised this new nation, and it had to fight for its life right from the beginning. Israel surprised the world by defeating a joint attack against it by Egyptians, Jordanians, Syrians, Iraqis, Lebanese and Palestinians. It seemed inconceivable that Israel, which had only just come into existence, could possibly repel such a combination of, of adversaries, but it was able to do so. Its enemies were fragmented and squabbling, poorly led, with no adequate maps. The Arab Legion did succeed in capturing the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem, but overall it was Israel that made immense gains in this war, and that laid the foundation, which is um, prospered ever since, of the power and determination of Israeli fighters. Just as the kibbutzniks wanted to transform the old image of what Jews were like, so did the Israeli Defense Force. But again, the, the, the war had some extremely odious aspects. Irgun terrorism at the village of Deir Yassin, for example, contributed, the, contributed to the panicked departure of thousands of Arabs from Israeli territory. This was on the 9th of April 1948, just before independence. It led to the killing of 250 men, women and children. An Irgun spokesman said, We intend to attack, conquer and keep until we have the whole of Palestine and Transjordan in a greater Jewish state. We hope to improve our methods in future and make it possible to spare women and children. This, it's hard not to describe this attack as a terrorist act, 
which certainly did have the effect of prompting a lot of of, of Israeli Arabs to think that there was no future for them in Israel and that they did in fact have to flee. Over half a million Palestinian refugees became the nucleus of an intractable political problem over the ensuing decades. And of course the surrounding Arab states had an incentive not to absorb and assimilate the Palestinian refugees because so long as they were living in camps, these camps would become the training grounds for new generations of extremists and suicide bombers and people determined at all costs to annihilate Israel, which is part of the situation re uh, remaining right up to the present. A comparable number of Jews from the Arab countries fled to Israel, but they were very quickly integrated into the new Jewish state. So there's a great asymmetry in the fate of refugees in the two areas. About 350,000 new Jewish arrivals came to Israel during the first 18 months of Israel's existence from 74 different countries. 750,000 had come by the end of 1951, nearly doubling the Jewish population. They strengthened Israel in the long run, but they did create severe problems at first. Uh, many of them had to live in tent cities for several years, but the Israeli government was committed to the principle of fully assimilating them. Now, in 1956, an Anglo-French-Israeli joint attack on Egypt was thwarted by American intervention. And this is the series of events which are remembered now as the Suez Crisis. What happened is that Nasser, an uh, uh, Egyptian army general, overthrew King Farouk of Egypt in 1952. And that had the effect of hastening the final exit of Britain from Suez. The British had, had moved into Egypt in 1882 with the Battle of Tel el-Kabir and constantly from then on had been telling the local Egyptian people we're just going to stay for the duration of this particular crisis but in the end they stayed there for 70 years so it was a very protracted uh, stay. Nasser, the new leader, was a charismatic Arab nationalist. He tried to play off the great Cold War rivals, the United States and the, United, and the, and the Soviet Union, against one another. And this was the period when, during the Cold War, the Russians and the Americans were trying very hard to rearrange every political conflict in the world into a part of this great power rivalry. The Russians would try to uh, send aid and weapons and military advice to Egypt. The Americans would try to do the same thing, each one hoping that it could get the sympathy of the Egyptian government. And NASA, understanding that, tried to play them off against each other and get the best things from both sides. He declared that the Suez Canal was Egypt's national asset and he seized it unilaterally in 1956. Britain, France and Israel designed and executed a campaign to retake the canal. But Britain was unable to prevent Egypt from blocking the canal and interrupting oil shipments through it. President Eisenhower was furious at the fact that the British had not consulted him about their plans. And he threatened Britain with economic ruin if it didn't halt its forces. It seemed to him much too reminiscent of 1882, the kind of high-handedness which Imperial Britain at its zenith could get away with but could do so no longer. Eisenhower was afraid that the whole Arab world would join the Soviet sphere of influence if America condoned a high-handed action of this kind. When the British currency began a violent depreciation, Eisenhower said that the American Treasury would only support the, the pound sterling in exchange for a British cessation of military operations. And Britain agreed. In return, Eisenhower ordered a bailout from the International Monetary Fund. 
Well, here's the uh, English historian Simon Sharma commenting on the episode. An exercise that had been planned to demonstrate how the British lion could still roar retreated in a mouse-like squeak in the face of a United States-led United Nations resolution. It was a humiliating defeat uh, for, the, for the, the British government and led to the early resignation of Anthony Eden, the Prime Minister, who was humiliated by it. In the same year, 1956, there was a, an uprising in Hungary behind the Iron Curtain of Hungarians trying to throw off Soviet domination. Many people in the, so in the United States hoped that the Americans would go to the aid of the Hungarian rebels, but they didn't. And so 1956 was a bewildering year when suddenly uh, all the alliances seemed in question. Uh, oddly, America had criticised Britain and, and, fought, and prevented its ventures without doing anything to help the people to whom it ought to have been particularly sympathetic, the Hungarian rebels. Well, that was one of the characteristics of, of, of power politics and spheres of influence during the Cold War. The British surrender to American pressure demonstrated the, effect, the effective end of their ability to act the role of an imperial power. Now, post-Empire Britons in the 1960s and 70s found the kibbutzim an, ex an inspiring example of democratic socialism in action. And when I was a child and a teenager, it was very common for British kids of my generation to volunteer to go off to work in the kibbutz for a year. Not because they were great Zionists, but because they were idealistic socialists. And the kibbutz seemed to be a place where, in a non-coercive environment, it really worked. British opinion itself, political opinion, remained divided between the rights and wrongs of the Arabs and the Israelis. And it's certainly true right up to the present that the British media, the press and the TV, are far readier than the American media to see the Palestinian side of the question with the same sympathy as it sees the Israeli side. I mentioned a few lectures ago that Irish independence in 1922 is a good point to date the beginning of the end. 1956 is a good year to date the end of the end, especially in the matter of Britain as a great power. Lecture 32. The Decolonization of Africa. At first, after World War II, it seemed possible that most of Britain's African colonies would remain parts of the empire, even though India and Israel were moving quickly to independence. The colonial office undertook various well-intentioned schemes aimed at strengthening their economies and educating African elites, but few prospered. After the Suez Crisis of 1956, British policy shifted to offering early grants of independence with politicians from both major parties feeling they had no real alternative. The United States, Britain's chief Cold War ally, was unsympathetic to the empire. Colonialism was almost certainly no longer profitable, and the Soviet Union was looking for sympathetic clients in Africa. In the late 1950s and early 1960s, accordingly, the British departed from all their principal African colonies, including Gold Coast, Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, and Botswana. In numerous cases, the frail democracies Britain tried to construct before departing collapsed, leaving charismatic strongmen in charge, such as Milton Obote in Uganda and Kwame Nkrumah in Gold Coast. 
Rather than let the same thing happen to southern Rhodesia, its Prime Minister, Ian Smith, issued a unilateral declaration of independence in 1965, hoping that he could maintain a white-dominated country. His experiment survived until 1980. That of apartheid-based South Africa lasted until 1994. British politicians between 1945 and 1956 believed that the African colonies were not ready for independence, and it was certainly a reasonable uh, assertion to make. Various economic growth projects, like the Tanganyika groundnut scheme from 1948 to 1950, were, however, costly and embarrassing failures. Most of the African colonies had frail economies, dependent on the export of raw materials. The British Labour government had the idea of growing peanuts, which then were called groundnuts, in Tanganyika to alleviate food shortages in post-war Britain and in the, in the hope of being able to strengthen the local economy. On paper, it looked like a very good scheme. 100,000 ex-soldiers from World War II volunteered. But then virtually everything that could go wrong with the scheme did go wrong. And partly because the whole venture was planned remotely from the United Kingdom and it was difficult to get appropriate decisions made quickly on the spot. There was just a single railway line from the coast to the area which was being developed to bring in the necessary bulldozers, but it was washed away in a flood. Then everything had to be moved on a dirt, on a dirt road instead, but the convoys were often bogged down by torrential rains. They were attacked at various times by elephants, lions, rhinoceroses and crocodiles. In the area where the, the ground nuts themselves were supposed to be grown, there was extremely tenacious brush that was very, very difficult to uproot. The uh, workers found that one of the few ways of doing it was to attach a chain between two bulldozers and drag gradually across the land, ripping up everything along the way. Most of the tractors and bulldozers were damaged beyond repair because of the severity of the land in which they were working. They disturbed killer bees in hollow trees, which severely stung workers, many of whom had to be hospitalised. Some of the other trees couldn't be moved because they were sacred to the local tribes, who absolutely refused their cooperation if these trees were disturbed. There was no local water supply, and when piped water was brought in to concrete pools, the local people insisted on swimming there. Heavy flooding swept away an early crop, and then a brutal drought killed nearly everything else. One thing after the next went wrong with the scheme. By 1950, with £30 million of government money already spent, they had almost nothing to show for it at all, and the whole project was cancelled in 1951. It's one of the most unmitigated failures of economic planning in British imperial history. A perfect example, really, of political naivety, over-centralised remote planning, and oblivion about local experience. It's almost comparable to Soviet agricultural experiments, although they led to the mass starvation of, of millions, whereas at least this project didn't have that horrible side effect. The Atlantic Charter, signed by Britain and America during World War II, and then the Indian independence movement, stimulated the growth of African nationalism. The boundaries of the African countries were, had been drawn up by the colonial powers, and it was for their convenience often bearing no relation at all to tribal realities. For example, in 1948, Abu Bakar Balewa, who was later to be Nigeria's first Prime Minister, wrote this, 
Since 1914, the British government has been trying to make Nigeria into one country, but the Nigerian people themselves are historically different in their backgrounds, in their religious beliefs and customs, and do not show themselves any signs of willingness to unite. Nigerian unity is only a British invention. But Western-educated leaders in Africa began to see that the British would hand over to men like themselves, people who'd come to believe in the centrality of nation-states to contemporary political life. And therefore, they began planning to create such nation-states. And again, the, the experience of India was instructive. It was the, it was the Western-educated elites who eventually had become politically significant in India and Pakistan. But there's been continued tension, there was then and there has been ever since, between the old tribalism and the new nationalism. Very often, nationalism was used as the justification for independence. But very soon after that, uh, the new African nations turned into places dominated by the most powerful of the old tribes which had pre-existed the uh, imperial arrival. Britain faced all sorts of, of problems. There was a, an uprising uh, called the Mau Mau Rising in Kenya between 1952 and 56. It was suppressed successfully by British forces, but brutally and again at great cost and with great difficulty. It was confined to the Kikuyu tribe, and it had the effect of terrifying the minority white population. It wasn't really a nationalist movement so much as a, a peasant revolt, in protest particularly over restrictions on black Africans' access to land, and over denial of their right to participate in lucrative export businesses like the coffee trade. The most famous Kenya coffee planter was probably Isaac Dinerson. Her real name was Karen Blixen. Uh, she's the author of Out of Africa, a, a memoir written in 1937, her reminiscences of life among the white settlers in the coffee business in the Kenyan highlands. The area was called, the area where she lived was called the White Highlands because it was confined to white settlers only. While business had been chronically depressed during the Great Depression of the 1930s, Karen Blixen, among many others, had gone bankrupt at the time. She wasn't as successful as a planter as she was as a writer. But now the, uh, the farmers of the White Highlands were hoping to make good profits after developing the land during the economic boom conditions of the 1950s. At the same time, the rapid growth of the black population put pressure on limited land resources. Tens of thousands of landless Kikuyu tribesmen migrated to Nairobi, which rapidly became much bigger, creating urban instability and anxieties about unemployment. This was part of the background of the creation of the Mau Mau. Now, joining the Mau Mau included taking oaths, and these were rumoured to include drinking blood, cannibalism, even sex with animals. The charismatic leader of the Mau Mau movement was Jomo Kenyatta, himself a partially westernised man. He'd studied in Moscow, and he'd studied at the London School of Economics. He had an English wife named Edna and had spent a large part of the 1930s and 40s abroad. He was an uneasy leader at first who found himself being pushed along by more radical leaders in the movement and implicitly threatened by them if he couldn't keep up with them. The British responded to Mau Mau attacks uh, with repression. The chief victims of Mau Mau violence weren't the English, but rather members of, the, of their own tribe, Kikuyu tribe, who were suspected of collaboration or of loyalty to the empire, including those who simply carried on working for the white planters in the White Highlands. Their motive for doing that, of course, was simply to have work. The British eventually took 150,000 men into custody, 
Some were tortured, others were hanged, and many were listed as having been shot while trying to escape, which probably means that they were summarily executed. And certainly the repression of the, of the Mau Mau is a, a, a scar on the, on the memory of British rule in East Africa. The historian Lawrence James comments about this episode. Very few white settlers were killed by the Mau Mau, but its psychological effect was enormous, reminding them of their smallness in numbers and isolation. Mau Mau was the ultimate white man's nightmare, whose ingredients were images of a dark, impenetrable Africa of witchcraft and fear of sudden attack by crazed tribesmen armed with pangas and spears. It was also very expensive to the British government to suppress the uprising there and another uprising which was taking place in Malaya at the same time. The British Empire had been acquired very cheaply, as I emphasised in the early part of this course. The Empire was acquired almost entirely by private trading companies who were much more interested in the trade opportunities than in actual direct rule over other peoples. And the British taxpayers didn't want a burden of, uh, heavy burden of taxation to pay for colonies, especially not in addition to the cost of the new welfare state, which had been created by the Attlee government between 1945 and 1950. What happened in the election of 1950 is that Winston Churchill won and finally did win an election on his own right as Prime Minister, came back into office in 1951, but found that the welfare state was so popular that his party, the Conservatives, dare not dismantle it, even though it, it came with a heavy burden of taxation. So the empire's costing too much in addition to all these other problems. White settlers began to leave Kenya rather than face the prospect of a black majority rule including many settlers who had come out since World War II. In the late 40s and early 50s, it was possible to believe that Africa was a great um, place for white settlement into the future. But by the mid-50s, it's already starting to seem too risky to many of them. A third of the British settlers, about, about 20,000 white settlers, left Kenya between 1960 and 65. In 1960, the Conservative Prime Minister Harold Macmillan told the South African Parliament in a speech that a wind of change was blowing through Africa. He said, a wind of change is blowing through this continent, and whether we like it or not, this growth of national consciousness is a political fact. We must all accept that it is a fact, and our national policies must take account of it. He was determined, if he possibly could, to avoid the expense and the bitterness of the French Empire in Vietnam and Algeria. What had happened to the French Empire was this. The French had occupied um, Indochina. It in turn had been overrun by the Japanese in World War II. And when World War II ended, the, uh, the Vietnamese had declared independence. Ho Chi Minh had, de had made a declaration of independence closely based on the American Declaration in the hope that the Americans would support uh, Vietnamese independence. But because Ho Chi Minh was a communist, closely allied with the Soviet Union, uh, the French tried to reassert their control, and gradually the Americans escalated their support for the French in upholding this colony. Nevertheless, it, it eventually failed uh, in scenes of great bitterness. And then in the late 1950s, Algeria, another French colony, also fought a long and protracted war of independence, which sooner or later was almost bound to, in, to end with Algerian independence. The British Prime Ministers watching what happened to the French first in Vietnam, then in Algeria, were determined to not go down the same road, but rather to leave gracefully of their own accord before it came to such, uh, such desperate blows. 
Well, the failure of the British expedition at Suez and an unsympathetic international environment prompted an almost complete British departure from Africa before, between 1956 and 1966, despite the British officials' misgivings about whether many of these areas really were ready for self-government. There was a severe lack of educated local elites, and that made the prospect of democracy in these new nations much poorer than it was in India. For more than a century, an Indian elite had been educated and trained in political methods. That was hardly ever the case in England's black African colonies. But the transfer of power usually took place with the outward trappings of British civility. There were great declarations of goodwill. A minor member of the royal family would go out. Institutions based on the Houses of Parliament at Westminster and the British Courts of Law would be established. But there was always the knowledge on the part of the British that if they didn't go calmly and quietly, they'd probably have to go anyway after strife and suffering. And in some cases they felt that they were being pressured by local nationalist movements. One British official said that in preparing for independence in the Gold Coast, this was the place which, which then became Ghana, he said it was really like laying down railway track in front of an oncoming express train. In other words, the point for the British was, since it's going to come anyway, let's get out of the way before the great crash appears. The Gold Coast, Ghana, was led by a charismatic leader called Kwame Nkrumah. It had a fairly advanced economy. It was a cocoa-growing country, and it had reasonably well-trained local elites in law, government, and business. In other words, if any of these former British colonies was going to prosper, Ghana seemed like a good bet to succeed. Nkrumah himself had spent 12 years abroad, partly in the United States, partly in Britain, living among radical students, often broke and doing odd jobs, learning about Marxism, and sometimes denouncing imperialism from a soapbox on street corners. So he was also a partially westernised African leader. In the late 1940s, he created the Convention People's Party in the Gold Coast. He organised mass rallies because he was impatient with the pace of the lawyers who formed the moderate independence movement. He demanded immediate self-government. He could be charming and charismatic, and he certainly fascinated the poor people of Gold Coast who saw in him the visionary leader for their future. Well, he was imprisoned for sedition, but that only had the effect of increasing his fame and gave him something of the aura of a martyr, in just the way that Nelson Mandela would have later on among South Africans. And then Nkrumah discovered that, according to a new constitution for limited self-government introduced by the British administration, he was entitled to vote and he was entitled to be a candidate, even though he was in prison at the time. He won the election for the town at the city of Accra while in prison in 1951, winning 20,000 out of the 23,000 votes that were cast. In other words, an overwhelming victory. The British governor, under these circumstances, felt forced to release him. And so he moved from being a prisoner to being prime minister in one day. A little bit later, Kenyatta in Kenya was going to do something very similar, move almost instantly from prisoner to national leader. Then, Nkrumah pressed constantly for more autonomy, denounced imperialism, talked up the idea of pan-Africanism, the, the claim that all the black peoples of Africa had something in common over against the whites who dominated them for so long. He became the first premier of an independent Ghana after the independent ceremonies of 1957. It was there that an interesting uh, incident took place. The American representative at, at these 
uh, ceremonies was the vice president, Richard Nixon. He went up to a, a black man standing nearby and slapped him on the back and said, well, how does it feel to be free? But the man answered, I don't know, sir. I come from Alabama. This was in the early days of the civil rights movement. So it's a beautiful riposte to Vice President Nixon, uh, implicitly criticising the Republicans' slowness to move in the civil rights movement. But Nkrumah later on in life became moody and suspicious. More and more he favoured his own company, became a loner. His best friend wasn't another African, but rather a British woman, Erica Powell, the former secretary to the old British governor. Nkrumah decided to live in Christiansborg Castle, uh, this, and this was a place which had been built originally by Danish slave traders. Most people thought it was haunted, and certainly it symbolised the bad old era of slavery, which was part of uh, Gold Coast's earlier history. He turned Ghana into a one-party state, with himself as its dictator in 1964, and he demanded British decolonization of the rest of Africa. He became more and more susceptible to corruption and cronyism and predation on the sources of national wealth, spying on all his potential rivals and neglecting the basic needs of his people, even though they placed their faith in him. Then he was deposed by the army in a coup two years later. And this became a very, very familiar pattern. But nevertheless, the British decolonization of Africa persisted. The British left Nigeria in 1960. They left Tanganyika, where the groundnut scheme had failed, in 1961, and it became Tanzania. They left Uganda in 1962. They left Kenya in 1963. They left Nyasaland in 1964, which became Malawi. They left northern Rhodesia in 1964 also. It became Zambia. And they left Bekuanaland in 1966. It became Botswana. As I mentioned, the British congratulated themselves that they were not duplicating the anguished and bloody experience of French Algeria. But colonial-era boundaries often ignored tribal realities, which precipitated civil wars, such as the Biafra War of 1967-70. to Nigeria, independent in 1960, started out as a British-style democracy. But intense tribal and religious rivalries, it was part Christian, and part Islamic, contributed to a succession of military coups in 1966 and a massacre of the Igbo people. More than a million of them fled as refugees to the eastern area where their people were a local majority. They declared the eastern part of Nigeria an independent republic named Biafra under the leadership of Emeka Ajukwu. They believed that it was economically viable as an independent country because this was the area of Nigeria that was rich in oil fields that were, had started to be developed in the late 1950s. But the Nigerian government attacked and overpowered Biafra between then and 1970. Among the side effects of this war were mass starvation, a million casualties and constant air attacks on defenceless civilian people. Ajuku inspired Biafrans to carry on fighting, telling them... That, telling them that otherwise they were going to be the victims of genocide. Biafra was one of the great humanitarian cause celebre of the late 1960s. Although many other struggles comparable in character and scale got very little Western attention. The organisation Doctors Without Borders, the International Medical Volunteers, was founded originally in response to the Biafra crisis. Each former colony became a potential American or Soviet client in the Cold War. 
In talking last time about the Suez crisis, I mentioned the way in which NASA in Egypt tried to play off the Russians and the Americans against each other. Independence movements were often supported by the Soviets. For example, the two Portuguese colonies of Mozambique and Angola both fought long, bitter anti-colonial wars, with the Soviet Union supplying the guerrillas fighting against the Portuguese with equipment. That had the very, very unfortunate effect of meaning that when the Portuguese finally left in the 1970s, ruthless Soviet-style governments took over in their place, as ill-adapted to African life as they were to life in Russia, and, and fastening onto these unfortunate places extremely inefficient governments. Political upheavals of this kind, the, the, the constant coups and, and civil wars, discouraged investment and inhibited economic growth, from the point of view of a new nation, what it needs above all is political stability. And in Africa, what it needs is to be able to attract a lot of capital from abroad so that businesses can develop, so that there will be employment for its people, and so that it will start to become wealthy. But you can understand that the, the potential investors are scared away by the fact of civil wars. They don't want to invest heavily in a, a refinery or a mine or a factory only to see it destroyed by a revolutionary movement. Of all the British ex-colonies in Africa, Botswana alone has enjoyed an unbroken succession of free elections since its independence, which came in 1966. All the others have suffered revolutions and coups. And sometimes, extremely unstable dictators, of whom probably the worst was Idi Amin in Uganda, have taken over. Sometimes they've destroyed the economic infrastructure of their countries with ruinous consequences. I mean, surely is the worst of the lot. He'd been a recruit into the British Army in the last decade of the empire before Uganda became independent in 1962. He was just marginally literate, a boxing champion, immensely strong, and one of just two Ugandans promoted to become an officer in the army before Uganda became independent. There simply wasn't the necessary group of educated people able to take on responsibility. At first, he became the deputy commander of the Ugandan army, under its Prime Minister, Milton Obote. I mean, helped Obote launch an internal coup to overthrow the Constitution in 1966, putting all other political leaders in prison and becoming dictator. But then, personal and tribal rivalry led Armin to overthrow Obote in 1971 and set up what amounted to a reign of terror using his own tribal cronies. His most dramatic and most disastrous act was to expel the entire Asian community from Uganda in 1972, which had grown up there over the previous century, and was absolutely vital as the community of bankers, shopkeepers and traders, and really most of what constituted the Ugandan middle class of the 1950s and 60s. Here's the historian Martin Meredith in his great book, The Fate of Africa. He says, In a move that was applauded, not only by the African population of Uganda, but in other African countries with unpopular Asian communities. Armin ordered the Asians, with British nationality, to leave the country within three months. The shops, the businesses, the property that the Asians were forced to leave behind, even their personal possessions, were seized as spoils by Armin's cronies. Within a few months, the huge amounts of Asian wealth had vanished. Shops were stripped, then left bare. Factories broke down, trade was severely disrupted, entire sectors of enterprise collapsed. In the general exodus, some 50,000 left in all, Uganda lost a large proportion of its doctors, dentists, veterinarians, professors and technicians. At a stroke, government revenues were cut by nearly 40%. The overall impact on government services was disastrous. 
Well, white racial supremacists in South Africa and Rhodesia watched what was happening. And they tried to make sure that their countries weren't going to follow this trend to unstable democracy, followed very quickly by dictatorship. The Afrikaner-dominated National Party won the South African elections of 1948 and established the institutions of apartheid. This was a policy of ra radical racial separation, which they then pursued implacably over the next 40 years. Their idea was that there should be a literal geographical separation between the whites and the blacks. They created the, uh, the concept of the Bantu stands, tribal homelands. And the idea was that, that normally everybody would live in their own Bantu stand, all the African, black Africans. And from them, men might come to work in the mines and factories of Johannesburg, for example. But in doing so, they'd be very limited in their mobility. They'd have to have a passbook, which they might, would have to show at all times. That was, the, that was the idea. But the reality was that if you didn't move to the, to the cities, you were going to live in desperate rural poverty out in the Bantu stands, which had all the very worst farmland. The reality was that great shanty towns grew up, like Sharpville and Soweto. And life in the, in the shanty towns was punctuated by urban uprisings, like the Sharpville massacre, when 69 African demonstrators were shot and killed by the police, most of them shot in the back when they were fleeing. In 1965, Ian Smith announced that Rhodesia was unilaterally declaring its independence from the British Empire because Smith thought that failure to do so would mean that it would simply follow the fate of northern Rhodesia, Zambia as it now was, first to become a frail democracy and then to become a dictatorship. This was a source of chronic embarrassment to Britain between 1964 and 80, the years during which uh, Rhodesia persisted. Ian Smith himself was a great admirer of Winston Churchill. He was a staunch believer in the empire, horrified to see it falling to pieces. He was a cricket and rugby lover, a World War II fighter pilot. The Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, was unable to stop UDI, the Unilateral Declaration of Independence, and he promised that there would be no war. Britain wouldn't go to war over the question. There were great logistical difficulties, apart from anything else. Popular opposition. Nearly all the Rhodesian whites had English relatives. And there was also the knowledge that the Rhodesian forces were trained to fight in their home country. Instead, Britain imposed sanctions, but they were completely ineffective and easy to break. In fact, another 40,000 British whites went to live in Rhodesia. One Conservative Tory, uh, Tory MP, Harold Soroff, said, Rhodesia represents Britain in its halcyon days. Patriotic, self-reliant, self-supporting, with law and order and a healthy society. Rhodesia is as Britain was at its best. Slightly more impartially, Lawrence James, the historian, says, This other Eden was sometimes known as Basingstoke in the Bush, a parody of a pre-war middle-class suburb transported across the equator, complete with its tennis and golf clubs, and populated by aggressively hearty men in shorts, blazers and cravats, who talked of nothing but sport, and women who knew their place. Well, after a prolonged and bitter racial conflict, Rhodesia eventually became Zimbabwe in 1980. A long civil war had taken place as nationalists struggled to overthrow the uh, independent white regime. And uh, the whites had to fight off two militias, ZANU, led by Mugabe, and Zipra, led by Joshua Nkomo. The first prime minister of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe, at first preserved democracy and the rule of law but gradually, like so many of his predecessors in Africa, degenerated into a tribal tyrant. 
And by now, 2008, Zimbabwe is a byword for chaos, poverty and brutal war by a government against its own people. Nelson Mandela, as a political prisoner, became an inspirational figure to the South African freedom movement. Pressure on South Africa to dismantle its apartheid regime grew steadily through the 1980s, when most of the industrialised Western world undertook divestment campaigns. And finally, in the early 1990s, its own white leader, F.W. de Klerk, realised that apartheid would have to come to an end and yield to majority rule. Both Mandela and de Klerk won the Nobel Peace Prize, and it's right that they should have won it jointly. Both men realised that the fighting could go on indefinitely, because neither side was strong enough to defeat the other. Each could stay alive, but neither could dominate. In the end, a majority of the whites did finally come over to the idea of switching to democracy, even though they were not in danger of imminent defeat. Unlike white settlers in Rhodesia and Kenya, many of whom went back to England, they were Africans, sometimes they, their families had been for 400 years, and they didn't have the idea of an alternative country that they could flee to. Well, those are the, those are the circumstances under which South Africa finally made the transition to, to democracy in 1993 and 4. The African National Congress, which took power in South Africa, has had a dilemma since then. They had blamed poverty and lack of education and medical care on white dominion. Now they had to ask the African majority, who were still poor, still lacked health care, and still were often unemployed, uh, to be patient. The whites' role, meanwhile, in the new South Africa was to be scapegoated, but simultaneously, at the same time, to be courted so that they could continue to invest and build up the necessary infrastructure of South Africa. And right up to the present, South Africa is still on something of a tightrope as to whether it can reassure external investors and its own white population to stay with the promise of security and prosperity. Well, it's very hard to make the case that post-colonial Africa is preferable to colonial Africa. Britain may not have been justified in entering Africa, Africa but equally, it may not have been justified in leaving. Lecture 33, The White Dominions. Australia and Canada are both huge countries, much of whose land area is uninhabitable, one because it's too hot and dry, the other because it's too cold and barren. Both were British colonies that had become self-governing by the 20th century, and both were principally producers of food and minerals, dependent on exports to Europe. Bonds of loyalty and sentiment with Britain remained strong, however, as did trading links, lines of immigration, and the tendency to follow Britain's lead in world affairs. But for both countries, the temptation to switch their primary allegiance from Britain to America grew steadily stronger as the century progressed. Canada's proximity to the United States led in practice to a high degree of Americanization, though Canadians maintained a prickly resistance to the idea that they were really just a northern annex of the rising superpower. The large French-speaking minority had never fully assimilated. The possibility of a politically independent Quebec complicated political life there and kept it a bilingual society. Australia, meanwhile, 
After realising during World War II that America was much more likely to rescue it from the Japanese threat than Britain, aligned its destiny more closely with the United States. Obsessed with the yellow peril for more than a hundred years, a fear intensified after World War II by the rise of Chinese communism, Australia even joined the unsuccessful American attempt to stop the spread of communism in Vietnam, a war in which Britain refused to participate. Canada and Australia alike took pride in having achieved their independence from the British Empire peaceably rather than through revolutionary war. While Australia only became politically unified in 1900, it had remained a series of independent colonies through the 19th century. There were even internal tariffs and there was a great deal of duplication of government functions. The economy was based on large-scale sheep herding and wheat farming and on gold mining. But a constitutional uh, movement developed in the 1890s, arguing in favour of the idea of a unification of the Australian colonies into one country. This was partly for practical reasons, but partly also out of fear of the rising power of Japan, which was to be a powerful motive in Australian history for the next half century. At a meeting to discuss the possibility of unification, Henry Parks of New South Wales said this, comparing the Australian situation with the America, the time, America at the time of its revolution. Australia now has a population of three and a half million, and the American people numbered only between three and four millions when they formed the great Commonwealth of the United States. The numbers are about the same, and surely what the Americans did by war, the Australians can bring about in peace without breaking the ties that hold them to the mother country. And in the transcript, the, the word cheers in brackets follows, showing that this was a sentiment applauded by his audience. Politicians from the principal colonies, New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria and South Australia, drafted a constitution in 1900. The New Australia was to have a Senate rather than a House of Lords. In other words, both houses of the legislature were to be elected democratically. In Britain, by contrast, the upper house, the House of Lords, was uh, occupied by hereditary peers who received the title, uh, the, the oldest son would receive the title on the death of his father. Uh, new peerages were periodically created, but many of them dated um, centuries back and it wasn't democratically elected. Australia's voters supported the idea of this new constitution in a referendum and the Parliament in Westminster, the London Parliament, approved it in the same year. And so, on the first day of 1901, Australia held celebrations of itself as the first continent nation in the history of the world. A new capital city would be created, halfway between the principal cities of Melbourne in Victoria and Sydney in New South Wales. Uh, and the idea of having a, a, a capital at a midway point was comparable to the decision that had been made a century earlier to put Washington DC on the borderland between the, the American North and the American South. In the very early days of the United States, the capital was in first Philadelphia, then New York, before moving to DC. The site of Canberra was chosen in 1908 and construction began in 1913 with a pair of American architects as the chief designers. They were Walter and Marion Griffin from Chicago, a husband and wife team. They were great admirers of the early skyscraper builder, Lewis Sullivan. He had worked for Frank Lloyd Wright and had earlier proposed to Wright's sister, but she turned him down. Then he proposed to Marion Mahoney, who also worked for Wright, and she accepted him. 
They were pioneers in the structural use of reinforced concrete and their design was chosen by an Australian commission out of 137 submissions to the design competition. The government and the Australian Parliament moved there in 1927 and that's been the, the political capital of Australia ever since. It's worth looking at the comparison with what was happening in Canada. Ottawa, the Canadian capital, had also been chosen as a halfway point back in 1857 and it's on the border of Quebec and Ontario, which in those days had been known as Lower and Upper Canada. Obviously Quebec predominantly French, Ontario predominantly English. The attraction of Ottawa had also been that it was safer than Quebec, Toronto or Montreal because it was further away from the United States border and therefore less likely to be captured in an American attack, which in the early part of the 19th century had still been imaginable. A new parliament was built in Ottawa also between 1916 and 1922, after the older one burnt down. And its centrepiece is the Peace Tower, uh, built to commemorate peace, the end of the First World War, which has now become a kind of instantly recognisable symbol of Canadian political life. And it's a, a sort of shorthand way of saying, now we're in Ottawa. Australian women were given the vote in 1909, earlier than in either the United States or the United Kingdom. Canadian women received the vote in 1918, except in Quebec, perhaps the most conservative of the provinces, where women didn't receive the vote until 1940. The pioneer in women's suffrage had been, uh, within the British Empire, had been New Zealand. Women's suffrage was achieved there back in 1893, and it became the first country in the world to give votes to women. New Zealand, by the way, had declined to, to be unified with Australia and, and became an independent sovereign nation in its own right. And it was New Zealand that pioneered not only in votes for women, but also in the building of a social and democratic labour movement of the and the kind of welfare state which later on became common in Europe as well. One of the first things that the newly unified Australia did was to pass an Immigration Restriction Act to keep Australia all white. They were... Um, reacting to the common racial supremacism of the era, the, the belief in the special destiny of the Anglo-Saxons, and in response to anti-Japanese anxieties. That was the race which they were particularly eager to exclude. Now, while Australia went through this process of unification, Canada was experiencing its gold rush at the Klondike, or the Yukon. This was starting in 1896. And once again, it's tempting to make comparisons the United States had had its gold rush in, in California in 1849 and Australia in the early 1850s. The Canadian gold rush was in 1896 and the people who flocked there from around the world were called the Stampeders. It was very, very difficult to get to this Arctic site. There were three ways of doing it. One was to go up the Yukon River, crossing Alaska on the way. The second was to go across the great Canadian wilderness from Edmonton in Alberta, a route fraught with horrific practical difficulties. The commonest way was to go inland from Skagway in Alaska and then over the Chilkoot Pass, then down the Dawson River by raft, a 500-mile journey through treacherous rapids, and many, many people died on the way. Chilkoot Pass itself was, that was the most difficult place. 1,500 steps were cut into the ice to make a pathway to help um, stampeders get there. But when you got to the top, you met the Mounties, the Canadian Mounted Police, and they demanded proof that you had a year's supply of food and equipment before they would let you go any further. This was to prevent the, a recurrence of the famine 
which occurred in, up in Dawson at the very beginning of the gold rush when so many people went there without any kind of adequate food supply. The Mounties are important in Canadian history. They'd been founded on the model of an English cavalry regiment and had kept order in the Canadian West, preventing a repetition of what in the United States is referred to as the Wild West, uh, whether the, West, the American West was as wild as fiction would have us believe is perhaps open to doubt. But it certainly is true that the Mounties contributed to uh, a far more amicable set of uh, relationships and treaties with the Canadian Indians than had been possible down in the American Republic. The Mounties had negotiated terms with Sitting Bull in Canada when he'd gone there after the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876. Well, back to the gold rush. Stampeders who got to Dawson and Bonanza Creek, the site of the greatest strikes, then had to dig through permafrost to get to the gold-bearing ores and then thaw the earth and then sluice it, all back-breaking work, in a place where the winter temperatures could fall to minus 60. It was the most difficult and in some ways the most decorous of the, of the gold rushes of the 19th century. Australia and Canada supported Britain in the World Wars but they gradually recognised that America was becoming the world's dominant power and that in practice it might be of more use to them than Britain. Australians participated in the Boer War at the same time that they were achieving unification and independence. In 1917, during the First World War, there was a bitter referendum in Australia over the question of conscri conscription, which laid bare the fault lines in Australian politics. By then, the Battle of Gallipoli had been fought, uh, Tens of thousands of Australians had been killed there, uh, and many of them believed that the, or many of their survivors believed that British leaders' blundering had been done at the expense of Australians' lives. So when the referendum came about, the no votes won. In other words, the, the a majority of the population voted against the idea that there should be conscription, and the votes of Irish Australians, Australians of Irish descent, helped sway the balance in favour of rejecting the possibility. After the war, many ex-soldiers were offered farms, but the hostile environment of the Australian outback meant that very few of them prospered. This was the same kind of solution as had been tried much earlier by Oliver Cromwell, uh, paying off the new model army soldiers in Irish lands. But the Australian land was so barren that uh, it was very, very difficult for most of these uh, uh, potential settlers to prosper there. By the Statute of Westminster of 1931, the white dominions of the British Empire became fully independent sovereign nations. The statute grew out of the second Balfour Declaration. This is not to be confused with the one which referred to Israel, which came in 1917, but a different declaration from 1926, in which the idea of a formal political federation was abandoned. I mentioned in an earlier lecture that starting around the 1890s, the idea of a, a political unification of the whole empire with one set of policies had been considered. And that's now formally abandoned. Here's what the second Balfour Declaration says. Nothing would be gained by attempting to lay down a constitution for the British Empire. It defies classification and bears no real resemblance to any other political organisation which has ever yet been tried. There is, however, one most important element in it, which, from a strictly constitutional point of view, has now reached its full development. We refer to the group of self-governing communities composed of Great Britain and the Dominions. They are autonomous communities within the British Empire, equal in status, in no way subordinate to one another in any aspect of their domestic or external affairs, though united by a common allegiance to the Crown and freely associated as members of the British Commonwealth. 
This statute nullified the Colonial Laws Validity Act of 1865, which had reserved to the London Parliament the right to approve or disapprove of colonial laws. From now on, a colonial law was the law of that, of that place. But it's interesting, I think, that Australia and New Zealand hesitated, hesitated to ratify the Statute of Westminster. When it came to the point, they started to think it might have the rather severe disadvantage of leaving them undefended in the case of uh, an external attack. So it wasn't formally ratified by Australia until 1942. The governments of the 30s still weren't sure that they wanted to cut the ties that bound them to Britain. Because when it came to a crisis, it might deny them the defensive security offered by the Royal Navy. Well, of course, a crisis did come in the early 1940s with the uh, uh, aggression of Imperial Japan. Australia's World War II-era prime ministers, first Robert Menzies and then John Curtin, realised that America was better able to help them than Britain. There was growing dissatisfaction in Australia with Britain uh, during the war because it was obvious that Churchill regarded Hitler as the principal threat and Japan as a lesser irritant that could be dealt with later. And in fact, Churchill was able to prevail on Roosevelt to take the same view. Hitler first. They're both dangerous antagonists, but Hitler is the more threatening. Of course, not surprisingly, the Australian politicians wouldn't see it in quite the same way. And Prime Minister Robert Menzies pointed out that what Britain called the Far East was to him the Near North. In the six months after Pearl Harbour, the Japanese rapidly came closer, seizing Hong Kong and Singapore, then New Guinea, then Borneo and the Philippines, sinking major British ships and so on. There were even air raids on Darwin in northern Australia. Menzies' successor as Prime Minister, John Curtin, uh, made a speech in which he expresses very much the same view, that it looks as though Britain can't be of significant help, and therefore Australia's got to put its faith in the Americans. He said, Without any inhibitions of any kind, I make it quite clear that Australia looks to America, free of any pangs as to our traditional links or kinship with the United Kingdom. We are therefore determined that Australia shall not go, in other words, shall not be conquered by Japan, and we shall exert all our energies towards the shaping of a plan with the United States as its keystone, which will give to our country some confidence of being able to hold out until the tide of battle swings against the enemy. He infuriated Churchill by insisting that the Australian Imperial Force, which was then fighting in North Africa against the Italians and the Africa Corps, be returned to Australia to oppose a potential Japanese attack uh, and, if and then to go over onto the offensive uh, against the Japanese in New Guinea. Churchill was um, amazed and infuriated at this colonial temerity, but um, lawfully he had to agree, which he did with very bad grace. Australia became Douglas MacArthur's wartime base after he was forced to leave Corregidor during the Japanese invasion of the Philippines. And one of MacArthur's most famous remarks, I will return, his promise to go back to the Philippines, was actually made on an Australian railway station at Taroe when he was en route to Brisbane, where he set up his headquarters in an insurance office building. Curtin, the Australian Prime Minister, welcomed MacArthur and gave him command of all the Australian forces still in the country. So straight away this is a, a high expression of faith in the idea of a close American-Australian cooperation during the war. The Canadian Prime Minister, William Mackenzie King, made sure that the Canadian Parliament voted for war and that he himself wouldn't commit the nation to war before he had expressed parliamentary consent to do so. Canada was also busily converting its economy to the war effort. 
Mackenzie King himself is an extremely interesting person. He, he was born in 1874 and was an exact contemporary of Winston Churchill. He'd shared in the appeasement mood of the late 1930s, and he'd met Hitler. He wrote in his diary of this meeting, I believe the world will yet come to see a very great man-mystic in Hitler who will rank someday with Joan of Arc among the deliverers of his people. Well, that was a judgment he had good reason later on to completely revise. Mackenzie King lived an extremely odd personal life. He had a succession of dogs, all with the same name, Pat. He believed he could commune with their spirits after they died. He also said that he had regular spirit contact with Leonardo da Vinci. After his death, one medium who he had visited regularly said she hadn't even known that he was a politician. She must have been completely oblivious since he'd been prime minister. But I don't mean to imply that he was just a crackpot. Not at all. He was a very brilliant man. He had a, a PhD in industrial relations. For a while he'd been a professor at Harvard University. He was an advisor to the Rockefellers on economic questions. And he's the most dominant figure in Canadian, or was the most dominant figure in Canadian politics from 1920 to 1950. For 21 of those years, he was prime minister, longer than any other prime minister in the entire history of the British Empire. He let 10 days go by between Neville Chamberlain's declaration of war against Germany and his own declaration so that he could get Canadian parliamentary approval for the declaration of war. And that, again, was a demonstration of the importance of the Statute of Westminster. Canada wasn't at war until its government said that it was. Well, Canada made vital contributions to Allied success in the Second World War. Its sailors served on merchant ships and convoy protection vessels on the North Atlantic run, which kept Britain supplied with food and gradually uh, transported all the American equipment across to Britain to be used in the D-Day invasion. Canadian soldiers served in the great European campaigns, including D-Day. Its prairies provided much of the food supplies that Britain couldn't grow for itself. And its vast mineral deposits, particularly oil and iron ore, were developed very rapidly during the war. The Canadian Navy, not large but nevertheless vital, played an important role, a central role, in convoy protection. Convoys often formed at Halifax, Nova Scotia, and then moved slowly across the Atlantic, moving at the speed of the slowest ship, of course, and, and closely surrounded by convoy escort vessels, whose capacity to detect and destroy German submarines gradually improved with the, the rapid advance of sonar technology as the war went on. Canadian soldiers played a distinguished part in the raid at Dieppe, in the Italian campaign, and as the extreme left of the Allied armies in D-Day, they recaptured the Channel ports, including Antwerp, and ended the war near Denmark. So once again, the Canadians, although they hadn't been compelled to join the war, did so and fought in a uh, highly distinguished way there. But Canada also experienced during the war an intense debate over the question of conscription. And it's possible to see uh, a fairly sharp ethnic divide in the question of whether or not conscription was appropriate. English Canadians, that is Canadians of English descent, were mostly in favour of the war itself and in favour of conscription. But French Canadians were mainly against it. In the end, only volunteers were sent abroad, but the Prime Minister did impose home service conscription. In other words, you, if you were, for example, a French Canadian who was unenthusiastic about the war, you would be made to join the service, but you wouldn't be made to leave Canada, and therefore you wouldn't, in fact, go into actual combat. One of the home conscripts was Pierre Trudeau, then a young Jesuit-educated man who was obliged to join the army. 
His father was a French-Canadian businessman, and his mother came from a Scottish family, so he had a foot in both camps. Later on, Trudeau wrote, So, there was a war. Tough. If you were a French-Canadian in Montreal in the early 1940s, you did not automatically believe that this was a just war. We tended to think of this war as a settling of scores among the superpowers. The fact that some of the French-Canadians didn't want to fight uh, was itself a demonstration of part of the very complicated identity crisis, which is perhaps central to Canadian existence throughout almost all its history. There's always a French and English split at home in Canada, and there's always a sense of being overwhelmed by the United States and Britain abroad. The historian Arthur Lauer, himself a, a, a historian of Canada, writing in 1950, describes how this plays out. He says, In Canada, racial memory constantly struggles with geography. No English Canadian can forget that he is a member of a cultural group extending in space and time far beyond the limits of his own homeland and consisting in two great powers as well as several smaller ones. If he's found it difficult to accept the high-handed attitude of the United States towards British colonies and its repudiation of the British tradition, he has always remembered not only the long peace along his borders, but his own unhappy state of mind when the two older countries were on bad terms. Any prospect of misunderstanding between them has destroyed his inner harmony at once, rendering him puzzled and distressed. Paradoxically enough, English Canadians were never more at peace with themselves than when fighting the Second World War. For then, the common purpose of the English and Americans bridged for a time the ancient cleft in the race. That's a, a shrewd insight into these identity questions. While British links continued to diminish in significance for Australia, New Zealand and Canada after World War II, while links to America tended to increase. Australia was still looking for immigrants, uh, most of them from Britain, but many from the displaced persons camps all over post-war Europe. Hundreds of thousands of people had been uprooted by the crisis of the Second World War, and the Australian government began to welcome many of them, although it still had a racial criterion. If you wanted to emigrate from Britain to Australia, the, the Australian government would pay for your passage as long as you then were willing to do a certain amount of directed work by the Australian government on your arrival. It wasn't until 1967 that Australia finally permitted the immigration of Asians, and since then the Asian population of Australia has grown steadily. The post-war Menzies government aligned itself very, very closely with the United States because, and this is, in, this is now moving into the, the period of the Cold War. Menzies himself, a conservative, was a passionate anti-communist. He tried to ban the Australian Communist Party, but th that idea was narrowly defeated in a referendum. He also committed Australian troops to fighting in Korea and then in Vietnam. But even at the time that it was getting a new population from Europe and from the United Kingdom, Australia was more and more closely aligned with the Americans. Uh, and again, it, Menzies was the, the driving force behind this idea. Um, it's comparable to the McCarthy period in the United States going on at the same time. Uh, and, and perhaps the, the, the most vivid depiction or the vivid demonstration of, of his dedication to anti-communism -communism is, is the fact that he was willing to fight with the Americans in Vietnam. He did believe that it was necessary. Earlier on, during the 1950s, he'd offered Australian troops to fight with the British while they opposed a communist-led insurgency in Malaya. 
But at that time, the British government had said no, it didn't want the Australians. A foreign, a foreign, official, a foreign office official explained, Australian troops are splendid fighters, but they tend to give trouble when they are not fighting. This is part of that old and not altogether untrue tradition of the tendency of Australians to be disobedient, brawling, hard-drinking men who are difficult out of combat. Well, the ANZUS Treaty, Australia, New Zealand and the US, of 1951, bound the three countries in mutual support. The CETO Treaty of 1954 uh, was part of the um, Australian agreement to fight in Vietnam, even when the British refused to do so. And once again, conscription came back. But as the Vietnam War went wrong, so did opposition to it increase inside Australia, just as it was doing in, in America at the same time. So the late 1960s was a period of demonstrations, avoidance of conscri conscription and catastrophic internal disarray. In Canada, Pierre Trudeau, who I mentioned early, earlier, was very, very talented at balancing the needs of the English and the French speakers, and in balancing can Canada's foreign interests, Britain and the United States. And he's one of the most luminous figures of post-war Canadian history. Uh, ironically, he for a time was banned from entering the United States because he was linked to various Marxist organizations, and in the McCarthy era that was enough to keep you out. He'd visited Moscow as a student, but ironically he'd been arrested there because he'd thrown a snowball at a statue of Stalin. And it would certainly be completely misleading to think of, um, of Pierre Trudeau as a, as a communist or socialist. He became a candidate for the leader of the Liberal Party. He was far more charismatic and much less stuffy than most of his predecessors, including Mackenzie King. And in the 60s, the era of Beatlemania, Pierre Trudeau became popular, the subject of Trudeau-mania. He was very popular with the young, and he married a 22-year-old when he was 52. A famous moment in his career came in 1968, just before the general election, when a mob of Quebec separatists pelted a grandstand with rocks and bottles. Most of the VIPs on the stand bolted, but Pierre Trudeau stayed still in his seat and faced them down, which gained for him a reputation for cool-headed courage, and he went on to win the election the next day. As Prime Minister, he introduced bilingualism throughout Canada as official policy, while always stoutly resisting Quebec nationalism. Well, Canada never fully resolved its identity question. I remember that when I was a student in England in the 1970s, whenever I and my friends met a, a person who had an American accent, we learned that the question to ask them was, are you a Canadian? Because if they were, they were absolutely delighted. Whereas if they were actually from the United States, they'd just say, no, no, I come from the States. Whereas if you ask the question, are you an American? And in fact, they were Canadian. They'd bristle with annoyance and indignation. So this was a, a little point of etiquette we developed. The achievements of British Commonwealth citizens remained symbolically rather than politically significant. News that Edmund Hillary, a New Zealander, had reached the summit of Mount Everest in 1953 made him an empire-wide hero. And the news came to England on the same day as the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. The, the uh, ascent itself was a massive heavyweight affair with more than 400 people involved, most of them as porters and support climbers. It was the ninth British expedition to attempt to climb the mountain and finally it succeeded. Since then it's been climbed solo by a man who didn't even take oxygen with him. Edmund Hillary became the embodiment of New Zealand's international dignity. Later on, he was a diplomat, ambassador to India, and a politician. He was also the first person in the history of the world to go to the North Pole, the South Pole, and the top of Everest, all three. The mountain itself is named after a Welsh surveyor, the head of the great trigonomet 
trigonometric survey of 1808 to 60, which had accurately mapped and measured the British Empire in eastern India. And its position as the highest mountain in the world had been established in 1856 by his successor, Andrew War. I'd just like to end this lecture by saying a word about the question of what's called the cultural cringe. There was an essay of the same name by an Australian critic called A. A. Phillips in 1950. And it's the idea, very common in, among colonised peoples, that if it comes from the colony, it must be inferior. The, the poet Christopher Wallace Crabb put this into words by saying, the cultural cringe is believing that Australia rhymes with failure. And it is true that Australian writers who want, or artists who wanted a reputation felt that they had to win it abroad first. Um, Emerson and Longfellow in 19th century America had gone through the same process. They became famous in Britain first, and then American audiences would validate them. In the same way, Australian artists and writers have felt that they've almost got to go abroad to create their reputations, and only after that will they then derive real credibility back home. This is true of Patrick White, the first Australian Nobel Prize winner for literature, who won in 1973. But he said eventually, after moving back and forth between the two countries, he felt a little bit out of place in both Australia and England. More recently, Robert Hughes, um, he was the art critic for Time magazine and wrote perhaps the best one-volume history of modern art, The Shock of the New. He's got a fiercely highbrow style, but also an Australian demotic touch. His, uh, his, his book on the art history of Barcelona is a classic. And he's written one of the very best books on the history of Australia itself, The Fatal Shore. I think it's no coincidence that the most famous building in Australia is the Sydney Opera House. Obviously, opera is itself um, associated with ideas of high culture. It was a national prestige project undertaken between 1959 and 73. Although, ironically, again, it was an international design competition, which was won by a foreigner, a Danish architect, just as foreign architects had built Canberra. Well, Australian and Canadian history don't have quite the intensity and brilliance of United Kingdom or United States history. But, on the whole, that signifies a better life for their people. Because the most stirring historical events involve war, upheaval and suffering. Canada, New Zealand and Australia, to a striking degree, have avoided civil war, famine and disaster. Lecture 34. Britain after the Empire. In the decades after 1945, Britain appeared to have three choices. It could make its primary partners in the world its colonies, or the United States, or the rest of Europe. By 1965, the colonies were no longer an option. Only the British Commonwealth remained, more as a cultural and sentimental union than one of political significance. The United States, leading power in NATO, seemed the logical close ally in view of the world-dominating Cold War. But this alliance too dwindled in importance after the collapse of Soviet Communism in 1991. In the long run, Britain recognised the need to take its place in a Europe that was becoming commercially and politically united, and which had also gone through a rapid and drastic decolonisation process since World War II. 
Occasional imperial ventures persisted, such as Mrs. Thatcher's campaign in 1982 to recapture the Falkland Islands in the South Atlantic from an Argentinian invasion. But by comparison with Britain's earlier imperial wars, the episode carried a flavour of comic opera. More serious for Britain's future was the arrival of a large-scale immigration from former colonies in, West, in the West Indies, India, Pakistan and Africa. After centuries as a racially homogeneous society, Britain quickly became multiracial, with immigrant communities provoking unfamiliar issues related to education, religion and gender relations. The Cold War and the European Union, not the Empire, dominated Britain's foreign policy in the decades after World War II. America maintained air and submarine bases in Britain as part of its NATO commitment, and British politicians nourished the idea of a special Anglo, an Anglo-American special relationship. Sometimes the special relationship was real, sometimes it was wishful thinking. It was certainly real between Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. It was real between Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, and between the second George Bush and Tony Blair. On the other hand, there wasn't very much of it between Harold Macmillan and John F. Kennedy. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, uh, Kennedy never asked for Macmillan's advice, even though Macmillan liked the idea that he was an elder statesman to whom the young Kennedy might look when it came to the point Kennedy didn't. Neither was there very much uh, love lost between Harold Wilson and Lyndon Johnson, because Britain wouldn't get involved in the Vietnam War. And there wasn't very much harmony between uh, Edward Heath and Richard Nixon. So the special relationship itself, uh, a British notion, has, has uh, waxed and waned depending on the particular personalities involved and the issues. One of the most important figures, in a way, in this, in this Cold War era was James Bond, a fantasy figure who compensated for Britain's loss of its empire. As you know from the books and films, James Bond is much cooler and more effective than any of the CIA men with whom he sometimes has to work. And usually he's able single-handedly to, to save the world. Perhaps this is one of the ways in which Britain came, came to terms with the fact that it, its actual role in the world was becoming less and less significant, that it couldn't afford the same kind of resources that the Americans used, and therefore it would have to rely on the guile and skill of one lone individual. American bases in Britain became the focus of anti-nuclear demonstrations in the early 1960s and again in the late 1980s. For example, there was a United States nuclear submarine base in the Clyde estuary at a place called Holy Loch. On one occasion in the 1980s, a protester rowed out uh, in a little boat to one of the American submarines and sat on the tail fin of the submarine to protest against the uh, Americans having these lethal weapons on British soil. Rather than take drastic action, the captain of the submarine, knowing all about the Scottish climate, said, let's just leave him there. In the end, he'll be so cold that he'll be grateful to be brought inside to get, be given a cup of tea, which is exactly what happened. During the early 1980s, there was a long uh, standoff at a place called Greenham Common. This was a U.S. Air Force base in England. The uh, demonstration was started by a Welsh group called Women for Life on Earth. Uh, it was a demonstration against the American decision to introduce a new generation of nuclear missiles. The women holding the demonstration evicted the men, claiming that women have a special sensitivity towards questions of peace. 
And I think it was a little bit baffling to them to discover that the cruise missiles, when they were brought in, actually came by air. In other words, it isn't as though the women had the opportunity to barricade the gates with their bodies, which I think they'd been looking forward to at the time. And finally, after going on for several years, the Greenham women's camp was cleared by the local council in 1984. On the whole, there was a fairly high degree of collaboration between most British and most American people on Cold War policy. But the political left did have a, a long-running uh, objection to the idea that the safety of the nation should ultimately be uh, safeguarded by these weapons of, of indiscriminate killing. Britain retained its own independent nuclear deterrent. But how was that going to be used? Would it be used to force the Americans into a war by being launched against the Soviets, even though that would be certain to assure a catastrophic retaliation and perhaps the complete destruction of Britain? Some people said the only way for Britain's independent nuclear deterrent to work would be, would be by aiming the missiles at Washington and New York to show that British policy really was something more than an echo of American policy. It was, whether such, such nuclear weapons were necessary and useful was highly debatable. But as Britain gradually came to terms with its decline as a world power, this again was one of the ways in which it saved its feeling of status, of its feeling of having a place with the important players in world politics. Well, the end of the Cold War in 1989 through 91, as the Iron Curtain came down and the Soviet communist regime came to an end, diminished the American presence in Britain. And it intensified Britain's commitment to a united Europe. Air bases were dismantled, NATO soldiers went home, so that the, military, the US military presence in Britain today is much smaller than it was between 45 and 89. Another issue between the two nations was the long Anglo-American brain drain, the tendency of highly trained, particularly scientists and technologists, to leave Britain to go to work in America, either at the universities or for companies like Boeing, or sometimes in the Defence Department. Uh, now, because Britain had a nationalised educational system which subsidised the education of, of uh, intelligent young people, questions were raised in Parliament about whether it wasn't morally wrong for the Americans to be poaching one of Britain's great resources of intelligent people. But the Americans usually answered, if only uh, Britain paid, uh, g gave its intellectuals a better way of life, they'd feel no inclination to leave. If they were treated better, they'd stay at home. Britain had been slow to join the various organisations which led to the unification of Europe. But by the 1960s, they had recognised the need to do so. The European Union began as something called the European Coal and Steel Community in 1952. This was in the wake of the Marshall Plan, which had injected a lot of necessary capital into Western Europe. And it was a, a, a product of the renewed determination of the Western democracies never to go to war against one, one another again. They'd been doing it for centuries, and by now the danger and the futility of it was overwhelmingly obvious. It became the European Economic Community, the EEC, by the Treaty of Rome in 1957. And at first it would comprise just six nations. France, Germany, Italy, Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg. The French Premier, de Gaulle, still smarting from wartime embarrassments and from the fact that, in his view, Britain had ill-treated the free-fighting French forces. De Gaulle was eager to exclude Britain, and he twice vetoed British entry into the European Union in 1963 and again in 1967. So it wasn't finally until 1973 that Britain became a member, uh, joining alongside Ireland and Denmark. 
But whether it's right for Britain to be part of a united Europe has remained an extremely divisive political question in both the major political parties, Labour and Conservative, but particularly among the Conservatives who say, rightly, by joining this union we're compromising British sovereignty. Important questions affecting the fate of our people will now be made in, in Brussels or by politicians who've got no understanding of British traditions. We're putting ourselves in the hands of politicians from Italy and Portugal and, uh, and, and that's a violation of the sovereignty of the British people. On the other hand, of course, there are overwhelmingly powerful arguments in favour of it, both in terms of making war among the European nations much less likely than ever before, and also in contributing to the common enrichment of the whole community. The Maastricht Treaty of 1991 through 3 created the European Union, and it's more or less in its current form. The euro, the euro as a currency became the sole legal uh, money in 12 of the states in 2002. But again, Britain dragged its feet. Sterling, the pound sterling, remains an independent currency. Again, there's a continuing reluctance on, on the part of the British to surrender their sovereignty. And the idea that the pound itself should disappear was simply too much for uh, the British politicians to accept. Interestingly, I had a meeting in Germany in about the year 2000 with some of the European banking officials who were, who were organising the, the changeover from, in Germany from the Deutschmark to the euro. And one of the German uh, officials said to me, I cannot be proud of my country's history, but I can be proud of my currency, the Deutschmark. In other words, thinking back over the, uh, the Hitler period, he knew there was a lot to be ashamed of. And, and he clearly thought of the euro as a, a modified version of the Deutschmark. Sooner or later, I do think that the Brit British will also join the Euro Union. Well, British enthusiasm for the 2003 Iraq venture suggests perhaps that there's still a nostalgia for imperial adventures, even under Tony Blair's Labour government. Though that's, although by now, this was an alliance which has clearly been subordinated for most British people to the European issues, and the war itself certainly hasn't been popular inside Britain. Large-scale immigration from former colonies created a multiracial society in Britain after 1950. Legislation of 1948 specified that citizens of the Commonwealth were also British citizens. That year, a ship called the Empire Windrush arrived with 500 Jamaican immigrants. And that's now regarded as a symbolic moment in the creation of a multicultural Britain. Its 50th anniversary was celebrated in 1998. There were labour shortages in the 1940s and 50s, which periodically prompted government agencies to try to attract West Indian immigrants. More people were needed in the transport business, more in the post office, more working in the hospitals. And these were all great areas of, Brit of the British economy which had been nationalised by the Clement Attlee government. So that employment policy was a question for which the government was directly responsible. On the other hand, there was resentment in the areas of London particularly where they settled in large numbers, especially during economic downturns when suddenly these new immigrants from the former colonies looked like competitors for scarce jobs. And that led to the first race riot in Notting Hill in 1958, an area of West London. Since then, there's been an annual Notting Hill Festival which is a celebration of racial diversity, as groups in favour of the idea of a multicultural Britain try to overcome the xenophobia and, uh, and racial intolerance of, of part of the rest of the population. Immigrants from India and Pakistan were attracted to Britain by the prospect of higher standards of living, and again the legislation entitled them to come. 
There was a lot of migration of extended kin groups, big families and, and, and family connections, sometimes keeping very close contact with India. And for them, and for their children particularly, a rising dilemma in the second generation over the question of arranged marriages. Is it appropriate for a kid who's been born in England and has gone to English schools and has become an English speaker to continue to conform to the family's expectations about who's an appropriate marriage partner? Or is it right for them to switch over to the, uh, the European conception of romantic love as the basis for marriage? That's been a difficult question for many people from India and Pakistan in recent decades. Refugees, such as the Ugandan Asians expelled by Idi Amin in the early 1970s, further diversified the British population. One of the incidental and good consequences of this migration, by the way, has been the rise of Indian restaurants in, in Britain. They're perhaps the best places to eat in Britain. Eating out in England used to be an absolute purge. It was torment. But suddenly the standards began to rise. Obviously there's a lot of American jokes about how bad eating out in England uh, was. And they were justified. Now, there was a political response to the new immigration. Right-wing conservative politicians, most famously a man called Enoch Powell, and then a fringe party called the National Front, argued for drastic immigration restrictions. The 1962 Commonwealth Immigration Act was the first of a series of increasingly drastic immigration restriction laws. But even so, more than 50,000 immigrants per year continued to come from former colonies, especially those who already had dependents in the United Kingdom. For example, the arrival of partners for arranged marriages continued to be permitted. Enoch Powell, the politician, hated all this. He was a hero of the Second World War, a classical scholar, a poet and a conservative politician. In 1968, he made a speech which has become known as the Rivers of Blood speech. Uh, and the ba and part of the background to his speech is the, the race riots in America during the, the so-called long, hot summers of the 1960s. So Enoch Powell, as he looks across the Atlantic to America, sees uh, racial relations are deteriorating there. And it seemed to him catastrophically unwise that Britain should be permitting itself to become a multiracial society because, he said, it's going to lead to race rioting here as well. He said that one of his constituency members had told him that he wanted his children to live abroad because England was becoming unlivable, overrun with immigrants, so that before long the black man will have the whip hand over the white man. And then Enoch Powell went on like this. Here is a decent, ordinary fellow Englishman who in broad daylight in my own town says to me, his member of parliament, that the country will not be worth living in for his children. I simply do not have the right to shrug my shoulders and think about something else. What he is saying, thousands and hundreds of thousands are saying and thinking, not throughout Great Britain perhaps, but in the areas that are already undergoing the total transformation to which there is no parallel in a thousand years of English history. We must be mad, literally mad as a nation, to be permitting the annual inflow of some 50,000 dependents, who are for the most part the material of the future growth of the immigrant-descended population. It is like watching a nation busily engaged in heaping up its own funeral pyre. So insane are we that we actually permit unmarried persons to immigrate for the purpose of founding a family with spouses and fiancés whom they have never seen. And in the peroration of this speech, he goes on to invoke the Roman rite of Virgil. As I look ahead, I'm filled with foreboding. Like the Roman, I seem to see the river Tiber foaming with much blood. That tragic and intractable phenomenon 
which we watch with horror on the other side of the Atlantic, but which there is interwoven with the history and existence of the states itself, is coming upon us here by our own volition and our own neglect. Indeed, it has all but come. In numerical terms, it will be of American proportions long before the end of the century. Only resolute and urgent action will avert it even now. Whether there will be the public will to demand and obtain that action, I do not know. All I know is that to see and not to speak would be the great betrayal. Well, for this speech, he was fired from his position in the shadow cabinet. That is the group who, who uh, prepares the opposition party for, the, for its moment of taking over at the next election. And he never held office again, having previously been a conservative minister. But further legislation to restrict immigration did follow. In other words, although Powell was regarded as an extremist, nevertheless, uh, government took note of the fact that among many of the electorate, uh, high rates of immigration were, was unpopular and ought to be restricted. There certainly have been strenuous efforts to create interracial harmony as official policy since then. Asian Americans' success, uh, sorry, Asian Britain's success, Asian Britain's success, especially the first generation in small businesses, uh, has now led to the second and third generations rising into the British professions and into big, bigger business. Already by the mid-1960s, there was a well-established stereotype in Britain of the clever Indian doctor, that somehow the Indian doctor could cure you even when the English one couldn't. There was a television comedy show called Curry and Chips in 1969. Obviously, the great traditional English food is fish and chips, and curry is the stereotype uh, Indian food. So the idea is now they've come together, and the show was called Curry and Chips. A white man, Spike Milligan, famous from The Goon Show, uh, dressed up in blackface as, and, and, and represented a Pakistani immigrant figure. And the show was all about white racism and the comic misunderstandings of, uh, of two races trying to get to know each other. The writer of the show, Johnny Spate, said that his intention was to combat racism by showing the stupidity of prejudice. The show caused a great shock at the time because of the free use of swear words, which then were un very unusual on the television. And the show was pulled after six episodes. But from then on, the fact of Britain becoming a racially diverse nation became increasingly commonly represented on British TV. This was also the era in which the BBC abandoned the, the so-called BBC voice. In the early days of TV broadcasting, only a very, very um, particular kind of the use of the Queen's English, which became known as the BBC voice, that was... Um, uh, gradually phased out in favour of the use of the actual regional accents which punctuate every part of the United Kingdom. Well, it is true that as Britain became more racially diverse, it became vulnerable to unemployment uh, and poverty, and that sometimes inner-city racial minorities could be politically explosive, as the Brixton race riots of 1981, 95 and 2001 bore witness. It certainly would be quite wrong to imply that, uh, that Britain's racial his or in interracial history is one of sweetness and light. More recently, the rise of militant Islam among disaffected English Muslims uh, is one of the factors that contributed to the bomb attack on the London Underground in July 2005. This is the so-called 7-7 attacks. The bombers weren't immigrants, but had grown up in the United Kingdom in the Muslim community. Margaret Thatcher, the Conservative Prime Minister from 1979 to 1990, undertook a last imperial venture in the Falkland Islands from March to June of 1982. An unpopular Argentinian junta gambled that seizing the islands, which Argentina had long claimed, 
would increase the government's popularity without provoking British retaliation. But they'd misjudged Mrs Thatcher, the British leader, who said, The Falkland Islands and their dependencies must remain British territory. No aggression and no invasion can alter that simple fact. It is the government's objective to see that the islands are freed from occupation and returned to British administration at the earliest moment. The people of the Falkland Islands, like the people of the United Kingdom, are an island race. They are few in number, but they have the right to live in peace, to choose their own way of life, and to determine their own allegiance. This way of life is British. Their allegiance is to the Crown. The leader of the Labour Party, Michael Foote, agreed, and the war which followed was a bipartisan effort. But a uh, testimony to the shrinking grandeur of the Royal Navy was the fact that this time, in order to ship its soldiers to the South Atlantic, the British had to requ requisition uh, cruise ships and liners. The QE2 and the Canberra, which were cruise ships or ocean-crossing liners, uh, were uh, painted in military drab and sent off to the war effort. American efforts to prevent the conflict were unavailing, and the war ended in a decisive British victory. The US Navy and the, and the Royal Navy were constantly involved in NATO exercises, particularly in the North Atlantic and the Mediterranean, and were used to cooperating. They cooperated seamlessly when it came to the point. A constant supply of American satellite photographs and intelligence was, was given to the British sea captains. Uh, tankers came out into the ocean to refuel the Royal Navy and so on. So it was an operation whose conduct was made smoother by American help. Nevertheless, the whole conflict was embarrassing to the United States because Argentina was an important member of the Organization of American States. But President Reagan admired Margaret Thatcher in a way that President Eisenhower had not admired Anthony Eden, and hence there was no replay of the Suez Crisis when an American government forbade a British colonial venture. Still, the islands themselves were of extremely limited value, just a handful of sheep farmers. But from 1982 onwards, a huge defence budget had to be dedicated to their defence every year. The Victorian Empire had always paid for itself, but this one had a touch of Fortinbras's expedition in Hamlet, in other words, the land itself is worthless, but think of the glory. This is what Hamlet says as he observes Fortinbras's army. Fortinbras always knows what to do. Hamlet can never make up his mind. Fortinbras always knows. And Hamlet says, Witness this army of such mass and charge, led by a delicate and tender prince, whose spirit with divine ambition puffed makes mouths at the invisible event, exposing what is mortal and unsure to all that fortune, death and danger dare even for an eggshell. Rightly, to be great is not to stir without great argument, but greatly to find quarrel in a straw when honour's at the stake. I think that's a, an apt comment on the, uh, the Falklands adventure. But of course, symbolism is often very important in politics. Um, it's certainly true that had Britain submitted to Argentinian uh, aggression, it would have seemed even weaker in the community of nations. Thatcher was very popular. She won re-election in the next year and then faced down the coal miners' union when she was struggling to denationalise a lot of Britain's industries and to, and to curb the power of trade unions, which she regarded as paralysing to the British economy. Denationalisation itself seemed to be a steady reversal of the policies of the late 1940s and undoing the work of the Attlee government. The movement for the devolution of power within Britain led in the 1990s to the creation of Welsh and Scottish assemblies. As I mentioned, uh, or I've talked about throughout the course, uh, the empires always have, on the one hand, the tendency to gather 
power into one central location. And, the, and on the other hand, uh, indignant re requests on the part of the peripheries to be self-governing. And in the 1990s, this caught up with the British Isles themselves. Scotland and Wales began to petition for self-government. The Scottish Parliament's been controversial from the start, both the building itself and the work done within it. It met for the first time in 1999 after a 1998 referendum found in favour of Scottish self-government. The building's glaringly out of character with the neoclassical buildings of Edinburgh all around it. And it's one of those buildings that's endured epic cost overruns, costing ten times the original estimates, and great delays before finally opening in 2004. Scotland now does conduct its own affairs, but it's nevertheless true that ambitious politicians would still much rather go to where the important decisions are made, which is still in Westminster. That's why Gordon Brown, the current Prime Minister, and Tony Blair, the former Prime Minister, have both made their political careers in Westminster rather than in the Scottish Assembly. Wales also now has an independent Assembly of its own. So the participation of British politicians at both the local level and the European level has tended to diminish the significance of Westminster, which traditionally was the great heart of Imperial Britain. Sometimes decisions are now made locally, sometimes they're made in Europe. Uh, Westminster itself no longer has the radiance that it once had. On the other hand, the feeling of being British is real. And the vast majority of the English, Scots, Welsh and Northern Irish are content with belonging to one entity. The squabbling is really the most intense only over sporting rivalries. And even then, nearly all the Scots and Welsh were delighted when England won the Soccer World Cup in 1966. And periodically when the England team fails to qualify, everyone in England will certainly cheer for the Scottish team. Britain itself today remains sharply divided between rich and poor areas. Areas that thrived on the empire and its commerce endured a long and bitter decline afterwards. In Yorkshire and Lancashire, the textile districts which first made England an industrial giant have gone into a long decline. So have the shipbuilding districts of Clydeside near Glasgow and Tyneside near Newcastle-on-Tyne. The coal mining industry in the North East and in South Wales has also been in decline and so has been the Yorkshire iron and steel districts, towns like Sheffield. Strong local loyalties made adaptation to changed economic circumstances slow and difficult. The historian Simon Sharma calls it the Coronation Street effect. And what he's referring to there is a very popular English TV soap opera called Coronation Street about the um, uh, life in a poor district around this one particular street and the way the people all know each other and the pubs and the shops have become their habitual meeting grounds. Many British populations are extremely reluctant to move away. They don't want to move somewhere else, they want to stay. And during the periods of Labour governments, of having Labour governments in power, the Labour Party would indulge this wish by permitting a welfare state um, generous enough to enable people to stay for long periods in their hometowns, even when there was no work there. That's one of the things that Mrs Thatcher tried to undo. Still, despite the survival of the monarchy and despite many of the outward trappings of the old hierarchical society, Britain is less hierarchical than ever before. In my own childhood in the 1950s and 60s in central England, no one ever said that people were equal and nobody talked about democracy. There was a vivid sense, rather, that life is a hierarchy. There's a ladder and each person has his or her own particular place on the ladder with duties to those above and obligations to those below. 
the literature of the 50s and 60s uh, has a, a general name, the literature of the angry young men, people like John Osborne, John Wayne, Kingsley Amis, protesting against the snobbery of British established life, about the idea of the establishment, and about the way in which social exclusion made people from the lower classes feel inferior. Well, that's a sense which has been weakened in the face of the welfare state, in the standardization brought about by television, and in the growth of the idea of human equality. The empire belonged to the old hierarchy, of whom Churchill became the supreme 20th century exemplar. Hence, his ejection at the end of the Second World War, and the gradual decline of the feeling in Britain that it's a rigid hierarchy. Britain's big place in world politics has vanished. But ordinary life, for the ordinary majority, is certainly much better than it ever was before. I ended the previous lecture by saying that Australia and Canada don't have vivid histories, but that's probably good for the people of those countries. And I think you could make a similar remark about post-imperial Britain as well. It's not dramatic, but there's been a steady increase in the quality of life for the majority of people in Britain itself. Lecture 35, Colonial and Post-Colonial Literature. The literature of the British Empire in the 20th century dealt in dramatic contrasts, passionate extremes, ideas about exoticism, and questions of divided loyalty. British Africa, in particular, gave rise to a succession of excellent novelists, all of whom struggled with the question of racial and national identity. Probably the greatest of all was Nadine Gordima, the South African Nobel Prize winner, whose fiction explores the lives of white South Africans and their role in the movement to overthrow apartheid. Her work is complemented by that of Alan Payton, whose 1948 novel Cry the Beloved Country is probably the single most widely read book about Africa in the whole century and by that of Chinua Achebe, whose Things Fall Apart, from 1958, evokes the arrival of the empire from the African point of view. Another Nobel laureate from the old empire is V.S. Naipaul, born to an Indian family in Trinidad, whose superb novel A Bend in the River, from 1979, describes the deterioration of Central Africa after the colonialists depart, and laments the upsurge of anti-Asian feeling there. Among the many great novelists from India, whose work's been influenced by the empire and its aftermath, none, I think, is greater than Salman Rushdie. Every literature has common themes. For example, 19th century uh, British novels, uh, in nearly all of them, the theme is that romantic love and property, along with moral restraint, are the basis for a good society. And these are the themes um, infinitely and beautifully explored by Jane Austen and George Eliot and Charles Dickens and Thackeray and Trollope and so on. Who's going to marry whom and who will get the money? British Empire literature is all about dramatic contrasts. The contrast of race, black and white. It's about extremes of wealth and poverty. About the beauty of the land, but also its harshness the drought and barrenness, which are so common, particularly in African writing. And there's also a wonderful contrast between the exoticism, sometimes to the authors and sometimes to characters from elsewhere, juxtaposed against the awful familiarity of places to the people who, who, are, who are local and sometimes feel trapped there. 
It's a literature which explores divided loyalties as well. The question of whether it's right to obey an unjust government or whether it's right to resist it and to what degree you should jeopardise your own safety in standing up against injustice. It's a literature also of yearning, of Africans and Indians yearning to be treated better and of whites, particularly in the uh, white settler colonies, under the stigma of colonial provincialism. It's a literature of menace, too. Peace never seems quite secure. And in that respect, this is the very opposite of British fiction, where peace and law and order seem eternal and immutable, perhaps reflecting Britain's very, very high degree of political stability. All of this colonial and post-colonial literature is political. Who should rule? Who should get the wealth? And who should sub subordinate whom in different parts of the world? And there's an awareness of a larger context as well. When you read Jane Austen or Charles Dickens, you can think entirely about what's happening to these characters right there in their English homes. But when you're reading colonial literature, there's always the shadow of other countries looming over it. And that's partly because much of it was written by colonialists, aware of their country of origin and feeling a sense of divided loyalty. It's also partly because colonial writers knew how much decisions made far away mattered to their lives. And, of course, it's because they're writing in a style that they had learned from Western European authors. The novel and the autobiography and many of the standard forms of our literature were developed in Europe and have been carried to other parts of the world. This sense of a wider context is also attributable to the fact that African writers and activists knew that other countries' opinions about what was happening to them could decisively change the entire situation. Let me talk first about the very first novel we know of by a black African. This is Thomas Mofolo's Chaka. It was written in the Sesotho language about 1915. And its subject is the great Zulu chief Chaka of a hundred years earlier. Now what happens in the story, which it was translated into English, uh, he, the young, the young uh, warrior meets a witch doctor who offers him immense power and invulnerability, but says that as a quid pro quo, he must cut all his conventional social ties and dedicate himself solely to the acquisition of power. Early successes make him ever more ruthless until in the end he's killed all that he loves and laid waste to the countryside all around. And uh, this is a, a, a fictionalised version of the life of Chaka himself, the actual Zulu chief. When I read it, I had a nagging sense of familiarity, and I suddenly realised that it was the Macbeth story. It's the story about a, an aspiring warrior who meets a supernatural figure, in Macbeth's case, the three witches on the heath, and trades uh, his peace of mind for the opportunity to become king, to become all-powerful. And sure enough, it turns out that Mofolo, this African author, was raised at mission schools and read the Bible and read Shakespeare. And so, um, he, so the story, in part at least, is a, a, a transfiguration of the Macbeth story into an African context. It's a great book, and there's a lot more to it than just that, including many tales of bravery, sexual dishonour, encounters with wild beasts, jealousy within tribes, and so on. But the Macbeth story is the heart of it. Now, the first novel in English that I know of, uh, in English by a black African, is Moody by Sol Plati, which was written in about 1918. This is a book about uh, a 19th century tribe in the Northern Cape, and again, it's set back in the time of the Zulu um, Empire. A tribe in the Northern Cape that, which is attacked by the Matabele and nearly wiped out. 
And it's a book which asserts the value of the old tribal life. But it also admits the merits of Christianity that's being brought into the area at that time by the Boers in the Great Trek and then by the English missionaries. And sure enough, to investigate the author's life is to find that he too was trained by missionaries, learned, uh, read a lot of English literature, studied the Bible and Shakespeare and so on. Platy was in Mafeking during the Great Siege in the Boer War and worked as an interpreter at the court. And in fact, Platy's diary of the Siege of Mafeking is one of the most valuable documents to historians reconstructing exactly what happened inside besieged Mafeking. Later on, he was to be one of the founders of the African National Congress, which campaigned for the abolition of apartheid. He was an early outspoken critic of racial discrimination, and all his writing insists Africans are civilised. He's always very careful to show African characters um, responsive to and receptive to the best aspects of the civilization which is being imposed on them from outside. Well, millions of people around the world have read only one South African book, and that one is Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Payton, published in 1948. It was, the, it was the first bestseller around the world by a South African author. Peyton was uh, descended from English settlers. He was a liberal, also dismayed by apartheid. And the book appeared just at the time that apartheid was becoming much more strict and much more formal because it was being introduced by the Afrikaner government that was elected in 1948 when the National Party won. Uh, Daniel Mallon was the first Afrikaner architect of formal apartheid. Peyton was a Christian, foreseeing the possibility of catastrophic interracial violence and looking for ways to uh, bring about a peaceful, non-violent solution. His job was as a supervisor of a reform school for black youth offenders uh, in the interwar years. And he wrote the book while he was touring the world's prisons, doing a comparative study of penology practices around the world. In this respect, he's analogous to Alexis de Tocqueville, who wrote his great book, uh, Democracy in America, after coming to America to study American prison systems. So Peyton began writing Cry the Beloved Country in Norway and finished in San Francisco. He wrote at a time when the old tribal system was clearly breaking down. And this is one of the things that the book testifies to. Men are being forced to leave the countryside, whether they want to or not. They have to go into the cities to seek work in the mines. The women and the old people are left behind in impoverished lands that can no longer support them. One of the many injustices of the apartheid regime was that it first insisted that the Africans be confined to the Bantu stands, but then gave the Bantu stands no adequate farmland. Uh, and Peyton was one of the first people to, to make a literary protest against it. He uses an old theme which is very common in both British and American literature of the idea that the countryside is good and the city is bad. Cry the Beloved Country is about a simple but good and dignified black priest, a man named Stephen Kumalo, who goes to Johannesburg to seek his lost, sis his lost sister Gertrude and his son Absalom. And as soon as you hear the name Absalom, you know there's going to be trouble. Because Absalom was King David's beloved son who rebelled and had to be killed by a heartbroken father. Now, um, his arrival, and so the, the story begins with Kumala going out of the countryside into the city. And it's seen through Stephen Kumalo's eyes, his wonder and his naivety at the big city and also his fear of what's going on there. Gradually, he learns that his sister has become a prostitute and his son has become a criminal. 
Peyton uses travelogue technique to lead you around shanty towns, explaining the hardship of the migrant workers' lives and the way in which they're confined to the workers' barracks. And he also describes the ruthlessness of the government in raising to the ground unauthorised shanty towns. The shanty towns had to exist in practice because the economy of the area demanded it. And yet there was absolutely no legal protection for them. And periodically they'd been demolished, forcing um, entire communities to shift elsewhere, only in every case to set up new shanties. One minor character in the book is the white director of a reform school, and that's a very thinly veiled version of himself. Well, the climax of the book comes when Absalom kills Arthur Jarvis, who's a white engineer, but also an advocate of racial justice. This takes place during a robbery. And this is also a theme in many South African novels, that whites trying to end apartheid themselves become the victims of angry blacks who are unable or unwilling to differentiate. Jarvis's father, a, lo a local wealthy white man, finally overcomes his racial prejudice and grief to begin a cooperative development project in the country district, which is suffering from drought and from the, and the presence of too many cattle. Now, it's a strange book, written in a very odd rhetorical style. Listen to a short passage from Cry the Beloved Country. Peyton writes, Cry the Beloved Country, for the unborn child that is the inheritor of our fear. Let him not love the earth too deeply. Let him not laugh too gladly when the water runs through his fingers, nor stand too silent when the setting sun makes red the velvet with fire. Let him not be too moved when the birds of his land are singing, nor give too much of his heart to a mountain or a valley, for fear will rob him of all if he gives too much. It's got a kind of biblical cadence and a, grand, a rhetorical grandeur. Well, it was immensely successful. This is a book which has sold more than 15 million copies. And as I mentioned earlier, it's quite common to find people who've read only one South African book and that that's the one. Later on, he was criticised uh, for being racially patronising. And uh, Stephen Kamala, the deeply sympathetic figure, has been criticised as being a kind of Uncle Tom figure. That's obviously a reference to Uncle Tom's Cabin. But I do think that uh, just as Uncle Tom's Cabin is nevertheless very much worth reading, whatever you, however you might debate the merits of that particular character, so is Cry the Beloved Country. By now, it's a, a priceless um, illustration of what was going on in South African racial politics in the middle of the 20th century. Peyton himself, the author, founded the Interracial South African Liberal Party in 1953. But it was banned in the late 1960s because it was interracial and because it explicitly advocated the abolition of apartheid. Let me move now to talk about Chinua Achebe's book, Things Fall Apart, from 1958. Achebe was a Nigerian from the Igbo people who worked for the Nigerian Broadcasting Service, which is the Nigerian equivalent of the BBC. He went to London for further training at the BBC in 1956 and was already experimenting with the idea of adapting the novel, which is a Western European art form, to Africa and to Nigerian experience. It's the story of a Nigerian village in about 1890 and the life of a warrior and village elder there, a man named Okonkwo, who's built up his fortune as a yam farmer, has married three wives, and now has to deal with the arrival of Christian missionaries and the power of the English army. One of its themes is the incredible threat to the traditional way of life and the unthinking damage done to traditional societies by the British. 
But it's much more than that. For at least the first two-thirds of the book, you're unaware that a Conquo is living right on the eve of imperialism and that his way of life is about to, to be revolutionised, his people's way of life is going to be revolutionised by the arrival of these colonists. Most of it's a sympathetic and imaginative reconstruction of how village life must have been and what it was which preoccupied the lives of everyday people there. And many of the characters are extremely lovable, attractive figures, although always morally complex. Well, I mentioned the cultural cringe, the way in which Australians sometimes feel doubtful whether anyone coming from Australia can be adequate as an artist. And the same was certainly true at first for Achebe. Nigerians were sceptical. But the book was published in England and then began to catch on. Now it sold 8 million copies worldwide. And as, as it succeeded, so Achebe became acclaimed inside Nigeria itself. He wrote a sequel called No Longer at Ease, published in 1960. And that one's about a Conquo's grandson living in Lagos and torn between loyalty to the family and the clan on the one hand and loyalty to modern urban life on the other, showing the tension which uh, uh, every generation of colonial peoples had to go through. Let me talk now about Nadine Gordima. She was born in 1923 and was the daughter of Jewish immigrants, born in a mining town near Johannesburg and educated at a Catholic convent school. So she had a, a glimpse of many different ways of life early on. Her family was part of the enormous uh, convergence onto the Johannesburg area of people related to the lucrative gold mining business. Early on, Nadine Gordima became aware of racial injustice and joined the ANC, the African National Congress. She became a writer about the psychological consequences of resisting apartheid and the ethical complexities that that involves. And gradually she developed a special place in the uh, South African freedom movement. She became in effect too big to touch by the security forces because she was so famous. She won the Nobel Prize in 1991, but already by then for 20 years she'd been so well known throughout the West that she was able to be outspoken in a way that obscure anti-apartheid activists would not have been. Her situation was perhaps comparable to that of Martin Luther King after he won the Nobel Peace Prize, at which point it became much more difficult to arrest him than it had been previously. One of Nadine Gordimer's great books is called Burger's Daughter. It's the story of, a, of the daughter of a communist doctor and his wife who've died in prison in service to the freedom movement. And the question posed by the book is this, must the daughter follow suit? Must she devote her entire life to this struggle as well? And, in many respects, she's been badly brought up. The novel asks, were her family justified in subordinating their lives and the lives of the family to the movement, even when it meant neglecting their own child? For example, in one early episode, her parents use her uh, pretending that she's the fiancée of a man who's been imprisoned. Another activist has been imprisoned. When she's 16, if she, if she claims to be this young man's fiancée, she'll be allowed to visit him, otherwise not. So she goes regularly to visit him, really for the sake of exchanging political information. But across the prison bars, she falls in love with the young man. He flees as soon as he's released. He gets out of the country because he knows otherwise he'll be rearrested. And there's a clear implication that the family has exploited her for political reasons, even though it's caught, um, created in her a great romantic wound. She also has a wealthy liberal friend who loves the lightest touch of danger that comes from being right at the edge of the movement. Uh, and Gordon clearly condemns the idea of radicalism as play. 
Well, her, the, the character's tough communist friends all assume that she'll carry on the work until it consumes her too. They all know that they're doomed by doing this work, but nevertheless they believe it's a moral imperative. But she has a boyfriend who's not an activist at all. And then she has a transforming incident. She's sitting in the park one day, and she sees that on one of the park benches nearby is a man who's become very still. And she realises that he suddenly died there unexpectedly. And she thinks to herself, no ideology can explain the mystery of life and death like that. This man's life has suddenly been taken away. And that could have happened whatever our racial or political situation. And it's an incident which tempts her into a completely different kind of life. She goes off to Europe and starts to indulge in the temptations of a sybaritic and hedonistic life in the south of France. But then, a tense meeting with another African activist she knew as a child draws her back into the movement and to what looks as though it will be her doom. I won't give away what happens because it's dramatic right to the last moment. In another of Gordimer's great books, a novel called A Sport of Nature, there are three sisters. One of them is a committed activist married to a lawyer who's always helping the movement figures and is always in danger. The second sister is a spoiled materialist who loves fine clothes, fine china, the best vacations, and is completely oblivious to the racial situation. The third sister is a wild girl who runs away, marries recklessly, and has passionate love affairs. And the, and the book's chief character is about the daughter of this third sister, as she's passed around among the different families and learns to become an incredibly talented survivor in all sorts of odd social situations. She goes into exile when she follows her own lover abroad when she's uh, about 18 or 19, only to be abandoned by this man. Then she joins the exile community of political activists, even though previously she hadn't been political. And finally, she returns to South Africa in the most extraordinary way. This one, A Sport of Nature, is my favourite of all, Gordimer's books, a magnificent evocation of human reality as it intermixes with politics. Well, Gordimer specialises in writing about people involved in the struggle against apartheid to varying degrees. But what about the ordinary, the ordinary white citizens of South Africa who weren't particularly even interested in it? A great book in the, on this context is Andre Brink's book, A Dry White Season, from 1979. This one picks up the story of a man called Ben Dutois. He's an Africana man. He's decent, but a kind of second-rate thinker, a, a thoroughly conventional fellow. He teaches in an Afrikaans school. He teaches the history of the Boers in the way they think about it, the great trek, the justification for apartheid. He's got an ambitious wife who's the daughter of a member of parliament, but she can't fire him up to any greater ambition, and it's clear that he's a sort of lifelong underachiever. But then, at the school where he works, the son of the janitor whom he knows, a black man, dies in mysterious circumstances. Then the janitor is arrested and he too dies mysteriously. The police said that the son was shot during the uprising in Soweto, but Ben knows people who saw him in prison. And then the police say that the father's hanged himself in his prison cell, but Ben meets people who saw him after he'd been tortured and knows that he would never kill himself. So this Afrikaner citizen goes to the police headquarters expecting to clear up misunderstandings. But at once the police warn him, don't get involved with any of this. We've told you what happened. We're looking after your safety. Now leave us alone. And when his curiosity forces him to start discovering what really happened to these people whom he knew slightly, the police start to regard him as a sinister activist and begin to follow him. 
And the book is an eerie account of his gradual learning about what the special branch and the security forces in South Africa were really like. Members of his family turn against him, and nearly everyone he's involved with is arrested or killed, until he finds he's become a kind of leper, bringing an infection to everyone he touches. It's a wonderful account, a dry white season, of the defamiliarization of a man discovering that the world he lives in and from which he benefits isn't really the place he thought it was at all. Everyone in South Africa was wondering, what's it going to be like after the revolution? Afrikaners asked it with dread because they foresaw a black communist tyranny. Black activists asked it with hope and expectation. And the white liberals asked it with a mix of hope and dread. Well, from the mid-1950s, the European powers were rapidly decolonizing Africa. The South African regime watched and found much to be discouraged about. Democracies failed nearly everywhere. The infrastructure deteriorated, civil wars, famines, low rates of investment, all led to uh, uh, dismaying underachievement on the part of these new independent African nations. Now, one of the Afrikaners was so anxious about the possibility of majority rule there as well. Now, one of the greatest of the post uh, the post-transition uh, black African novelists is Zarkes Umdar. He explores the end of apartheid in a book called Ways of Dying from 1995. And it's set just at the time that South Africa's going through the transition from apartheid to universal democracy. His hero, Toloki, has invented a new job suitable to the time. That is, he's made himself a professional mourner. And, he, and uh, nearly all the scenes of the book take place at funerals. And he goes along to, to funerals. And the book's really an ironic exploration of the very many ways in which you can die in modern South Africa. It talks a lot about black-on-black violence in the townships, about abuse of the ideals of the freedom movement. But on the other hand, there's an inspiring feeling of life breaking through it all in any case. Alan Payton had looked at the shanty towns from the outside, from a white liberal's point of view, but Umdar sees them from the inside, from the resident's point of view. And in his work, as in that of, of Chinua Achebe, magic is very close to the surface. His old friend is Noraya, a girl who sang such beautiful songs that she inspired Taloki's father to carve beautiful figurines. Without her singing, he could do nothing and completely fell to pieces. There's magic also in Emdar's more recent book, Heart of Redness. And there, Emdar explores how an old rivalry that began in the first days of the British Empire has endured right up to the present, even though the protagonists, members of an African tribe, can't quite remember why they're at odds with each other. This one's set in a beautiful but remote seaside place in post-apartheid South Africa. And the question is, should it turn to tourism or should it preserve the ancient ways? Well, again, I don't want to give away the plot because Heart of Redness is a book everybody should read. But it's noteworthy that Mdar, already by the beginning of the 21st century, is merciless in denouncing the corruption of the new politicians of the African National Congress. They finally come into power and he says they're corrupt and they're disgraceful. Quote, they all have their snouts buried deep in the trough, lapping noisily in the name of the poor, trying to outdo one another in piggishness. Very different in mood is the work of V.S. Naipaul. As I mentioned earlier, he was a Nobel Prize winner. And he's a, a member of the Indian emigre community in Trinidad in the West Indies. When he wrote A Bend in the River in 1979, he was giving the point of view of the Indian community in Africa. Uh, it's about the, uh, uh, reflecting on the time of Idi Amin when uh, anti-Asian prejudice among black Africans was rising very sharply. The central character in this book, A Bend in the River, is Salim. 
He's grown up in a big African town on the east coast, probably somewhere like Mombasa. But now he runs a shop in the interior, selling bottles and pots and pans and knives to people who live in jungle villages. And this is it's set probably in the Congo. He never actually gives you the name of the country, but that's what it appears to be after the Belgian Empire has left. And it describes the deterioration and chaos of life in this ex-colony and makes quite clear the idea that it was much better when the colonists were there, especially from the point of view of the Indian community. Now, moving briefly to India, I think the greatest of the post-Empire Indian writers is Salman Rushdie, whose life has borne witness to some of the residual problems of the British Empire and its legacy. His novel, The Satanic Verses, was published in 1988, and it led to the fatwa, that is, the declaration of a death sentence on Rushdie, imposed by the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran. The, the fatwa was attributable to the fact that the book includes a depiction of Muhammad, which is sacrilege in Islam. For a decade, Rushdie had to live in hiding. Rushdie himself has, has lived a life on the boundaries. He was, born in, he was born and raised in Bombay, but he was schooled in England at Rugby, one of the English boarding schools in the Midlands, and then at Cambridge University. And uh, the theme of nearly all his books is of life on the boundary between India and England. In the Satanic Verses, the two main characters are not fully at home in either place. One of them is a, a super movie star from Bollywood, the Indian movie industry but he's in love with an English woman who's a mountaineer. The other one is a, uh, a voiceover specialist on British TV. In other words, and he's very, very good at mimicking all sorts of different voices, European and Indian. So he's a person whom everybody hears, but nobody knows what he looks like. There's a little shade there, I think, of uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Uh, his voice is prominent. Nobody knows who he is. And uh, Rushdie specialises in evocative descriptions. Here's an incredibly talented and... and uh, um, a brilliant description, I think, of an, an upper-class English woman's voice. It's just exactly right. It was a voice composed of tweeds, headscarves, summer pudding, hockey sticks, thatched houses, saddle soap, house parties, nuns, family pews, large dogs, and philistinism. I can hear that voice exactly as I read Rushdie's very entertaining description of it. And he's an author unmatched in wordplay. He's deliberately cheeky, deliberately outrageous. You can't help feeling that he uh, relished the fatwa, despite the danger, because uh, it, 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 it drew such attention to his own extraordinary um, um, effervescent brilliance. He's also uh, a magic realist. For example, the Satanic Verses begins, the, the first episode is a, an aircraft being blown up in midair by terrorists. But the two principal characters float down and survive. They land in the English Channel, just on the edge of the, of the coast, and come into England and survive. The one of them grows horns and a tail, and gradually becomes a devil. Here's a description of him. Chamcha had grown to a height of over eight feet, and from his nostrils there emerged smoke of two different colours, yellow from the left, and from the right, black. He was no longer wearing clothes. His bodily hair had grown thick and long. His tail was swishing angrily. His eyes were a pale but luminous red and he had succeeded in terrifying the entire temporary population of the bed-and-breakfast establishment to the point of incoherence. Another of the characters is the painfully honest owner of this bed-and-breakfast, a man from Bangladesh who was a schoolteacher but was too honest for his own good and was finally forced to emigrate to the UK where he feels completely lost and bereft. 
in The Moor's Last Sigh, uh, another Rushdie novel, The Moor's mother is pregnant with him for only four and a half months, and he lives his life at double speed. Perhaps what Rushdie's trying to do here is to signal the parallel history of India and Europe. This is also is an exploration of Islam at its greatest extent, from India to Spain in the late Middle Ages. And among Rushdie's many other great works is Shame, a book from 1983, which is an allegory of the history of Pakistan, including very thinly fictionalised versions of the dictators Zia and Bhutto. It's a book that's calculated to outrage any Pakistani, because it emphasises throughout the shameful abuse of the country's heritage, its dictatorships and its catastrophic defeat in the Bangladesh War. Again, it's easy to see throughout the work the way in which Rushdie virtually challenges everyone to become enraged at him. Well, as these examples suggest, and I'm, I'm only just touching the surface of some of this literature, the British Empire provoked plenty of great stories and great storytellers, and a literature that's rapidly becoming as rich as the literature of Britain itself. Lecture 36, Epitaph and Legacy. Historians disagree radically in their judgment of the British Empire. For a few, it represents a disgraceful episode of greed, exploitation, racism and hypocrisy. For a few others, it represents an unmatched achievement in the advancement of civilization. In this course, I've tried to take a middle position, recognising that Britain's traders, soldiers and politicians were often unscrupulous and narrowly self-interested, but also that many others, with the widest array of motives, brought education, medicine, technology and the possibility of political stability to remote parts of the world. The moral balance sheet is complicated partly because some of today's worst conflicts can be traced back to questions Britain failed to solve, even when its intentions were benign. Whatever one's moral judgment, it's difficult to, de to deny that the effects of the British Empire have been immense and have contributed to what might be called the Anglicisation of the entire earth. English is today the international language of diplomacy and trade, science and most other scholarship. It's also the language of all the former white dominions and even the official language of India. British ideas, and those of Britain's most successful ex-colony, the United States, about government, human rights and democracy, have spread almost everywhere and are the ideals to which persecuted peoples in many parts of the world aspire. Ironically, the experience of the British Empire and its ending have made it much less likely that future empires of the same kind will ever recur. Well, empire building is central to world history, and it need not be surprising that Britain seized the opportunity to build an empire of its own. We have to contemplate a little bit about the, compl the, the complexity of how to think about the question. We live in a world that favours equality and democracy and nation-states, all of which are historically very unusual. Empires are more common than nations. Democracy in nation-states and equality are in large part British and Anglo-American inventions and ideals. 
Throughout most of world history, democracy and equality have been regarded as almost insane, hardly worth serious discussion at all, and yet they're now issues taken very, very seriously throughout the world. They're standard even to regimes that routinely ignore them, and that's an Anglo-American achievement. Even the, um, the former Soviet bloc thought of it or claimed to be democratic because they realised that it was respectable in world opinion to claim to be a democracy even when it was obvious that you weren't. Well, in thinking about judgment, it's appropriate to judge the British Empire beside other historic empires. Well, that's one useful point of comparison. First of all, the British, like the Romans, saw themselves as the bringers of civilization to backward peoples. It's a very tempting comparison. The Romans thought they were bringing civilization to the barbarians, bringing them peace, good roads, water supplies, and what they called the Pax Romana, the great Roman peace. If you've seen the Monty Python film, The Life of Brian, you may remember a lovely episode in which a group of disgruntled Galilean revolutionaries are sitting around, uh, and one of them says, what have the Romans ever done for us? And then one of them says, well, the, the roads, the bridge, the water supply, the hospital, the schools, and bit by bit they realise that nearly everything that's good about their lives has in fact been done for them by the Romans. Well, just as the Romans talked about the Pax Romana, so the British, especially in the Victorian and Edwardian eras of the late 1800s and the early 1900s, spoke of the Pax Britannica. They said, it's true that we sometimes had to fight to gain possession and that we sometimes had to put down rebellions like the Indian Mutiny. But in the long run, the people benefited greatly from the fact that we did. Just as Roman law remained immensely influential long afterwards, so did British institutions. So, for example, the legal and political systems of India, South Africa, Australia, Canada, most of the British West Indies, and those of former, uh, former African colonies that are still democratic, like Botswana, can all be traced directly to the British system. Second, the British Empire achieved far greater stability than the empires of Napoleon, Hitler and Stalin. All three of them depended on conquest and on very high levels of repression, and they were bitterly hated by the people they conquered. Britain did a much better job of building up consent among the governed and of introducing them to the principles of self-government. A tiny handful of British administrators could not have dominated India for two centuries, after all, without a large measure of popular acquiescence uh, uh, among the... Uh, indigenous population, along with key supporters in that population. They didn't love the British, but they recognised good qualities in them. Third, the British Empire learned from its mistakes, especially from the experience of the American Revolution. In the 1760s and 1770s, they were slow to accord sufficient self-government to the Americans and slow to appreciate that events abroad might seem threatening even if they were not. For example, British politicians were very slow to appreciate that the Americans looked on King George III and looked on Lord North and his ministry as evidence of a developing tyranny. Because they weren't tyrannical, the British politicians were too ready to dismiss the idea that the Americans could think that they were. But obviously a very important part of politics is getting fully into the frame of mind of the people um, you're governing to understand why they think what they think and to take appropriate actions to allay those kinds of fears. But Britain did learn from the American Revolution and from then on it was careful to give steadily greater degrees of self-government to the white dominions, 
starting with the Durham Report of 1839, because they never again forgot what the alternative might be. Australia, New Zealand and Canada remained extremely loyal in return, and there was never a moment when any of them seemed to be on the brink of a revolutionary war of its own. They had no need for it. Fourth, for much of its history, Britain's rulers appreciated the need to tolerate a diversity of religions and customs in the countries where they'd become politically powerful. They provoked, they provoked opposition most when they applied absolute moral standards. For example, in pre-mutiny India, where they tried to uh, prevent a lot of uh, local customs and introduced evangelical Christianity instead. But even there, it's very difficult to come to simple conclusions about the rights and wrongs of what they did. And again, it's useful just to glimpse back from a glance back for a moment to the question of sati, widow burning. Is it really right to, to, to permit a custom like that to go on when you regard it as utterly horrific? Or is it not preferable to try to eliminate it even in the face of popular uh, outrage? It's possible to take the view that the Quebec Act in the 1770s was itself a, a, a government triumph. This was the act which appreciated the need to mollify the French-Canadian population who'd now become part of the British Empire and to permit them to practice their Catholic faith, even though Catholicism was then regarded as very threatening. Uh, the Quebec Act is an ironic, a particularly ironic thing because it's one of the sources of maximum anxiety to the American revolutionaries who interpreted it as a sign that the British government was about to fasten a religious tyranny onto the colonies in addition to everything else it was doing. So in one sense it was an act of enlightened statesmanship, in another sense it was a, a, a red rag to a bull. Fifth, the British Empire pioneered in the abolition of slavery. This is another of those complex moral questions. Slavery had been all but universal until then. The surprise isn't that the British used slavery, but that eventually it decided not to. They sacrificed a material interest in the name of an ideal and then crusaded very hard around the world to stamp it out elsewhere. As I mentioned in the lecture about the explorers of Africa, David Livingstone regarded the, the suppression of the slave trade inside East Africa as one of the most important elements of his missions and as a leading motive for the colonization of Africa. And later he and General Gordon and Ord Wingate were all horrified at the incredible tenacity of the Arab slave trade in East Africa far into the 20th century. What's more, not only did the British abolish slavery because they came to believe that it was the right thing to do, even though it affected their material interests, they didn't have to fight a ghastly civil war over it. That ought to be a source of lasting pride. Sixth, the British Empire conceded the principle of eventual self-government for all its colonies. Now, as I mentioned a few lectures ago, the British anticipated staying in Africa for much longer after the Second World War. And it is possible to argue that Britain ought to have stayed there longer so that there could have been more of an opportunity to adequately train up African elites to be able to create a, a responsible and stable political regime after they'd gone. But the British never said that they were going to stay indefinitely and they conceded the principle of eventual self-government throughout all the empire. Well, I mentioned briefly uh, the tyrants like Napoleon and Hitler. It's also worth comparing the British Empire with its great European rivals, each of which for a while did seem to be in an extremely commanding position. 
Over the course of its rise and fall, the British Empire encountered the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Dutch and the French, each of which became a colonial power, and yet Britain was able to overmaster all of them. Why was that? Well, I think sea power was central to this success. In the Tudor era, the 1500s, the 14 and 1500s, Spanish and Portuguese uh, navigators pioneered blue water sailing and worked out how to cross the oceans to the Americas and then to the East Indies. And this was a wonderful achievement requiring extreme daring because of the need to be out of sight of land for literally weeks at a time and with primitive navigation equipment nevertheless to find their way to remote parts of the New World. But the Spanish and Portuguese weren't able to hold on to their lead. The, Br the British eclipsed them in the design of fighting ships, something that was already clear when the Royal Navy met the Armada in 1588. And then in the systematic building up of a great merchant marine and an equally great Royal Navy to protect it. The mystique of the Royal Navy continued to increase in the 18th century in the wars against France. And I mentioned to you the astonishing incident of the execution of a, of a British admiral, Admiral Bing, on the quarterdeck of his own flagship. An execution which had the effect of showing captains that they must engage the enemy at all costs. And they did, climaxing in the amazing feats of Horatio Nelson. Now it's also true that, like perhaps like all empire builders, the British were lucky. They were certainly luckier than France or Prussia because Britain was an island. They didn't have to worry about dividing their uh, military resources between the sea and the land. For example, the history of the, of the borders between France and Germany, that's a history of centuries of warfare between dozens of different states. Or the history of northern Italy, which is, whose various principalities constantly changed hands, sometimes over the, uh, repeatedly over the course of a century where immense quantities of treasure and manpower were sunk into um, the achieving of very, very local gains in, in ruinous wars. That's something that Britain didn't have to do. And it's clearly a good thing from the point of view of the development of the British Empire that Britain abandoned its pretensions to land claims in Europe. In the time of Mary Tudor, Calais, the last English possession in France, was lost and the British never really went back to uh, seeking an empire inside Europe itself. As I've emphasised throughout the course, Britain early developed sophisticated forms of banking and insurance. The insurance grew up, first of all, at Lloyd's Coffee House in the early 18th century. Marine insurance um, uh, offering protection to the investors in highly risky voyages to the Far East. And also life insurance. At first it seemed almost a form of sacrilege to bet against the possibility of someone's death. But gradually the, the benefits of doing so um, well, became widely recognised, so that a sophisticated insurance system could develop. That was a great stimulus to entrepreneurial initiative for high-risk voyages to the Caribbean and the Far East. Later on, Britain also pioneered in the introduction of limited liability, which had the further uh, benign effect of stimulating investment and economic growth, making more people with um, fluid wealth to risk investing it in profitable schemes. The Bank of England was founded in 1694, before the year 1700, and that created financial stability inside the kingdom. It gave the wealthy classes a stake in the political survival of the regime and enabled the monarchs to borrow at low interest rates. The national debt even became an asset rather than a liability, as debt had usually been. 
So if you compare British and French finance uh, throughout the 18th century, you, it's impossible to exaggerate the contrast between the two. The kings of France were constantly borrowing at very high interest rates and were nearly always tottering on the brink of bankruptcy. Whereas the British government had long-term low interest arrangements and a, and a broad merchant community perfectly willing to invest with confidence in the government itself. So that the, uh, the political and the commercial nation were bound together by these financial arrangements. Imperial service and emigration opportunities gave a stake in the empire to a large part of the British population. The ideal of lifelong service inspired generations of Indian civil servants, men who went out to India very often at the cost of their lives, uh, to become the district commissioners and the collectors who looked after great areas of India. And of course they believed in the essential rightness of their mission, without which it wouldn't be possible to undertake work of that kind. I sometimes ask my undergraduate students at Emory University where I teach, how many of them want to devote their lives to administration in Iraq? And the answer I get is that none of them does. They don't like the idea of sacrificial service abroad, and they don't believe the mission is justified in any event. The Americans don't have a tradition of long-term imperial service abroad. That's a striking national difference. But as you can imagine, it's only so long as a lot of people in Britain were willing to do this work and to, and to accept the risks which went with it, that the, main, that the maintenance of the empire could be possible. Canada, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, and later on uh, areas like the White Highlands of Kenya, all offered the opportunity of a better life to generations of poor emigrants from Britain, and perhaps particularly from Scotland and Ireland, the Celtic fringes of Britain, which have often been the very poorest parts of, of Britain. A historian named Arthur Herman has written a book called How the Scots Invented the Modern World, and he makes a very persuasive case for the fact that if you, uh, if you trace the spread of Scottish emigration throughout the world, you can see an extraordinary dominance uh, of, of Scots and their immediate descendants, particularly in the running of the white settler colonies, that Australian and Canadian history are, uh, are vitally uh, linked to the work of Scots and their immediate descendants. At least 15 million people left the British Isles in the 19th century. And that had the benign effect of preventing the political problems that come from overpopulation and underemployment. The empire was a very useful safety valve. Britain's role as the world's first industrial nation enabled it to preserve and enlarge its empire despite the setback of the American Revolutionary War. Adam Smith explained why the division of labour and mechanisation and free trade were making Britain wealthy. And the title of his book is highly illuminating. It's called An Inquiry into the Wealth of Nations. Adam Smith asks this question, why are some nations wealthy? He didn't have to explain poverty. Poverty had been almost universal. Almost everybody in the entire history of the world had been poor. But now certain nations, particularly Britain, were becoming wealthy. That was the thing which had to be explained. And right at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, Smith identified many of the processes by which that was happening. These were the years in which steam engines were being rapidly improved by James Watt, in which Arkwright worked out um, how to construct effective water-powered textile mills, how to mechanise the spinning and weaving processes. 
These developments, along with the simultaneous invention of the cotton gin in 1793, gave Britain and America uh, a symbiotic economic relationship even after the revolution, making Anglo-American ties in some ways stronger than they had been before, despite the political separation. Industrialization meant that Britain could make higher quality goods at lower cost than anybody else. Now, there were certainly vast disparities in wealth distribution at first, and the early industrial cities were horrible places, evoking a vivid literary protest by people like Charles Dickens and a vivid political protest by people like Frederick Engels and Karl Marx. But nevertheless, industrialization was the foundation for the, for the spread of prosperity throughout Britain. In the long run, the consequences were good. Britain's colonies provided the surplus food and the raw materials to feed Britain's industry and its industrial population. It no longer became necessary for a majority of Britain's people to work in farming, as is historically the fate of nearly every country. Although inability to feed itself made Britain vulnerable during war times, nevertheless, specialisation was itself a great contributor to the enrichment of Britain. By the 1840s, Britain had abandoned protectionism almost completely and abandoned the Navigation Acts, which had excluded rivals. And free trade had the effect of stimulating further rapid economic growth. The fact that Britain was able to do so peacefully shows not only that this is an economic success, but also that it's a political success. Shifting the focus of the political nation away from the landowning aristocracy and towards the interests of the merchants and manufacturers, the people who would benefit most from it. And again, the relative social fluidity of Britain permitted a certain amount of intermarriage between the merchants and manufacturers and the landed classes. So the aristocracy was never overthrown in the way that it was, for example, in the French Revolution, but rather merged its interests with the new developing mercantile elite. British inventiveness and productivity continued to strengthen the empire into the late 19th century. Railways, steamships and marine cables accelerated communications and vastly diminished risks and uncertainties. As I said earlier in one of the lectures, and as I should say again, it's very difficult to understand the history of the oceans if you sentimentalise sailing ships. Sailing ships were absolutely horrible. They were extremely dangerous. They tended to be infested with disease. Um, they were breeding grounds for epidemics. Many of them were overrun with rats. The food was terrible. You were likely to get scurvy if you stayed on board for very long. In every way, the introduction of steamships, starting in the 1840s for ocean-going ships, plus steel construction, made ships bigger, faster, and much, much safer. From the point of view of the people who actually had to sail in them or travel with them, uh, there can't have been very much nostalgia uh, for the sailing ships which, which were gradually being superannuated. Railways are very important too. And again, Britain pioneered them beginning in the 1820s with George and Robert Stevenson, the first uh, father and son team, the geniuses of railway, railway building. They revolutionised the internal bulk movement of, of commodities and people. Marine cables meant that, that, that on the same day messages could be sent all over the world by 1870. And it made it possible for the London government or the London heads of companies to supervise much more closely the management of affairs taking place far away. That was normally a benefit, although not absolutely always. It certainly had a profound effect on, on Anglo-Indian relations when now London could be much more closely in touch with what was happening. 
Britain's inability to maintain its industrial supremacy presaged its eventual imperial decline. Germany and the United States caught up with Britain as industrial powers in the 1880s and surpassed Britain by 1900. And of course there are advantages to being a latecomer. You don't have to go through the long phases of trial and error. And you're more likely to find ways to be more efficient right away. In the United States, manufacturers like Andrew Carnegie, another of these Scotsmen who've had such an impact on the world, Andrew Carnegie was a fanatical innovator. He'd always scrap the equipment and buy the, the newest and most up-to-date one, constantly uh, renewing his machinery to make it as efficient and effective as possible. By the late 19th century, the highest wards in British life didn't go to the industrialists. They went instead to the gentlemen. And the ideal of the gentleman amateur was corrosive to British industrial supremacy. I explained in one of the previous lectures, the one about cricket, ideas about professionals and amateurs. In America, to say that someone is professional is, is meant to be high praise. It suggests that they do a job and they do it very well indeed. But in Britain, the highest praise is, is reserved for the amateur. Somebody who does something simply because of their love of it. In sport, this was particularly obvious, where the great thing was to be not paid for doing the job. But it's also true, more generally, that in British life, the, the most prestigious job you could have was to not have a job at all. Leisure was, much, was, of a, was higher status than hard work. And what that meant was that it was, it was relatively unusual for um, um, industrial dynasties to develop inside British life. Whereas in America you get families like the Vanderbilts, where one generation after the next, each one builds on the achievements of the previous ones, what tended to happen in Britain is that a man who made a fortune in industry would then send his son to Eton and then to Oxford and Cambridge. And there the ethos was very much one of learning how to be a leisured gentleman. And very often the, the sons trained in that way would spend the money they'd inherited from their fathers to buy their way into the landed classes rather than remaining committed to industrialization, whose social prestige was comparatively lower. The highest achievement for an Englishman was to become a member of Parliament. And in one beautiful series of books, the Phineas Finn series, Anthony Trollope talks about the, the trials and tribulations of a young man who wants to make his way in the world by becoming a member of Parliament. And it's quite clear that Trollope himself agrees with Phineas that there's no higher honour in the world than to be a member of Parliament, even though it was unpaid. Well, with, with ideals of service and ideals of leisure and ideals of the of the majesty of political life, no wonder the British were good at running things from a sense of service. However, a, a social situation which is in some ways attractive does carry costs. Uh, you can imagine that. If people are, are moving out of industry into the leisured landed classes, rather than reinvesting everything in the factory, sooner or later they're going to get left behind, especially when they're up against American competitors or German competitors who have different ideas about what carries status and prestige. Uh, and by 1900, uh, the, the British Empire started to become a place in which the British would shelter behind their relatively inefficient industrial system. As they started to lose ground, they started to use the empire to compensate. Here's the historian Paul Johnson. He says... It is not surprising that the English, confronted by growing evidence that they were no longer the world's leading industrial power, sought redress and relief not in an economic solution but in a political one. They did not use the state to become more efficient. 
they used the state to enlarge the area in which their inefficiency would matter less. In short, they invented modern imperialism. This was, or at any rate seemed to be, the easy way out. But it was a choice directed not by strength, but by weakness. Unable to compete successfully in the developed markets, the English turned to a further exploitation and enlargement of their sphere of influence in the backward parts of the world. And that was the prelude to the return to protectionism and the creation of a free trade area within the empire while trying to keep the Germans and the Americans out. But of course, once the colonies got self-government, that in turn was going to be difficult because the politicians in the newly independent colonies would necessarily be tempted to make... Uh, to find trading with America where the commodities cost less and were of better quality more attractive than holding on to trade with Britain. Class conflict in Britain led to the rise of the Labour Party, whose leaders were antagonistic to the idealism of an empire. The Labour Party first formed a government in the 1920s, although in the 20s it was never actually in power, it never had an overall majority of seats. But it did get into power with an overall majority after the Second World War. Many of its members were actively opposed to dominating other peoples. So the arrival of the labour movement itself was uh, an augury of the end of the empire. The two world wars and the rise of the post-World War II nuclear superpowers, both of them nominally anti-imperialist, left no space in the world for an independent British empire. President Roosevelt was determined that the United States would not fight World War II to preserve Britain's colonies. Stalin, although he built an empire in Eastern Europe, was implacably hostile to what he called the capitalist imperialism of Britain. Now, in the Cold War confrontation of the 1940s through 80s, almost nobody in the United Kingdom doubted that when it came to choosing sides, Britain must choose NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, under the protection of the Americans, uh, because its principles were decisive and were very, very similar to, to British values. The Suez Crisis of 1956 showed that Britain could no longer undertake significant imperial ventures on its own in politically sensitive parts of the world like the Middle East. And from that point onwards, the empire, already being uh, dismantled, unraveled very rapidly. But it's left an indelible mark on our world, in which the ideals of representative government, the rule of law and the English language are almost universal. Whatever its limitations, the British Empire has bestowed a valuable legacy on the rest of the world, from which we continue to benefit. We hope you have enjoyed these lectures from our Great Courses series. Our courses are now available to order online. Visit our website at www.teach12.com or call our customer care representatives at 1-800-TEACH-12. That's 1-800-T-E-A-C-H-1-2. Thank you very much. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.